Good morning, Miami. We got a great house here today. Let's fucking go. So, I mean, I know a lot of you think I'm a natural at this, but I've never actually been on stage by myself, in person, in front of a great crowd, until yesterday. So this is my second attempt. I took some notes because I missed a bunch of things yesterday. First off, I want to thank the production crew. They did a fantastic job yesterday. They're filming with very high quality cameras. They're uploading everything after the fact. Um, and we have a great crew backstage that nobody sees that makes this all happen. So huge shout out to them. You might notice I'm wearing sunglasses. It's because these lights are very bright. Uh, can I get a show of hands who was here last year? Okay, awesome, a lot of new faces. As you can see, we did it a lot bigger this year. Um, we got a nice dedicated space, larger than most conferences, dedicated to open source, contributors and projects. Extremely excited for it. We've been, you know, it's been six months in the making and I'm glad you're all here. Part of that program was we gave away 120 free tickets to open source contributors of 32 Bitcoin projects. A lot of them are here today. It's great to see those faces. We do appreciate you. You guys are, are what makes this movement possible and what makes Bitcoin robust. We have, so let's, let's go through what, what's going on here. We have, first of all, we have workshop tables in the back. Uh, if you are over there, try and keep your voices to a minimum while the talks are going on. Uh, the talks will end at three, uh, with the live rabbit hole recap is gonna end the day. And then at three, everyone can use the workshop tables to their full effect. We can network, we can talk about open source, you can see all the great projects that are, that are being displayed out there. Um, we have teams from around the world who are participating in that. We structured the panels uh, to be longer. They're 40 minutes each, so we can have proper discussion uh, rather than just intros and outros and then get off the stage, which I'm pretty excited about. We had fantastic panels yesterday, so if you weren't here for it, make sure you go check out the video after the fact. Uh, they were really, really great. Uh, today, we are gonna have an absolutely awesome lineup. Um, we're gonna have a Bitcoin Core panel that I'm really excited about. Bitcoin development panel, decentralized exchanges, DLCs, nodes. Uh, it should be a very, very great day. Uh, and I'm really excited to share it with all of you. What else do we have here on my notes? Um, so open source, I'm sure most, I hope that most of you, I mean, you're here today, know what open source is. Um, you know, the, the power of open source is that the code can be verified, and so you don't have to trust any corporation uh, with what is running, and that you can build off that code, you can improve it, you can distribute it, and that that code is viral in nature, it lives forever. It'll live way past all of us, just like Bitcoin will. And that is extremely powerful, and that is why it is imperative for all of us to support these projects, support these contributors, use the tools, build the tools, test the tools. You don't have to be a developer to contribute to the open source ecosystem. They love getting feedback through testing. They love design help. 
Design help is huge. Um, and of course, donations. So most of our open source contributors have chosen not to work at very lucrative paying jobs and instead have dedicated their time to working on these open source projects that are often, you know, their, their compensation isn't great. Um, so if you want to support them, it is, it is really get great to send them some sats. Um, I have two projects that I've been working on in, to make that easier. You have BitcoinDevilist.com where you can donate sats directly to open source contributors who choose to get listed on the site. Uh, that's powered by BTC Pay Server. So no middleman, goes straight to them. It's basically a directory. Um, and then we also started OpenSats, which is a 501c3 tax deductible foundation. Uh, you can donate to that with credit card or through Bitcoin. Very excited that after a year and a half, we publicly launched two days ago. So if you go to opensats.org, you can donate today. Um, let's fucking go. OpenSats, part of the reason it took us so long is we take zero cut. So most 501c3s will take 5% or 10% or 2%. We take 0%. Uh, we also, we have a great board. So the way the OpenSats works is, you know, you, you donate to this general fund and our board basically, there's two things. There's a general fund where we choose which projects go, where, where, where the donations go for you. And then there's also the ability to donate directly to projects that have applied and on the website. I don't think we have that part built out yet, but you can donate directly uh, to the projects. If you donate with credit card, by the way, we automatically convert that into Bitcoin and hold Bitcoin only. Um, and the credit card fees, the credit card fees, we don't even, that doesn't even come out of your donation because uh, we got Ledger to sponsor the credit card fees. So just um, no credit card fees either. So it's just 100% to devs and you can get a tax deductible donation on it. Um, yeah, and just a, just a huge thanks to, there's, there was a massive team that worked with me to make this happen at Bitcoin Magazine. Um, I really could not have done it without them. I couldn't have done it without a lot of people in this room today. Uh, it just inspires me, gives me a lot of hope for the future. You, are, you all are my people, and I'm proud to be here today. I'm excited to be here today. And you know we're gonna win together. We're gonna fucking do it. So let's fucking go. Have a great time. Enjoy yourself. Oh, this is Good super. to see you. Oh. Good to see you. <laughs> I didn't realize the Jackson 5 was the official music of core development, but i um, okay with that, I guess. Um, thanks for uh, getting up early and coming out. Um, we're going to be talking about the core development process. My name is James O'Byrne, um, and we've got what is probably the biggest panel of the uh, open source stage at least so far. Maybe that bodes well for uh, increased developer participation. Um, we'll see. But yeah, I'm really excited about the panelists that we have here. Um, so maybe we can get going. We've got a lot to cover. Um, and uh, yeah, let's start off with some intros. So hey, Andrew. Uh, so I'm Andrew Chow. Uh, I work on the Bitcoin Core wallet and the wallet maintainer. And I'm at Blockstream. Hey, I'm uh, Jeremy Rubin. I'm a Bitcoin contributor. I work on uh, Sapio, smart contract framework for Bitcoin. 
I am Gloria Zhao or Glow Zhao. I work mostly on mempool and P2P uh, at Brink. I'm Luke Nesbitt. Uh, I mainly try to focus on uh, making full nodes easier for people to use, but I don't like the practice. Okay. Um, I'm Carl Dong. I work for Chaincode Labs, um, and I used to work on reproducible builds, but now modularizing the consensus engine. Very cool. So. Um, Let's start off by talking about um, some repository mechanics. So as you all know, right now, Bitcoin Core is hosted on github.com. It's a Git repository. And um, there are a number of contributors, obviously, who work on Bitcoin Core in this venue. Um, but there's a kind of special class of contributor, um, or maybe not so special, as we'll find out, um, called maintainers. And Andrew is actually one of these maintainers. And we hear a lot about them. There's kind of a mystique surrounding them. So, Andrew, maybe you can talk a little bit about who the maintainers are, what they do, um, and yeah. their roles. So, so the maintainers are the, the people who have the ability to merge code into the Bitcoin Core code base. Um, and it's actually largely a janitorial role. Uh, maintainers look for other contributors to review code and, and agree with the changes before they merge them. Um, they're not like unilaterally adding things. Uh, it's it's mostly just like, you know, seeing seeing that things that got reviewed make it in. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, so, uh, Jeremy, what has your interaction been like with um, maintainers? How do you you know? Uh, I think that what's difficult uh, with maintainers is there's a lot of good, but I think what's difficult is that uh, what the community sometimes expects from the maintainers is different from like what contributors expect. Mm -hmm. And then you have to tell maintainers sometimes, like, hey, the community is you know, wanting you to do this. What do you think? And they're like, oh, I don't want to be doing that. That's not what a maintainer does. And you're like, you should probably, like, you know, like there's some sort of miscommunication with what the expectations are. I think the expectations from maintainers are really clear, though. And I think they've been like, really good at you know, doing you know, what it is they, they're supposed to be doing. Can you give an example of when those expectations differ? Um, so in particular, like I work on some consensus changes, and uh, uh, people want to know, like, oh, like, when, are, when are the maintainers going to merge it? And I can communicate to maintainers, like people would like to know, like, you know, like this, like you should communicate that, you know, formally that it's not something that you're doing. Um, but I think it's hard to sometimes get these, you know, like people don't really want to communicate some of those things sometimes. And and I th I think there's like a difference between how Bitcoin Core treats maintainers versus other projects, so, like. In a lot of other projects, you have kind of like the, the benevolent dictator for life, uh, and they get to decide everything that's going on, what gets merged, and where the roadmap is going, whatever. But Bitcoin Core doesn't have that, and we don't really want to. Uh, so it does lead to sometimes maintainers are, are just doing the, the work of clicking the button versus deciding uh, the direction of the project, uh, which, which we really want to leave up to the contributors and community. For, for where Bitcoin is going to go. Yeah. yeah. So um, I think maybe when a lot of people hear Bitcoin Core, they're thinking about the rules of Bitcoin, um, uh, how it functions, the consensus mechanism. Um, Gloria, we know that there's a lot that happens in Bitcoin Core that isn't necessarily related to consensus. And a lot of the, the job of the repository is to manage details that are related to that. So how are the two different? Yeah, I think when people think about protocol, they often think about consensus rules. Uh, so like scripting rules, for example. 
Um, and then the next most obvious thing would be the P2P protocol, like what messages are sent and understood by the all Bitcoin nodes. Um, but there's so much, that's only like a small fraction of what Bitcoin D is, which is also a small portion of, or a major, but not the full portion of what Bitcoin Core is. Um, and people often say like, oh, Bitcoin development's so slow, but there's like dozens of PRs merged every day. There's bugs fixed every day. And I, don't, I just don't think it's true. I find it very hard to keep up with all the pull requests and issues that are open to the Bitcoin Core repo. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a lot, a lot more than consensus. And a lot of the biggest impacts that we can have at a protocol development level are not actually in consensus, right? Um, Peter Willa is known for many consensus changes, but I would even say that his biggest contribution is UltraPrune, um, AKA turning the state from, let's look at what outputs are available in the blockchain and instead just keep a small UTXO set. And that I think did more for scalability than almost any, or more than any consensus change that we've had. Um, likewise, I guess I'm going to show my own bags. Package Relay is not a consensus change. It does require a lot of community, like, consensus. Not consensus, consensus, but, like, you know, agreement. Um, but it, is, it, is, it would also be a very impactful change. So hopefully my message is consensus is overrated, <laughs> and there's a lot we can do without requiring a soft work. There's also a lot of things within Bitcoin Core that like, uh, so since I work mostly in the wallet, these are going to be some wallet examples. But like we do things in the wallet, uh, some new innovation, and then other wallet software will, you know, pick them up, see that they're good ideas and use them. And that's not, that's also not a consensus change. And in, in fact, it doesn't even really require agreements between different software. But, uh, you know, there are, there are, there's a large component of Bitcoin Core where we make changes that are basically local, and then other people also pick them up because they seem like good ideas. And you know, vice versa. We've taken some ideas from other people as well. So Jeremy, I know you've spent a lot of time on OpCTV, among many other things, um, but specifically OpCTV in terms of consensus development. Can you just walk us through the process of um, how changes to consensus are, are proposed? Uh, yeah, uh, I, I would if I like knew what it was. I think that there, it's kind of funny because we have like this whole like you know, uh, BIP process, and that's something that uh, you know Luke knows a lot about because he's the BIP editor. But there's really no uh, fixed set of things that you have to do, say, or talk about. It's sort of this uh, you know maybe rough process where you just decide you, you know kind of like you're the uh, the, who's the gopher who comes out and looks at his shadow and is like, you know, is winter going to keep on going? You just poke your head out and see if people shout at you and what they shout at you about. And then you're like, okay, like, it's going to be in another six weeks. Or you're like, actually, maybe it's going to be another six years or something so like that. So does that make you Bill Murray? <laughs> uh, I definitely sometimes identify with the notion of doing the same thing every day and the same thing happens. So <laughs> I would say maybe, yeah, I'll take it. That's funny. Um, so, you know, as Gloria was talking about earlier, Bitcoin D is composed of a lot of different components. It does a lot of different things. Um, 
it's the one piece of software that people participating in, in Bitcoin have to run. So I think it might be useful to go through and enumerate the different parts of Bitcoin D. So um, just in quick succession here, let's start with Carl and kind of go down the list and, and have each of you talk briefly about one component of Bitcoin. Well, um, yeah, so like, um, yeah, I can, I can talk about the consensus engine, I guess, or, or what people would call validation. Um, so you guys know how like Bitcoin has a blockchain um, and so, you know, um, the blockchain has to be kept somewhere and basically it, uh, it's kept in what we call validation code or what I like to call sort of the consensus engine. Um, it keeps track of um, all of the blocks. It keeps track of all the, you know, UTXOs, which are basically, you know, the coins. Um, and what it also does is it defines what it means to be Bitcoin, basically. It defines, it's the arbiter of truth of whether, you know, a transaction or a block or, or something is valid, which makes it a critical part of Bitcoin. Um, and all of the uh, consensus engines across all of the nodes on the network basically have to agree for, you know, consensus to be formed. And if they disagree, then, you know, that's what we call it sort of an unintentional fork, and that's bad. Um, so yeah, that, that's what the consensus engine or validation is. Just picking apart at random, the mining module essentially decides which transactions the miners going to put into a block they might potentially find. So when a miner finds a block, it has a certain list of transactions, which the miners can put any transactions they want, but the mining module figures out what the uh, best Cool. I'll talk about P2P, I guess, which is where I think a lot of the ideological values of Bitcoin kind of come to life in code form, which makes it very interesting. Uh, so this idea of like, oh, it should be permissionless, but not just that, it should be censorship resistant. Anyone should be able to join the P2P network and broadcast their transactions. But that also makes P2P's security model like extra hard mode because we want anyone to be able to join and we don't want to be able to tell who's who, but also there are going to be bad guys. We have to uh, expect that. And that allows for very interesting, uh, very anxiety-driven development sometimes. Um, it makes review kind of spicier and yeah, we're always thinking about privacy and security and DOS attacks. So that's, cool. that's my pitch for P2P. Uh, I guess I'll, I'll go into the mempool, which is the you know, list of transactions that are to be confirmed into a block. Um, it sort of serves as the glue between the last three modules you heard about of consensus, the thing that gets finalized, mining, how we pick the things to finalize from the mempool, and then also P2P, like how we get things into the mempool to give to those other two modules and then use the mempool to also figure out what to put into the P2P network ourselves. Uh, and so the mempool is, uh, at least I view it as sort of like this central plane for all of Bitcoin where it sort of touches all the different parts and uh, it uh, you know, stores all the transactions that you might ever do in Bitcoin and each node has their own mempool. There's no one global mempool, but there's also a you know, philosophical mempool of all the transactions that somebody in the world somewhere knows about. And uh, of course, I'll talk about my favorite thing, the wallet. Of course, everything else we've just talked about wouldn't matter if 
you didn't have a wallet to make transactions. So Store value. <laughs> well, you still need a wallet. So uh, the Bitcoin Core wallet, um, you know, it does things like manage your UTXOs, manage keys, uh, figure out what addresses, what scripts to be watching for. Um, and <clears throat> I find it to be actually very scary to be working on the wallet because uh, it's like the, the one thing that users interact with a lot. And then if you do it wrong, you might actually end up losing people's money. And of course, you never want to lose someone's money, which is so. So the wallet is, is a pretty big component. And, and there's a lot of work going into making sure that things are secure, um, that funds are still available, and that we don't like do anything weird with it. And there are many other components that are, are um, fairly crucial to running Bitcoin, like the RPC interface, the, the graphic user interface, that maybe are sort of non-essential, but, um, but niceties that, uh, that help everything run. Um, so uh, let's turn now to um, the development process itself. Um, working on Bitcoin is, you know, notoriously, um, I don't want to say difficult, but it, it definitely has uh, unique attributes that make it uh, time consumptive to work on. So, um, Carl, how, how have you found doing large projects on Bitcoin Core, and um, why do you think the review process is, is so um, intense? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, this is logic that I've heard from other people, and I, I think I agree with sort of on the surface is sort of, you know, if we just sort of walk away from Bitcoin, you know, it still kind of works, um, you know, maybe default compilers would change and, and, and all of that, but it so kind of works. And which is why I think that, you know, Bitcoin has such a uh, conservative, <laughs> you know, model of reviewing PRs and, and getting getting them through. Not not to say that I, I, I fully agree with that or agree with the lean or anything. So I, I think that's what it is. Um, I think personally, when I'm trying to get across large changes, um, what has been really important is just like getting the rationale up, you know, um, you know, get, uh, writing a big document about the rationales, the FAQs, sort of socialize the change, um, breaking up into little reviewable pieces, which has been sort of like uh, a, a culture that has developed over the years as review has become more and more um, stringent. Um, and um, well, one thing that I found to be really helpful is sort of um, dealing with and talking with people about, you know, potential flaws or, or, or potential downsides or potential alternative strategies sort of uh, up front. I find that, that that really helps get people across the line after they've had a lot of context. Yeah. That's great. Gloria, um, a lot of your projects require um, Coordination, deep thinking, you know, trying to sort of emulate how uh, mempool policy changes and peer-to-peer -peer policy changes will kind of um, ripple out through the network. You know, how do you feel that developing for that part of the system differs from, you know, other, other tasks in Bitcoin? Right, yeah, I think a lot of people underestimate the amount of advocacy work that you have to do, even just to change something that doesn't require anyone to to coordinate, right? Like, I, I think it's kind of understated how bad it would be if we, you know, merged a change that had an assertion 
that is not supposed to be hit but could potentially be hit if you know, a peer sends us something in particular. Because then you have a crash bug where someone can attack the network and just shut down all of the nodes running that version with that bug in it. You know, and sometimes we change something here and something breaks over there, right? Like, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty, I think we should, we should be careful about changing things. Um, so I'm on the, I guess I'm more on the conservative side of uh, development. Um, but yeah, like with policy and P2P, uh, with, yeah, with policy changes, the, I guess policy exists in this gray area, and we can, we can both speak to this, where like there are no, there are no. <laughs> what, what is policy? Okay, sure. So <laughs> policy is the set of validation rules that we apply to unconfirmed transactions. Uh, so not transactions and blocks, but ones that we receive on P2P. Uh, or through the wallet, for example. Um, and they're local to a node. Usually the user is able to configure them, and we do hope that people uh, stick to the defaults because it's more safe. But you know, if you're a miner, for example, and you have more resources, you can afford to like, make your mempool uh, have a higher maximum dynamic memory like, limit, right? Um, but yeah, the, that's why there's this kind of gray area. You cannot really expect people to adhere to a certain policy. And for example, in Lightning, they might take some liberties in like using, you know, a few bits of the end sequence field to uh, to communicate the ordering of transactions in their channel, for example, right? Um, or I, I think, you know, we've we've tried to say like, oh, maybe we should make this non-standard, but actually. You know, colored coins is using this to like flag certain transactions in a certain way. Um, so th this is kind of this like no man's land where um, people can use it for their purposes. Um, and that's why it requires so much coordination when we try to change policy, because if we accidentally make something non-standard and like 99% of nodes on the network are Bitcoin Core, and then 99% of those nodes are running default policy, well, you cannot really expect your transactions to propagate if you're relying on something that you know, the Bitcoin Core developers unilaterally decided to, uh, to make non-standard, right? Um, which is why we don't unilaterally decide that. Um, but it, you know, it, I think it's, it's good to, to have this you know, usable space for people to develop applications, of course. Um, and that's why it's so important to have a nice communication between, you know, protocol or L1 and L2, because this is an interface that we rely on um, to, to make the ecosystem work. Like, obviously, we cannot scale to millions of transactions per block. So we rely on these applications, such as Lightning, uh, to scale. But also, you know, if if the the first layer is broken or if transaction propagation doesn't work the way it's supposed to, then maybe Lightning is vulnerable to ping attacks, for example. So as time has gone on, I've seen for myself that it feels sometimes as though um, development in Bitcoin Core has become more arduous. Um, and, and that sort of makes sense that the process would get a little bit more heavyweight as the value of the network grows, say. Um, but I know there are a lot of early developers who um, feel that it's very difficult to work on the code now. Um, and, it, and it continues to 
grow in difficulty. Um, Jeremy, can you talk a little bit about you know, whether, that's, whether there's good reason for that and how we might be able to keep the development process safe but also kind of nimble and approachable? Yeah, I, I think that I have a pretty specific take on Currently, a, a lot of Bitcoin core development uh, happens more as an artisan process than an engineering process. And I would delineate the two if you want to think about building a bridge, where an artisan process, you might be more concerned with like the uh, aesthetic detail of like what is the color of the bridge, what's the molding on the bridge look like, uh, are we using you know, uh, teak wood or something like that. And the engineering concerns would be asking questions of like how many cars need to be going, what's the load, what's the peak load, how many lanes do we need, and, and those would be things that would be more concrete engineering constraints. And I think the reason why there, there's a difference and why Bitcoin ends up being a little bit more artisan and we could benefit by being more engineering driven is in an engineering driven process, you can define some sort of uh, objective acceptance criteria for is this bridge a, a satisfying bridge for our, our need? Um, and you know, if it is, you can proceed. I think Bitcoin as a community, we've been very resistant to having uh, standard processes required uh, because people view a standard bar for something as something that an adversary might be able to say, I've met the bar, and the bar that I met was for introducing a bug, and everybody can see that it's a bug, but now there's a standard thing that was satisfied by it, and now we're screwed because we said we would accept anything that met that bar. I don't think we have to commit ourselves so strongly to that, but I do think that by having uh, better standards, that means that you have things like a pre-flight checklist of like, uh, one example of something I think is maybe a new idea would be like, uh, any peer-to-peer -peer or like policy change that we implement, we should back test against every previous block that the, we would be able to relay all the transactions that come in the next block into the mempool. And there are obviously non-standard blocks that get mined, but what that would give us would be to say, okay, if we're introducing a new thing, anytime we introduce any policy, we should always have a back test that tells us if there are new transactions that previously would have been okay, right? And that's the sort of thing where in your, if you're in an engineering process, you can define more of these criteria, and the more criteria that you have, it's actually, even though it's more arduous, because you're saying, well, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, it's actually easier because you know exactly what you have to demonstrate, uh, and you can work towards a concrete goal. And I think as long as developers aren't trying to adversarially be like, I'm going to come up with a rule that's not going to trigger this test, and then I'm going, I think you can actually get more confidence in the review process. And so I think that that's something where the solution to make it less arduous is to get more strenuous, if that makes sense. I don't think it's very safe to just have like a checklist. I, I know that's not exactly what you're saying, but like security is not a, oh, if we meet all these checkboxes, it's secure. Um, there's always like, I, I think it's yeah. more about developing this kind of like adversarial thinking when reviewing code. And that's not something you can really just. I, teach. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you that you can't just purely rely on your checklist. I think that um, we just have uh, kind of like empirical evidence that like things like checklists and actually like, you know, redundant checklists for like mission critical things in like aerospace do reduce critical failures. Um, and they make sure that when you're doing something, you never let yourself rest on an assumption of like, oh, this is a small change. We don't need to audit it in this way. It's, you always are saying, well, it might be a small change, but we still have to go through all of these steps, no matter how big or small we think it is. And so it doesn't let you skip any of the things in between. And, and in terms of code review, one thing that I've heard recently is that like, apparently a, a large number of developers maybe like mostly review the tests 
when they're looking at a code change rather than like reviewing line by line every piece of the code. And that was like really surprising to me because I usually almost never look at the tests and I always go line by line through the code. And I think that that's something where at least understanding like, well, if you're acting, you actually should have gone through line by line of the code and at least read every single line before you act is something that like maybe is like a, a checklist type thing that would be you know, an improvement. That, that so, seems pretty obvious, yeah. But I guess people don't do it, <laughs> so I don't know. So like a ne necessary but not sufficient checklist is? Yeah, I think, I think that's something where like, yeah, it's more annoying if any time you want to approve a pull request and you're saying it's an act, yeah. that, you, that you have like, you know, like 10 tick boxes that you have to do and it's like, did you review every line of the code? You know, and if you didn't, it's fine. You, you know, but you know, it's like it would just mean it would get more information of like, have we actually satisfied, you know, the the pre-flight checklist? Yeah, because yeah, yeah. there's a, there's a big space between um, what we can do with static analysis. Um, so, for example, like you know, for the CI system, that's basically a checklist, right? It's an automated checklist um, versus sort of the, there's a big spectrum between that and what you have to you know, think about on like a design level when it comes to P2P and stuff, right? So you, know, you, you could have you know, things in the middle which are not yet automatable, but is somewhat you know, just, you, know, you can describe it, let's say, fully, um, and you can have a checklist. For, I, God, I, I would love to have that for bash scripts and things that shell tech can't, uh, can't, can't, can't catch and, and modular dependencies and stuff, which are not, you know, Enforceable. Yeah, for example, you know, when Jeremy was talking about the idea of backtesting um, transaction broadcast based on historical blocks, I think that's a great check, and, and you could probably write a functional test. Well, that's difficult because the, you know. It's, it's going to take a few it's hours. It's going to take a few hours, so it's <laughs> right. almost this, this zone between, you know, functional test and um, something that someone would do manually yeah. where, you know, you might have a simulation framework or something to, to, right. to check some of those things. So I think that's, that could be a really valuable project for somebody looking to get involved with Bitcoin is to... Kind of, already... um, focus on the testing regime between those two. Sorry. Um, so talking about the development process and maybe some of the, the, the difficulties associated with it, um, one of the ways that you know, this, this could be resolved, and Luke, you know, I think the route that you've taken is that you have your own implementation of Bitcoin, a fork of Bitcoin called Bitcoin Knots. And um, you know, obviously you can make the argument against that that um, uh, having uh, an implementation that's unilaterally controlled by a single person is risky, um, that you know, having multiple implementations in the first place comes with some non-obvious risks. But how would you make the case that that's actually sort of a good thing to be doing? That basically gets all the, uh, everything that would be a good idea to merge. I mean, probably safe is merged into Bitcoin Nuts, whereas Bitcoin Core releases take the more careful and extra careful review approach. And so the users have the options between, do they want to have something that takes this extra careful approach, or do they just want to have something that has all the latest and greatest and hopefully safe enough? Right, so it could function, I guess, as a good test bed, maybe. Um, right, it can be used in a lot of ways, potentially as testing and other. Great. Um, yeah, I would, the, I would like to add on to that. Um, so. Um, the the project that I've been working on is called Libbitcoin Kernel, and it's um, it's it's a project to extract sort of the consensus engine out of uh, Bitcoin Core. And one of the rationales or one of the problems that we're sort of trying to solve is that people have 
different, and, and as, they, as Gloria has mentioned, like people have different expectations for how they want um, you know, their mempool or their validation or, 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 or sorry, <laughs> mempool and sort of the, the, the rest of the code, like wallet or GUI or, or, or RPC and, and all of that to act. And, and as, as, as Luke has said, you know, perhaps they want to be more you know, experimental or have you know, features that perhaps um, can't get into Bitcoin Core, right? So <clears throat> the options right now for experimenters like that are, you know, you either go through as, uh, I hope we've painted a picture of um, PR review being very stringent, let's say. Um, you either go through with PR review and try to get it into Bitcoin Core, which is hard, but also is a, you know, a, a burden on maintainers, right? This is not a piece of code that you write and then that's, that's it. We have to maintain it throughout time. Um, so you either do that, um, you either fork Bitcoin Core, which is what Luke does, and, and, and every release you have to rebase, and perhaps you know, Bitcoin Core structures it in a way that now makes it really hard for this critical feature that, that you have. And I think Luke has run into that problem before. Um, and, and, and then the third way is just to sort of re-implement Bitcoin Core, right? And, and if you re-implement Bitcoin, then you are sure to get, almost certain to get sort of um, consensus incompatibilities, which, you know, as I just described before, consensus incompatibilities is what leads to, um, you know, unforeseen or unexpected bugs, which is, you know, sort of what keeps all of us up at night, I would, I would say. Um, and so, having this sort of um, extracting out sort of the part that defines consensus allows experimenters, and you know, I, I, I think it speaks to the strength of our community that we have people who want to experiment, have people who want to implement features, have people who want to tweak parameters. Um, it sort of allows people to experiment with that and not have to worry about the you know, consensus compatibility part, not have to sort of try to cram it into Bitcoin Core and make it a burden on everybody else, and not have to um, you know, do, uh, do, do the fork. Thing. So I, I, you know, I, I, on a personal note, I'm, I'm very, very happy that you know, there are experimenters out there and I think we should encourage them. So I think your project, Live Bitcoin Kernel, is one of the most exciting uh, initiatives ongoing in Bitcoin Core now because you could really see the inner workings of consensus packaged up very nicely in a format that allows people to build a lot of the policy components or optional components of Bitcoin kind of mm -hmm. in, in the way that they like to without risking some, some kind of major consensus fault. So with, with that um, under consideration, Carl, how do you see Bitcoin Core's scope kind of expanding or contracting over, say, the next five years? What do you think will ultimately be a part of the Bitcoin Core process? Um, I, and, and this is just me speaking personally, is, is I, I would hope that sort of th there is a, the project is to basically delineate a clear boundary between what is consensus and what, what is not, right? And you know, the, the, the big problem right now is that when we make a change, because everything is all tangled up into this like spaghetti monster mess, um, when we make a change, we don't know if it'll uh, you know, affect consensus. And, and, and sometimes, you know, to Jerry's Mee's point, we probably need a checklist for this. Sometimes we introduce like a, a block filter and then it becomes part of consensus and you're like, okay, what? Um, so I think be, you know, delineating 
that boundary means that um, it's a technical change, I think, to sort of a social problem where now we can have more eyes on the consensus critical part and, um, you know, and, and the sort of outside realm can be swapped out and, and you know, we, we won't have to have like, I mean, we, ha we just have too many flags right now. I mean, we don't have to have like, you know, 100 flags just for, you know, all the, all, the, all the use cases that people have. And that I think will be able to, that will make the review process easier because people now know what is consensus critical and what is not, right? And, and it'll make uh, things a lot smoother in a social sense, I think. So, Andrew, you work a lot on the wallet. You're the wallet maintainer. You know, the wallet is one of those parts of Bitcoin that um, is not consensus critical, uh, but is still very crucial to crucial. using Bitcoin. And it's something where the design space is very open. So you obviously have a number of different wallet implementations. How do you see the repo evolving over, say, the next five years? What components do you think will be in there? What, what won't be, maybe? So... I think uh, eventually what we want to have is to have the wallet be a separate repository and it uses the interface exposed by Lib Bitcoin kernel or whatever the, the node part stuff remains. And we've actually observed this with the GUI, kind of, where, the, where all the work on the GUI is actually occurring in a different repository where it, you know, it has its own issues, has its own pull requests. Uh, and that, just, that also makes it easier to keep track of uh, what's going on and uh, makes it easier for people who care about the GUI to uh, work on it. Uh, same thing I expect to happen to the wallet and maybe some other components of Bitcoin Core as well. So as we, we break it up a little bit so that you know, people can focus on the things that they care about without you know, having things get lost in 100 PRs of, of something completely different. Um, and yeah, so I, I expect that there will be uh, a, a wallet repo in the future once we get you know, lib Bitcoin kernel or multi-process uh, implemented. Uh, can, do you mind if I try something? Absolutely, uh, yeah. How many people here run a Bitcoin node? Great. Wow. How many people here uh, use the Bitcoin GUI? Okay. How many people here use the Bitcoin wallet? Bitcoin core wallet? Okay, good number. How many people here run a transaction index? Okay. Uh, how, what, what's another good optional thing? Block filter index? Yeah, who runs a block filter index? <laughs> Okay, a few people, right? So all Does any, these, Sorry. Oh. Does anyone configure their mempool differently from defaults? <laughs> one one, one person. You, two. Okay, you, 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 you all have to come talk to Gloria afterwards. <laughs> we do not know anybody who does this, and it would be really good to know what you're putting in, and we'll talk about like maybe why you really have introduced a vulnerability for yourself by doing so. So, yeah. <laughs> I'd like to repurpose um, the remainder of this panel to just poll the audience about what features they actually Yeah, no, well, well so to bring it back to what, what these guys are talking about, and I think about this too, is that we are shipping a lot of code on your computers that you're not running, and we would like to give you the minimal possible thing that's going to do what you're actually using. Like probably most of you said you were running a node, which is like tremendous, but then all the other things were really a little bit more specialized, and what would be really good is if we could have this thing that's just a node that you can run, and then these other things you actually can get maybe a uh, more competition among service providers for that functionality, which if we're all capitalists, who here's a capitalist? Okay, uh, that's good, most of us. Um, so if we're, you know, we think maybe that will get us a better end result, you know, eventually. So I think that that's sort of maybe the motivation for some of this. Yeah, and I also think then you can ship more versions of the GUI and wallet, uh, and not have to rely on Bitcoin Core releases. Who here likes dark faster. mode? 
Yeah, maybe you get <laughs> dark mode faster. <laughs> Luke, you looked like you wanted to jump in there and say something. Yeah, I just wanted to point out that I disagree with uh, Gloria and Jeremy in the, that I think it would be ideal if every user decided their own policies for themselves. We have defaults, but they really shouldn't be used as some kind of consensus rules. Relying on them to be identical across the network is insecure and really should be considered a security risk in general. Uh, so I, I think that there is like, uh, you know, the, the difference of what we're saying would be like, imagine you have your, uh, uh, your wallet.dat file, and the setting that you choose is to make it readable by anybody on the network. You know, and, and like, uh, like that would be if you're like putting, if you're selecting the folder for your wallet.dat as like a shared open public file, like that would be an insecure setting, right? Yeah, and then, and then for consensus, there are things that are similar where if you like picked a really bad parameter, like, you know, or, or even for policy, that our implementations just can't handle those parameters. To a large extent, we avoid policy settings like that. Well, I, that's why it's configurable, right? We have like startup options for you to change it. But like, you know, yeah, you're right. Feel free to use your config options. But we try to make the default as safe as possible. I, like right now, though, it's it's kind of hard to change your own options. You have to, you know, make the Bitcoin.com file and know what, uh, how to format the lines and put all the right options there. Um, at least, you know, if you're using the GUI. Uh, there's almost no way to change any of like your relay options from within the GUI itself. So it, it's... Bitcoin Nuts does have several GUI options for that. Hopefully it'll eventually get into core. There's a few PRs Yeah, the, there's some work there that no one has reviewed. None of them are using the GUI, though. <laughs> <laughs> True. So with the remaining three minutes, uh, I thought that maybe we could turn to... Um, ways that you guys think we might be able to grow the developer ecosystem at Bitcoin Core and just increase the health of, of the project. So I'll just open it up to the group if there's anything in particular you think we could do. Yeah, I have a few ideas. If there's anyone in the audience that's interested in contributing to Bitcoin Core and maybe doing it full-time in the future, uh, there's this great thing called PR Review Club BitcoinCore.reviews. We do a weekly meeting where we pick a Bitcoin Core PR, and there's a host. Uh, it's not always me. Um, there's a host that will come up with a list of notes as well as questions. So you kind of get an opinionated tour through this area of the code base and hopefully walk through some questions that start to build up your mental model of what adversarial thinking looks like when you're reviewing a PR in Bitcoin Core. Um, and, you know, hopefully as you've done, you know, maybe if you do like five to ten of these review clubs, you've gotten a good breadth of different areas of the code base um, and you find one that you want to dig into very deep and maybe you write a functional test that tests something that uh, very specific that we, we don't have coverage for yet or a unit test or whatever it is. Um, and, then you and then you look through the issues and you find there are many features and bugs in that particular area of the code base that we don't have enough people to, to work on. Um, anyway, uh, all I wanted to do was show PR Review Club, BitcoinCore.reviews. Uh, I guess I'll be annoying again and just say, who here, if there were not an obstacle to it, would like to be a Bitcoin Core developer? Okay. Uh, you know, come find us and like tell us what the obstacle is that might be stopping you from doing that, and like we'll try and find a pathway to like making you, you know, do that thing. 
And for what it's worth, I think there's a lot of funding out there at this point. There's probably more funding out there than you think. And, and it's, it's just been so fantastic to see companies in Bitcoin step up and, and provide those resources. So if you're kind of on the margin, if you want to get involved, um, really do consider it. Get into, into touch with any of us, and we can try and point you in the right directions. Um, but uh, it's a really great time to be a Bitcoin developer, so, uh, so, so please consider it. And uh, I would just say you don't have to be smart. You just have to keep on trying. Absolutely. Persistence <laughs> is totally underrated. You can always use more reviewers. Always use you more know, You don't necessarily need to be able to code, but if you can read code, reading code is very different from writing code. So more reviewers is great. I think you know it's worth mentioning. People don't often acknowledge that the, the main bottleneck in Bitcoin Core is, is getting suitable review because nobody wants to merge code that uh, hasn't been scrutinized, hasn't, hasn't you know, um, been analyzed by a lot of people working on the project. So. Get involved, um, and, and there are a number of ways you can review. You can just download the code and run it and build it. You don't you know, even necessarily have to, uh, to try and understand the code if you're doing something to add to the process. Um, so great, we're out of time. Well, we've got, oh yeah, we're, okay, now we're going up on the time. We're out of time. Number go up. Timer go up. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to thank all of our wonderful panelists. Uh, I want to thank you guys for, for coming to this. I hope it was uh, enjoyable. All right, let's go ahead and get started. So my name is D++, and the topic for today's panel is Decentralized Exchanges, or DEX for short. Now I'm thrilled to be here on stage at Bitcoin Miami 2022. Specifically, I'm thrilled to be on the best stage, the <laughs> open source stage. Yeah. This is the real Bitcoin stage. <laughs> Just very quickly about me, I'm a Bitcoin educator. My aim is to bring simple education to the next billion folks. I have a, I have a background in computer engineering. I've worked as an entrepreneur and a coding professor before I devoted my life to Bitcoin maximalism and Bitcoin education. Now, before we dive into the questions on today's topic, I'd love it if our lovely panelists could quickly introduce themselves. Uh, hi, I'm Chris Stewart. I'm the founder of a company called Shirdbits, and I'm here for Spicy Takes. Hey, I'm Josef Kitex, at Josef on Twitter, and I'm an analyst and economist at Trezor. Hey, I'm Liz. Uh, I work on Mempool Space, BISC, uh, Bitcoin TV, and a bunch of other projects. It's great to be here. Hey there, Daniel Buckner. I work at TBD at Block uh, on decentralized identity and protocols. Awesome. So, speaking of Block and TBDEX, Daniel, this question is for you. Um, I've gone through the white paper. I, I really think Satoshi was onto something with this whole six-page white paper thing. Can we make that a standard, <laughs> just generally? That'd be great. Um, but that said, can you explain like I'm five, distill it into something that, um, maybe explain like I'm four. What is TBDEX? <laughs> can you walk me through it? Yeah, absolutely. So it's a decentralized value exchange protocol, a generalized protocol. 
um, where you can really exchange any things of value between participants who can locate each other using uh, a protocol based on distributed systems and decentralized identity. For the first type of value exchange we're focused on is fiat on and off ramps and being able to get you know, people to exchange Bitcoin you know, for dollars or whatever the local currency is. Um, the interesting thing about the exchange itself is that it, it gives the ability to transfer reputation and trust so in, in a way that's standards-based. So we use centralized identifiers, verifiable credentials. Um, doesn't mean that participants have to require reputation and trust if they don't want to. It's completely optional. But if they do require something, um, they, they can totally do so. So you know, if it's a bank, they probably will require some sort of credential. Um, if it's not, if it's like peers, they, they might not. They might just require peer reputation. Um, an interesting thing about the protocol is that it's actually useful even beyond the stage of fiat. So imagine we're in a hyper-Bitcoinized world and you want to buy a car with Bitcoin. Well, it turns out that this value exchange protocol um, can cover that use case in the sense that you might be able to locate and find you know, all the cars available out there. And then you want to know that the car you know, that you're buying is backed by, you know, it's, it's the uh, pink slip, right, is valid. And the person has money in their account, right? So these are things that you can exchange as reputational proofs um, in the process. And the last thing I'll note is that the protocol is built on a generalized decentralized app platform. So this is kind of the first app we're building on top of it. And we'll have more news about that platform uh, in the coming months. OK, uh, let me say it back to you. Yeah. So TVDEX is a messaging protocol mm -hmm. that I can use to discover people um, or financial institutions. So. If I'm using it to discover other people, could it be used in a peer-to-peer -peer sort of local Bitcoin type of way? Absolutely, yeah. So the, the protocol, the use of decentralized identifiers in the protocol enables you to find any participants in whatever type of value exchange you want to do, um, whether it's currency or just any other type of good, um, and then be able to communicate with them privately, securely, and encrypted, uh, exchange reputational proofs, and sort of come to agreement about you know, selling and buying of, of any type of goods. Okay, so I can discover other people. So let's say Alice and Bob, mm -hmm. our friends Alice and Bob, meet by way of the TBDEX protocol. So they can transact Bitcoin, of course. What other types of things can Alice and Bob do now that they've found each other? It's so romantic. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, this question is for Chris. What else could they do now? Um. Yeah, once they've, they've found each other, uh, they, they can build things like discrete log contracts. But what I, what I have to say to the audience is that what I think Bitcoiners get right is uh, they're really focused on censorship-resistant money. Um, and I think we all in this room agree that that's kind of one of the core principles of Bitcoin. You can spend your Bitcoin how you want to. What I think Bitcoiners get wrong is uh, they stop at censorship-resistant money and don't advocate for censorship-resistant financial markets. What my understanding of TBD is and BISC, which Wiz works on, um, is that's what they're providing is censorship resistant financial markets where people can trade different things. Um, Bitcoiners sometimes get up in arms about what's being traded on these censorship resistant financial markets because it's a token they don't like or it's economic activity that they aren't fans of. But um, you know, if something's censorship resistant, you can't pick and choose uh, what you like and what you don't like. It's a platform e either everybody can use for everything or nobody can use because it's gonna get coerced and co-opted by a government or a large corporation. Okay, so then on that topic of censorship resistance, I feel like we're all gonna have something to say on this and it's important to everyone here. 
but Wiz, how does censorship resistance play into BISC? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, BISC is basically a decentralized exchange platform, which means that it's a peer-to-peer -peer network running over Tor, where everyone running the BISC node software on their computer connects to each other and exchanges the order books. And this allows users to make offers or take offers and uh, connect to each other. And because there is no uh, centralized servers anywhere, it just uh, you know, achieves uh, censorship resistance by being decentralized in nature. There's no uh, BISC office or BISC company to shut down. It's more of a trade protocol. OK, so can it be stopped? Can it be shut down? Um, I guess if um, Tor had some issues, uh, which has happened in the past, sure. Um, I mean, BISC is um, also governed by a, a DAO to um, manage the parameters of the network, like uh, what the trading fees are and like this, and uh, other uh, limits or payment methods. These are all controlled by the DAO, which has a um, kind of like a, a unique governance structure. Um, basically, they have their own uh, shitcoin token where they do the voting. <laughs> and uh, they, DAO stakeholders can vote to change certain parameters, um, but the DAO stakeholders are not known. And so because of their uh, relative anonymity and the decentralized nature, it's not easily censorable. OK. Uh, do you think the shitcoin token is really necessary? Uh, no, personally, I don't. Um, I don't. I don't use it. I, I'm a Bitcoiner, you know. Uh, and, and you don't need to use their shitcoin to use BISC. You can just uh, pay the trade fees in, in good old sats, and it works great. It's only if you really want to participate in the governance of the network, which is mostly just the contributors anyway, at the end of the day. So I'm curious for the audience, how many of you are customers of BISC? How many of you are passionate about peer-to-peer -peer Bitcoin exchange generally? How many of you find local Bitcoiners in your area and exchange cash for Bitcoin? And how many of you earn Bitcoin and get paid in Bitcoin, which is one of the best ways of getting KYC-free Bitcoin. So Pete, speaking of KYC, Wiz, I'm sure you're going to have a hot take on this as well. Um, you know, there is illicit activity happening on Bitcoin. And the illicit activity is KYC, <laughs> know your customer. Is KYC going to be necessary on decentralized exchanges? No, if it's a peer-to-peer -peer exchange, then um, the only two people who need to know about each other are the, the two counterparties of the transaction. Um, because it's, it's purely decentralized in nature and there is no regulator um, enforcing any rules, it's purely peer-to-peer. -peer. So uh, it's kind of like Craigslist if you post an ad to sell your sofa and someone buys it. The only two people who know about the details of that transaction are the buyer and the seller. And that's exactly how it works on BISC. The only person you send your uh, bank details, for example, would be to the other guy. And it's not in either of those parties' interest to snitch on each other. So uh, it achieves a very nice level of privacy and uh, also censorship resistance this way. Um, can, uh, yeah. I just want to chime in here because I think it's like a really important point uh, what Wiz is bringing up here is like you can start with something that's um, censorship resistant and doesn't have AML KYC at the base layer, and you can always add it on top if that's a feature that is required. And I think that's an acceptable trade-off. But if you bake in like all these like regulations at the base layer, you can never have something that's no AML KYC on top of that. So getting these like 
levels of the stack engineered correctly are really important. And that's like kind of one of the core innovations of Bitcoin, in my opinion, is we have this censorship resistant money, this strictly a proto computer protocol, and we can build you know, financial institutions on top of it. And you know, many financial institutions have been super successful built on top of Bitcoin, but we can't go uh, the opposite way. So when thinking about designing these things, it's super important to get the base level right without you know, these, these things baked in. And if you wanna add them on top, go for it. And that's my two sats on that. All right, why don't we back up? We've talked about TBDEX, but why don't we start with why? Why decentralized exchanges? Why does this matter and why should we care? Um, Yosef, I'd love to hear from you. Yeah, so uh, decentralized exchanges for me are important for three reasons. First is uh, you are actually forced to self-custody your Bitcoin from the start because uh, these exchanges never hold your keys for you. And um, unfortunately, the default setting for centralized exchanges is they are the custodians and people tend to not withdraw their coins. So that's the first one, self-custody. The second one is you actually get to use Bitcoin as a protocol because on centralized exchanges, you usually just buy some kind of weird financial derivative that's uh, maybe uh, settleable in like physical Bitcoin if you withdraw, but most people don't withdraw from these exchanges, so they don't actually get to use Bitcoin, whereas at BISC, you use uh, multisig, you are confronted with uh, like handling your private keys and with minor fees and stuff. And the third one is the privacy aspect. There is no KYC. Uh, only the counterparty knows some of your details, but there is no reason to snitch, as we said. And uh, yeah, KYC is this whole, uh, like, like we said, that's the illicit activity. That's the thing because it stays with you. And once you KYC yourself, uh, it's hard to get rid of uh, because uh, these exchanges employ uh, like the chain analytic companies and uh, privacy in Bitcoin is hard. And if you like uh, dox yourself at the start, uh, it's very hard to uh, correct that. Yeah, that's a great topic actually of privacy in general. I'm, I'm curious for Wiz, what kind of privacy information would I be concerned about, say, leaking to my counterparty if I'm exchanging peer-to-peer -peer on BISC? Yeah, that's a good question. It really depends on the payment method. Um, the most private might be uh, meeting in person at the Starbucks and just handing cash to someone. Um, there's also a U.S. Postal money order. You can like physically mail a money order to someone for like a thousand bucks, and uh, the post office website allows you to verify that the money order serial number and the amount, everything was cashed or not cashed. So you can, uh, you know, verify um, without going through the banking system, but also be able to send the money. Of course, if you use a payment method like a bank transfer, then you'll need to send your bank account details to the counterparty, but. Um, it's not really in, in the uh, other guy's interest to, um, you know, save those or, or dox you for any reason. So there's different trade-offs with different payment methods. Uh, some of them are faster or slower. Some of them are more expensive or cheaper. Some of them are more private or less private. Um, and it also depends on the country. If you're, you know, in Japan, for example, you can actually do anonymous bank transfers. Um, if you're in the U.S., the postal money order is excellent, um, but, but every country has their own uh, localized payment method, so it really depends on your threat model, I guess. So cash in the mail, cash in person. 
I mean, I don't own any Bitcoin, but if I did, uh, <laughs> a lot of people in the crowd do, though. Apparently. If you know, if I did, I would use the uh, the U.S. Postal Money Order System on Bisc. It's uh, it's pretty cool because it's basically how people sent money to each other before banks were uh, what they are today, and uh, because the post office has this really cool website where you can verify everything, um, you know, no one can claim that you didn't send them the money or everything. Like it shows what post office it was cashed at and everything. So it's really uh, well-built for um, BISC users in the United States. I noticed that Strike is one option. What kind of <clears throat> privacy would I be expected to leak, say, if I were to use Strike to pay on BISC? Um, I guess Strike is, is um, a newer payment option. Um, I, haven't, I don't have a Strike account, so I've never used it. But if, uh, if that's true, then I would assume it works like any other um, payment method. Um, I mean, obviously, Strike, you need to connect your bank account, but the counterparty, counterparty wouldn't be able to see that. Right. I, I believe they receive fiat on the other side of that trade. So that's a great, I think, payment method that now exists on BISC. Um, I've got like a 1,000 questions for Daniel, and I think we're probably not going to have enough time. We'll probably have to talk later. But I'm curious to hear more about TBDEX. Um, my understanding is that TBDEX cannot exist without some kind of verifiable credential, some kind of system of trust, right? And the reason for that is because Bitcoin, of course, is trustless, but the fiat system is not. And when you're exchanging with another person, there is some level of trust that's going to be required. Now, my understanding is that TBDEX is predicated upon decentralized identity, or DID for short. And again, if you could explain like I'm five or preferably explain like I'm four, what is DID and how is it used by DEX? Yeah, so DID is um, the standard that has you know, gone through international standardization at W3C. Um, we're using it, a lot of other companies are. Um, it allows you to create identifiers that are wholly yours that you can rotate keys under and you can prove. So unlike an email address, you actually own your identifier um, and, and can have the full routability to like be, to send messages to someone. Um, you can have multiple identifiers, so, and we encourage that. It's not like one identifier and you keep using it everywhere to correlate yourself. Like you wanna um, retain privacy. And then the other big component is verifiable credentials, which is sort of like a data signing standard basically for proofs. And it can be proofs of anything, right? You can prove a diploma or whatever. In this case, you might prove KYC details or reputational proofs if it's like peer to peer and you don't need like a KYC component. It's just modeling it with a standard. So whatever your form of reputation or proof is, we're trying to use these, these standardized forms for it. That's really interesting, because in BISC, there is no identity system. There is no reputation system. Um, the BISC DAO basically uh, guarantees the trades if you were to get scammed or something, which, um, because of the security deposit system, is financially disincentivized. So in BISC, there is no identity system, because we want privacy. We want anonymity. Um, you know, you could you know, create a new BISC account for every trade, and, or you, you could use the same one. There is no um, identity. Yeah, I think there's a misnomer, right, with identity. People, you hear the word identity, people get really scared, right? Identity just means an identifier you use. It could be a single-use identifier, like a burner, right? You can make a DID in a second. It has no reputation. You're just using it to do the messaging exchange, and that's kind of how, how we work it. Um, and so identity, you have an identity, but you may have many facets of your identity. You may have millions of identifiers, right? Every website you go to, you use a new one. 
Um, so, so we believe in exactly the same thing. It's just a standardized means of doing, of locating um, people if you needed to in a recurring fashion. The other thing is we want to make on and off ramping to existing financial institutions easier only because it's the world we live in today. Like I'm, I'm a big, you know, I've been Bitcoin for 10 years. Like I, you know, want that as much as anyone. But the reality on the ground is that we need to get more people into Bitcoin. So we have to bring the world with us. And that's part of the reason why we added these features that are totally optional so that those institutions can start helping by participating in the system um, and increasing the number of people who have Bitcoin. Yeah, so, so my question is, uh, would uh, DBD, uh, DID be compatible with stuff like FIDO2? Like, uh, you know, there's this open standard for uh, online identification. It's, I believe, FIS, fast identification online. Yeah. And Trezor is, uh, like, supports that. So uh, I could... Uh, Prove my identity, like um, like credentials, not my real identity, but I'm the same person like the last time we're signing some kind of cryptographic message. Yeah, so I actually I worked on some FIDO stuff while I was at Microsoft. Uh, you know, I was on the identity and security team. Um, FIDO is, is a great standard. We're we were looking at towards the end of my tenure there doing extensions so that your DIDs, which are backed by keys you own, um, can go through that same existing standard. FIDO, right now, um, the way it's designed, it sort of assumes that you're using a single key, just a non-rollable key, and the PKI source is like a centralized entity. So you have like a key with a website, and you have to go register it with them. So it's kind of not designed to be decentralized. You can extend it, though. Um, I also, we did extend OpenID Connect so that it uses DIDs instead of centralized accounts. So there's, there's ways that we can uplift these things into more decentralized forms. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I wanted to ask if I may, uh, like, uh, BISC sort of uses reputation because there's uh, the account age, is that right, and number of trades, I believe, and you tend to choose, like, these accounts first. It depends on the payment method, right? Yeah. So um, I think in the U.S. Um, there's a payment method called Zelle, which is, uh, I guess, the common way to quickly send money between banks in the U.S. And because there is a very uh, small amount of chargeback risk, it's not zero. Mm -hmm. Uh, they implemented a small limit for new accounts. And once you trade a few times uh, that with other counterparties who are signed, then they'll sign your account to build this uh, kind of like decentralized web of trust. They're not signing your identity so much as they are your, the hash of your payment account. So uh, I guess, yeah, you could consider that payment account an identity. Mm -hmm. a, yeah, I would call that a pseudonymous identity, yeah, right? Sure, so yeah. you're any, any identifier you have in the world, it's, if it's a point of reference, really, when we talk about identifiers <clears throat> like email or even you know, your at name on Twitter, it's a point of reference. So someone is able to accrue reputation or, or use it in any way, it forms an identity. Now, let's not confuse like personal identity, like you as a person, yeah. with that identity. Identity just means like I could be a dog on the internet, but I'm this hash of this dog, right? So yeah, I, I think it's a scary word, but it's kind of it's a little overblown. And yeah. like piggybacking off of that, like I think maybe uh, one of the ways you can think about identity is simply a public key, right? A public key is an identity, and on the Lightning Network, for instance, you know our identity is our public key with an IP address, and that's how how you connect. And a question I have for you is. Um, how, uh, you know, to make this a little bit more concrete, would you say that, you know, if DIDs should be included in the Lightning spec to be that form of identity? Or how would um, DIDs compare and contrast to the current form of identity on the Lightning network 
which is the public key and IP address. Yeah, so I, I do, I think it would be great if, if Lightning did embrace the DID spec. The spec is not actually prescriptive in terms of how you would implement a decentralized identity network. Like, when I was at Microsoft and now Block working with Ion, which is like a layer two on Bitcoin to do DIDs, um, it's mostly a data model. So it's like okay. every type of DID method, right, you could create one for Ion, spits out the same PKI document so that everyone can like, you know, in a standard way can find the keys and routing endpoints. Like how much data? Um, not much, it's not personal identity. Like the DIDs themselves don't have any. So like a 33 byte public key is what we have on you know, Lightning today. I'm guessing it's more than that. We're talking yeah. about kilobytes, megabytes. Oh, uh, less, you know, maybe two kilobytes at max. It's just okay. public keys and routing references. It could be decentralized URIs to like how I message you, right? Okay. You look up an ID or like need that. It's like um, the equivalent would be like DNS, right? You look up a zone file, sure. right? It's that, you don't put your website in a zone file, right? So um, it's really important because I think it gives efficient lookups and, and locational finding that could be even better potentially than some of the constructs in Lightning that are required because they're doing pathfinding for yeah. like liquidity and stuff. Okay. It kind of feels like um, the more modern way to do a decentralized web of trust. Like back in the day, we would have um, you know key signing parties where we, where you would meet in person and sign each other's PGP key. But now it seems like maybe. Um, there's also gonna be the entry of uh, corporations that will basically KYC people and sign their key for them. So you'll have like at Wiz, at uh, you know, Twitter, for example, or, or maybe some uh, block or, or square, right? You could be at Wiz, at square, and that's KYC'd. But if you're at Wiz, at BISC or something, you know, maybe it's not KYC'd. And depending on who signed what keys you might want to trade on this trade with this person based on those things, right? Yeah, that's exactly what verifiable credentials are. So like, let's say in one context of your life, you use a given identifier and you accrue reputational trust. Like I get a degree from an institution or something like that. Those are all verifiable credentials, right? Like LinkedIn may soon accept these and say, oh, I can like verify that this institution that has a DID signed this proof and it is you who's in with zero knowledge proving that you actually are the, the holder of the keys that back it. So absolutely, yeah. So my understanding is that we're doing a zero-knowledge proof without the need for ZKP cryptography. Oh, no, I mean, so some of the credentials definitely will use ZKP stuff. Like, um, I worked on a SNART construction with uh, MSR colleagues uh, when I was at Microsoft that we are looking to implement in the community that's, um, yeah, it's a, you know, you're familiar with SNARKs, right? Um, and it is a zero-knowledge credential that you could say, like, let's say a credential had like 10 things you can prove in it. You could do selective disclosure where you only want to disclose a few of them. You could do predicates where you say, like, I'm just over this age, like, you know, range proof, stuff like that. And those can be more advanced constructions of credentials. Well, like I said, Daniel, I'm going to have a thousand more <laughs> questions for you after. So I hope you have some time later this week. And I want to say thank you so much to all of the panelists. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. I'm very excited for the future of the re-decentralization of the web which will hopefully be using some of these exciting technologies that we discussed today, and which definitely will not be some kind of Web3, VC-backed, <laughs> yeah. shitcoin, dino, decentralized <laughs> and name-only blockchain. It's going to be the real decentralized web, and it's going to use Bitcoin, and Bitcoin yeah. only. Yeah, absolutely. They weren't joking. They really are. <laughs> <laughs>
should have brought the sunglasses. Okay. How's it going, guys? Um, right. So just a quick shout out to the guys doing the uh, workshops at the back. It, it is a little bit noisy. So if you want to um, have conversations, please uh, go on the outside because uh, you, you, <laughs> you really are going to want to. You really are going to want to hear what these these incredible people have to say today. Um, I think you can come back in at three o'clock and use the tables to, to do your, your workshops and your and your hacky stuff after. So um, just a, just a note on that. So yeah, welcome everyone. Uh, thank you for for joining us today. Um, so we're going to be talking about improving and 10xing the the Bitcoin development experience. Um, I've got some amazing panelists with me today. Um, so my name's Connor. Uh, I work at Spiral. Uh, we're focused on improving uh, the Bitcoin open source ecosystem uh, via a number of different initiatives, some of which we'll kind of go into detail today. Um, so we'll start by just uh, getting to know our, our panelists a little bit today. So uh, Steve, if you want to start. Sure. Yeah, so I'm Steve Myers, and I'm a contributor, contributor on the Bitcoin Dev Kit project, and my work is sponsored by Spiral, um, as are a bunch of other developers on our project. So, um, and yeah, we'll talk about what BDK is in a bit. Hey, I'm uh, Steven DeLorme. Um, I hang out in the Bitcoin design community. Um, I, I guess I uh, spend a lot of my time uh, contributing to the Bitcoin design guide um, and uh, other open source uh, design-related projects in Bitcoin. Hey, I'm Matt Corallo. Uh, I work on the Lightning Dev Kit project, uh, sponsored by Spiral as well, um, or I guess work for Spiral. Um, so our goal being to uh, allow people to build custom Lightning nodes and Lightning integrations. Uh, super easy, and we take all the hard work out of that. Okay. Okay. Awesome. Just an, just another note. Again, if you if you want to have a conversation, please please leave the room, and uh, you can come back in about three o'clock to to use to do the workshops and stuff. But so we're, again, so we're going to talk about like improving the, the Bitcoin development experience. But before we talk about some of the projects that are aimed at doing that. Let's talk about um, what the experience has been like over the past couple of years in trying to build Bitcoin wallets and other types of applications. Maybe Steve, if you wanna, if you wanna start. Yeah, sure. So the, the way I came to the BDK project was that I wanted, I had a solo project I was working on. I wanted to do something on mobile with a Bitcoin on-chain, multi-sig, and there's just not a lot of great options. You know, like there was some stuff in Java, but it doesn't work on iOS. Um, and then, of course, a lot of them didn't have the latest modern features that you would want in a, in a Bitcoin wallet. Um, teamed up with Alakos Fellini, and he's got, you know, there's this great library that uses another library set of projects called Rust Bitcoin, which provide, you know, all the primitives you need. Um, and then, you know, put, put together with another Rust Bitcoin project for Miniscript, so you get descriptor support and, um, you know, of course, SegWit and all, you know, talking to different uh, Bitcoin backends. Um, it just you know, basically gives you all the features. So then one of the things I focus on is making that available on mobile. So you know, with Kotlin and Swift, so you can just, you know, as a developer, you just can pick up this library now and, um, and build a Bitcoin wallet for desktop or mobile. OK, awesome. And so some of, some of these libraries that existed over the last couple of years, I'm assuming they haven't been as well maintained. Um, and it yes. requires like, developers to operate at a very, like, low level when they're trying to um, integrate Bitcoin and Lightning, is that, is that true? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, a, the other thing about having a library like BDK and LDK is that it, it, it's got sort of the best, the best practices built in, implemented in a way that a lot of people have looked at, 
And um, you know, you can, you know, you don't have to necessarily be a, a bits and bytes Bitcoin developer. Okay. You can understand the API and you know, and just use it with a whole community kind of supporting you behind it. Okay, awesome. And uh, Matt, you've been around in Bitcoin development for some time. Like, how, how do you kind of <laughs> see um, how Bitcoin development has kind of uh, yeah historically? Yeah, so I mean, I, I came at this from, from, I worked on Bitcoin Core for many, many years um, and, and have now kind of moved over to the Lightning space. Um, you know, historically, when I, when I started working on Bitcoin many, you know, 11 years ago or something, um, there weren't any funding for Bitcoin Core developers. There weren't even any full-time Bitcoin Core developers. Now that, you know, obviously Bitcoin Core can always use more resources probably, but, but that's kind of a solved problem. You know, you, there's... There's a ton of people working on Bitcoin Core. Bitcoin Core has a lot of a lot of really smart people working on it. You know, there's there's room to grow, but but everything further up the stack doesn't, right? And so BDK has been been really awesome. You know, Steve talked about all these like libraries that have been kind of one-offs that people have thrown out in various languages, and they're not well maintained, and they're not really all that usable. Um, and so you know, having a, a common base for for on-chain stuff is awesome. Um, but you know, we looked at it. As the spiral team, and we also and we also concluded like there, there needs to be something like this for Lightning too, okay. right? Is that uh, the Lightning is is even more complicated than the on-chain stuff. There's even more to get right. There's even more to to do. Um, and and we've seen several kind of mobile Lightning wallets. We've seen several Lightning wallets come around, and it, it's a full-time job for a team of three or four people to not only build a Lightning implementation, but actually keep up with all of the changes happening in Lightning and everything going on in Lightning. Um, and so our goal is to kind of abstract that out, right? And there's uh, make it so that you don't need a team of four full-time engineers to build a great Bitcoin wallet um, where, you know, there's, there's frankly some, some work to be done, right? There, there's, there's some good wallets out there that need to grow, need to add lightning support, need a little better UX here or there, um, need a little better design help from the design community folks. Um, and, and you know, we want to see a lot more, especially things like Bitcoin Beach Wallet, things like where there's like a localized community that, that has some local features they might need or, or where, you know, integration with some local services makes more sense and really enable people to build good user experiences around Bitcoin that, you know, that it, it's just... Currently, you have to be a great low-level engineer to do that. And finding a great low-level engineer who is also good at building UX and good design is not, yeah. I mean, basically it doesn't exist, right? Yeah. Um, and so trying to abstract away that low-level stuff so that we can do all that work for you, and then you can focus on how do you build a great user experience. Okay, okay, amazing, amazing. And so, it's, yeah, round of applause. <laughs> it's like, um, it's this idea as well of like allowing people who operate at different levels in the in the stack to really specialize in specific areas. So like you say, if you're a protocol engineer, you can operate and build the tools that make it easy for application developers to who build front ends and, and who work with more UI and UX focused people. They can really hone in in those areas. So um, we've kind of identified that the developer experience is something that is, is pivotal to 10x in the, the Bitcoin development um, experience. Uh, Steve Myers and, and Matt Carter, you're working on some projects to, to do that, one being the BDK and the LDK. So do you want to explain to the people what, what the BDK actually is? Right. So uh, BDK stands for Bitcoin Dev Kit, the name inspired by LDK, which had uh, the similar name. Um, and the idea that we're focused is on uh, building descriptor-based wallets 
So these are on-chain wallets, and you basically get all the modern features. You know, you have, like I said, so descriptors are a way of defining the, uh, the spending conditions for a wallet, but it's, you know, it, it provides you a way to create those scripts in a way that's portable between different wallet implementations, um, as well as well-reviewed and audited, like you can easily look at a descriptor and figure out what it does for some more complicated spending conditions. Um, as Matt was saying, you know, people might want to build applications for specific, you know, specific communities, but it could also be like you're a company and you want to build something in-house that uses Bitcoin. You can now, you know, you don't need to have a bunch of Bitcoin protocol engineers in-house. You can take this library. It's going to be reviewed by, you know, the Bitcoin community. You can contribute back to it if you have no features. Um, we had one, one person that was contributing back to our project, and uh, he had a use where he wanted to do proof of reserves. So he could easily, within his company, create a proof of reserves library using BDK, and then you know, release it both open source. And now any company that has that need can, can use these two libraries together. It's just like an example of somebody that um, you know, didn't have to start from scratch. And um, it's, it's a really important thing, too, that a lot of things are changing on LDK, but things are still changing on BDK, too. You know, Taproot is coming out. You know, it's going to be difficult for somebody to you know, implement a Taproot wallet from scratch. But you start with BDK, and BDK is going to be supporting Taproot. Now you can just immediately get that feature in whatever application you're building. So that's part of the power. Fantastic. And on, on the LDK side? Yeah, I mean, I, so basically the same thing, right? <laughs> yeah, but, but on the Lightning side, right? So the Lightning protocol, like I mentioned, is, it's complicated, and it's really hard to get right, and it's really important to get right. If you get it wrong, you or your customers lose money. Um, and that's not a great user experience. Um, so, so we try to you know, do something similar where we, we do all of the Lightning state machine, we do all of the, the logic around how you, how you route payments and how you, uh, how you even forward payments if you're running a, a non-mobile kind of node, um, and, and do all of that stuff, and then we expose it as kind of the individual building blocks, and they all work well together, and it's easy to hook them up together, or you can separate them out, and you can say, I'm going to run the routing part on a server, and I'm going to... Um, query that from the client, and then I'm going to do my backups by doing live updates against, you know, iCloud or, or whatever you want to do. You know, we give just neat little interfaces for all of the different pieces that aren't kind of core to Lightning, but like how do you store your data? How do you, uh, where do you get your private keys from? Um, how do you sync the chain? Uh, all these kinds of things that you could have many different ways you want to do it. Uh, we provide just interfaces for that, and you have to go kind of hook it up to the right places, but you don't have to do all of the kind of hard work of building a lightning state machine. Um, and so we, we do that in Rust as well, and then have like BDK language bindings in, in a number of different languages and, and more continuing to come so that developers uh, can kind of focus on how they want to build a Bitcoin application and how they want to have the UX work, uh, and we can just kind of make it easy to... to hook it up and have lightning suddenly running. Okay, amazing. And you have uh, developers working across various different stacks, whether it be on desktop, on mobile, on embedded devices, whatever it might be, also working in different programming languages as well. So how do you approach trying to accommodate for all of those different types of users? Yeah, I mean, that's a good point that it's one thing to have a nice, well-reviewed, you know, feature-rich, Bitcoin and Lightning stack, but then it's a whole other thing to support that ecosystem around it for mobile. So you have to have, you know, you have to support Android, you have to support iOS, and in those environments, you want to support those languages. So you need to support Kotlin or Java on Android, and you want to support Swift 
you know, that's sort of like just, you know, the, you know, that, that's sort of the, uh, you know, the price of admission is you just need to support that. And to do that, as well as supporting the core library, gives you that just kind of, you know, easy, pick it up off the shelf and you can start building your app, whatever environment you want. Um, which is hard for, you know, hard, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a, just sort of building that ecosystem just opens it up for everybody. Cool, and I think like the technical term we kind of use is like language bindings and like, Matt, what, what would be some of the, the, the challenges <laughs> around language yeah. bindings and supporting like these various environments? Yeah, I would say, you know, supporting different environments and thinking hard about different deployment scenarios is like 60% of the work we do and <laughs> the other 40 is actually doing lightning stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, we built a language bindings framework from scratch. We, we sat down and said, like, all of these existing languages, you know, we have a rich object-oriented interface with different classes and different uh, interfaces that you have to plug into and, and use, and we want to support that in different languages. Turns out there are no language bindings frameworks that support this. It just doesn't exist. Um, you know, all the, all the existing language bindings frameworks are, are for people who are saying, like, well, I've got my, my app, and it's written in, in Java or, or Swift or whatever, and then this, this one function is too slow, and I have an implementation in C I want to call, and it's, like, one function, and it's a pure function, and it doesn't, doesn't have all of these interdependencies or whatever. Uh, and there's a ton of frameworks for that, and they're really great. And then you want to have, like, well, I have these classes and I want native, you know, I want, want it to feel like a native interface where you're, like, instantiating these classes that are secretly written in Rust, but they're actually, you know, exposed to you in Java or Swift. Um, and then you have interfaces that you want to write an implementation of in Java that, like, the Rust code is actually calling all the way into. Um, yeah, it turns out that didn't exist. So we had to, we spent about two years of uh, engineering time, a little more, actually building that from scratch. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it was an insane amount of work, but uh, it ended up working really well. And so, you know, Cash App shipped with with LDK powering their Lightning node, um, and they didn't write a single line of Rust. They didn't look at a single line of Rust. Um, they wrote it all in Java, or I guess they wrote it all in Kotlin. But um, so that that turned out to be a, a good investment. It, it worked incredibly well at the end of the day. Um, but but that ends up being almost all of our work is is a combination of that and also just thinking about how do we design an interface that is hard to misuse? How do we design an interface that's either gonna like immediately spontaneously combust and the application won't even run, or it works right and you can't lose money and um, the, you know, the payments go through reliably and uh, it all works, right? So you, you wanna, trying to design interfaces is, is hard art form, right? Um, and so that, that ends up being the other half of our work is, is just how do we make sure that this interface is going to be robust and users are going to know how to use this correctly just by looking at it um, and, and it, they, they can't screw it up, right? Yeah. Actually, LDK also provides great documentation, you know, API documentation as well as examples. That's the other thing BDK also tries to provide is examples, documentation, which is another big piece of work. It's not, you know, you can't take it for granted that every library would have that. Yeah, awesome. Okay, so St Stephen, uh, we've not heard from you just yet, um, but you come from a, a slightly different perspective, perspective um, being a designer. Um, so do you want to talk to us a little bit about um, the Bitcoin design community, um, what that is, what that effort is, what type of things are involved on, on that side of things, and then we'll, we'll dive into a, a bit of how we tie the fact that we have these awesome SDKs and with the, the UI expertise that comes from that community as well. 
Yeah, so the Bitcoin design community is uh, just kind of a decentralized community of designers and creatives uh, who are interested in uh, working on open source uh, Bitcoin. Um, you know, I guess the, the kind of central thesis of would be thesis of it would be that uh, you know Bitcoin is the best money, so it should have the best user experience. Um, and you know, I think a lot of people would agree that it's you know it's currently lacking. A lot of people find Bitcoin difficult to use. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty. Um, for people about how to, you know, self-custody their own Bitcoin. Um, so, uh, you know, kind of the flagship uh, product of the uh, the design community is this uh, project called the Bitcoin Design Guide. And um, the Bitcoin Design Guide is, you can think of it kind of as like human interface guidelines for uh, Bitcoin products. If you're building a non-custodial uh, Bitcoin product, um, you know, this you can turn to this guide to look for principles and techniques uh, that you can employ to build a, a better experience for your users. And like, it might be good to differentiate a little bit. Like, you you said the word UI. Like, yeah. you know, it's also I think important to differentiate between like UI, like just the the thing that the user sees on screen, like the the, the specific color of the button or the font choice. Right. That that I consider to be more UI, but like UX. I consider it to be a little bit more broader than that. Like, we're, we're trying to think about like the whole experience the user has to go through. Um, you know, is the uh, application you're building, let's just say it's a wallet, for example, do when they turn it on for the first time, do they know what they're supposed to do? Um, when they receive their first Bitcoin, um, you know, uh, is there a backup facilitated? Um, how is the user still using it uh, a year down the road? Are they still using it a five years down the road? And is the way that they're using it changing? Um, so these are kind of like all you know things that I would consider kind of under the umbrella of user experience. And I guess kind of like similar to LDK or like BDK and LDK is that um, you know if you think about like why should every single developer have to repeat the same work over and over again? Like let's find what works. Like let's you know build our our good you know lightning state machine and just. Um, put that into a toolkit, and everybody can use that. Um, you know, similar with design, like we don't need um, everybody to come up with a new design solution every time. Like if some other wallet or Bitcoin service has come up with a good design solution that makes it really easy to use for people, um, why don't we document that in an open source way, and then other projects can take um, you know take advantage of that? Amazing. And um, just to, to touch on a few things around like the design guide and um, kind of documenting patterns that work regardless of you know what what wallet you're trying to build or what Bitcoin application you're trying to build. Um, do you want to talk maybe about a concrete example and one that was you know announced earlier by by Miles and the Cash App team, the, the BIP21 URIs, and like how that's an example of developers and designers. Who you know, developers who have, have created this standard and getting some 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 aid, I guess, from from the UX side to kind of tie it together as like a concrete example. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a good one. So, for if uh, if anyone didn't see the uh, Cash App talk this morning, um, you know, uh, Miles uh, announced a, a lot of cool features. Um, but yeah, one one of them in particular was this plan to kind of move to a new type of QR code or using an existing type of QR code but differently. And this. Um, you know, there's been this you know big conversation about it in uh, the Bitcoin design community and uh, other open source Bitcoin communities um, about this. You know, like just as a real world example, um, I think uh, you know many of us uh, witnessed this uh, last year in El Salvador, just the difference in payment formats. Um, you know, 
for example, you go into, you know, like a little bodega or pupuseria and you want to order something and, you know, you ask to pay in Bitcoin and, you know, there's usually some kind of toggle that they have to switch between an on-chain uh, address QR code or a Bolt 11 invoice QR code or a proprietary Chivo QR code. Um, so, you know, and th there's just not a lot of education. People aren't sure what, what, what to do in, in many situations. And you think about QR code, it's kind of like an ugly, human, unreadable thing. Like, you can't look at a QR code and just, like, know what's inside of it unless it tells you. So that was a big problem. And, you know, there's been many people have tried to come up with solutions for that. Like uh, Galois with Bitcoin Beach, they had kind of uh, a solution that they were experimenting um, with there, with these kind of QR codes on, on these signs, and, and they were they were trying to solve you know the same kind of problem, like how do you make it um, easy on the user? But um, I'm not sure exactly where the idea originated from. I first I think heard it from you know Pavlinix and um, you know uh, John Zbahari and Steve Lee, some combination of those three. But basically, this idea of uh, you know just taking a, a BIP21, which is this um, it's this payment URI. Um, format. It's been around for about 10 years. I think, you, weren't you involved in I, I think I might have written the original spec. Yeah, I think I, saw your, I think I saw your name on, on the paper. Um, but, you know, it, it's basically this idea where we can use this existing spec, we can put um, a, an optional parameter in there, put a lightning invoice in there, and I think the spec was very forward-looking. Like, it, it, you know, you were kind of like predicting that people would want to use it in different ways, and we don't know how we're going to want to use it in 10 years. Well, this is an example of that. So we're now able to use this existing um, open-source standard and, uh, you know, in the Bitcoin design community, we started experimenting with it. We built a website. We started documenting uh, which wallets could support the standard and which uh, don't. And uh, we started reaching out to projects. And this is just an example of, like, um, you know, designers can get involved in open source. And you can go on GitHub and you can open an issue with a project um, and make a bug report or a feature request or suggestions for UI improvements. Um, and so we've gotten pretty positive feedback. I mean, there's, it's an ongoing discussion, but we've gotten very positive feedback. And even Cash App was able to um, get involved and have discussions with the Bitcoin uh, design community um, about, about this project. So um, it's really cool thing if you think about, like, if you have the best UI, the slickest UI, the best UX in the world for your wallet, if every other Bitcoin wallet out there has, has, is hard to use, it hurts you too. Like, we're kind of all in this together when it comes to Bitcoin UX. So, um, you know, Cash App, I, was really, I thought it was really great that they, uh, they got involved with the design community, got involved in these discussions, and uh, now we've basically seen in a very short period of time um, designers and developers um, collaborating together to, um, you know, uh, improve, improve the UX. Yeah, and I, and I want to zone in on that, on that last little thing you said there around... Um, developers and designers coming together, like sometimes we term it like bridging, bridging the gap between designers and developers. Um, now that we have these development tools and, and a design guide, um, why, why, why is it important to, to kind of bridge that gap? Is it the fact that now we can get more experimentation happening quicker? Um, is it the fact that like those tools just naturally um, bring bring those two users together? Like, what would you say about about that side of things? Yeah, I mean, in terms of uh, you know bridging the gap, I'd say uh, you know I think this is like a running problem in in you know software engineering and product development. This idea that like if you're if you're trying to build something and um, you you spend you know six months planning it out and then. Um, three months building it, and then you know two months testing it, and then eventually by the time it, it gets to market, it's like you, um, 
you know, the, the, the competitors beat you or users, you know, uh, customers' demands have changed. So I think like what we've witnessed over, you know, the, the past several decades is just that, you know, development cycles for products are, are getting a lot, you know, um, I, well, I hate to use this word, but I guess you'd say it's becoming more agile. Like we're figuring out how to, uh, we're figuring out how to like ship features quicker. And so an important part of that is like, you don't want a situation where like the designer is, you know, building this perfect, you know, layout and then I pass it over to the developer and then, you know, the, the developer, um, you know, kind of has their own interpretation of it. And then, you know, by the time it hits the market, it's, you know, something's been lost in translation. Um, I think like on the open source side, what, what's, what I've witnessed um, just in the design community is that like some of the most successful Bitcoin open source projects are one where the designers and the developers work very closely together and they have like kind of a, a constant feedback loop. Um, so like if you come in and you say, you ask the designer like, can you solve this problem for me? What's the answer to my, what's the answer to my question? Um, and then take it and run with it. You know, here's the thing. This isn't like a perfect science. Like, you know, like there's not like one just answer to UI because it's going to depend on like where you are in the world, what kind of customer you're trying to serve, you know, what your the needs of your community are. And so there's not just like, you know, this isn't like, you know, physics or something where we can like, you know, absolutely define something down to a molecule. So the ongoing um, collaboration between the designer and developer, I think, is so that, you know, you can test stuff, see what works. Um, and just very quickly find what works for the, the product um, or for the customer that you're trying to serve. Okay, fantastic. And um, so just to recap a little bit, we have the BDK, which is helping with on-chain Bitcoin functionality, exposing all these high-level APIs. Similarly, on the LDK side, if you want to integrate instant lightning payments into, into any wallet or application, um, what what types of what types of applications and and are we seeing being built with like BDK and then we'll go into LDK in a second. So yeah. 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 So I um, so right now you know we primarily have sort of example applications. We we did I mentioned there was a, a bank looking to use you know looking at BDK for some proof of reserve stuff. Um, Kind of our big focus now is just getting more, you know, more of the mobile stuff built out to support more mobile applications, and you know that's part of you know what I'm doing here, and the rest of the BDK team is doing is just finding open source developers or finding closed source developers, anybody who wants to build something using on-chain Bitcoin, and you know getting to know them and getting to solve their problems with BDK. Um, you know, I don't think we have any big like commercial programs yet using BDK, but the goal is we, we hope to soon. Yeah, we're, we're certainly, that's our, that's our goal, is to make that happen. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm... Yeah, and on the LDK side, we've been around for a little longer than the BDK side. Um, and so we have, so Cash App was our first uh, user to go live in a big way. Um, it was actually the, the second uh, user to start integrating uh, uh, over Torment back here somewhere uh, from Blue Wallet, uh, suffered through a lot of the pain of, of some of our very early alpha language bindings um, projects. Um, and so they have, they're, they're more in flight as well. Um, obviously, uh, you know, building for mobile is, is just a little harder in almost every way, um, not only on the language bindings end, but, but also especially on the lightning end, there's just so many more things you want to get right to have a really great user experience, especially as a, as a non-custodial end user application. Um, and so Cash App kind of beat them to the punch. It's a little easier to build a, a, custom, a custom lightning node that, is just custodial than the non-custodial, um, but but it kind of highlights the the very different 
uses for LDK and projects like this, um, where you know, Cash App is a large corporate. They have a ton of back-end infrastructure that existed already for all of their existing, you know, obviously Cash App does a whole lot more than, than Bitcoin. Um, and they really wanted a, a Lightning node that tightly integrated with all of that infrastructure, right? So uh, using their own logging infrastructure, their own database infrastructure, their own uh, node failover and, and uh, uh, hosting infrastructure, all of the stuff that they already had, they wanted their Lightning node to really integrate well with that. Um, and just taking something like C Lightning or LND, which, which are great, um, but and running it off the shelf doesn't provide them that, right? And so they wanted to build something super custom, uh, and they were able to, in, in a number of months, put together a, a full Lightning node from scratch that uh, used LDK to do all of the kind of Lightning parts, but then uh, integrated and worked in exactly the way they wanted a Lightning node to work for them. Uh, on, the, on the other side, you know, Blue Wallet. Um, just completely different scenario, but again, where it's they already had an on-chain non-custodial wallet, they already synced the blockchain, they already had key derivation, they already have a, had a backup system. You know, they already had all of these pieces, and they didn't want to, you know, take something like LND and try to make it run on mobile, and then uh, sync the chain twice and have two separate key derivation systems and have so. You know, they wanted a Lightning node that worked with their existing infrastructure and actually integrated into the app and not something that just was completely fresh from scratch, um, or was from scratch kind of for them. And so there again, you know, this LDK, where it's really just building blocks. You know, we provide a bunch of different building blocks and some sample implementations, and you can take the pieces you want and hook them up in the way you want and end up with a Lightning node that works in exactly the way you want. Um, so, so being able to build super tailored systems for exactly what you need um, is really kind of the, I would say the value of everyone standing on this stage is, is helping people build exactly what they need. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because although like sometimes we talk about like LDK having the sweet spot of like non-custodial mobile where there are like constraints on memory, storage, background tasking, all of these kind of things, we are seeing something like uh, Sensei, which is mm. a, um, I guess a, a Lightning Node implementation based off of LDK as well, um, which we hope might be in the, in the Umbral App Store soon, and you know, there might be instances where, although out of the box it's not really designed to be like an out of the box node experience, like you have the tools to to make a custom node yourself, right? So that's really cool. And on on the on the Bitcoin design side, although we talk about the the user experience and and getting developers to work with designers to to build, you know customer facing stuff like wallets and other types of applications. What other things do we see from the Bitcoin design community around art and a narrative and, and all of these kind of things? Yeah, so I mean, uh, there's, there's a, lot, a lot of different projects, uh, you know, in the design community other than just the design guide. Um, you know, around art, I'd say, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a whole channel in our, uh, our Slack workspace where people post like art they're working on and stuff, which is really cool. Um, you know, we've gotten involved with other, you know, the, there's a lot of um, just kind of, I guess, like collaborations, you'd say, um, you know, we're, which is basically somebody's doing a project on Bitcoin, they come to us and, you know, they might need some help with something and, you know, we'll put together a call and people in the community who might want to help this uh, project um, 
uh, can uh, jump in and help out. And so, you know, like on the, the narrative side, you know, there was this Hello Bitcoin project that you were involved with. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a video series that kind of teaches people the fundamentals of Bitcoin and why it's valuable. And several people in the community got involved with that and started working on the animation for that. And also just like with like wallet projects and stuff. I mean, there's currently a collaboration with Join Market. Um, I think uh, so there's some people, there's a team uh, working on uh, trying to redesign the UI for Bitcoin Core, like the wallet um, portion of it. Um, there is, uh, there's the Zeus uh, wallet, which has been an uh, incredible, incredibly good collaboration. Um, there's, uh, you know, also just some, some um, kind of uh, other flagship products next to the design guide would be like the UI kit and uh, the Bitcoin icons kit, um, like Christoph, Ono, and Bosch. Like uh, th those are basically kind of toolkits you can use. So um, you can uh, take the icons kit and uh, install it as a viewer react module and just instantly have icons for your, your Bitcoin product. Um, you can use the, the UI kit, uh, it's a Figma prototype. Um, you know, so you can basically rip screens from that and incorporate them into your project. It's kind of like why, in, why reinvent the wheel? Not to limit your creativity in any way, but it's a good starting point so you don't have to rebuild um, everything from scratch, so there's really just a, a ton of, of projects going on in the community. Sometimes new initiatives just kind of spring up out of nowhere without yeah. any central authority, <laughs> which is cool. Yeah, awesome. And then just trying trying to tie things back to you know 10x in the development experience. Um, what what advice would you give people who want to get involved in a space, whether it be contributing directly to BDK, LDK in the design community or taking these tools and, and building applications themselves? Like any, any advice for, for these people? I can say one thing that I know that on the design side, I used to work in enterprise software and okay. we basically never built anything until we had UX and UI, primarily UX actually. Okay. Because you know, that's like you wanna, developers sometimes aren't great talking to users and UX, that's part of what they do to bridge the gap is they're basically collecting that user feedback about you know, what does the user want to do? How do they want to use it? You know, maybe they don't know what they want. Um, and maybe what they want isn't actually what they want, what they think they want. So that, like, that's obviously part of, the, part of it. But on the BDK side or on the on-chain side, just being able to take a library that's well-reviewed, has examples, allows you to kind of bootstrap whatever project you have. Um, and then I think it's also, you know, from the, the closed-source world, you might have all these companies replicating the exact same software, mm -hmm. and that's pretty inefficient. You know, with open source and you know projects like LDK and BDK, you have all these people that want to do the same thing, all these smart people that can just get together, combine forces, trade ideas back and forth. People all over the world, you're going to get a, a cross-section of developers that you could never, as a company, afford to buy. Like they're not for sale, most of them. So um, you you get that for free, and it's it's quite amazing. You know, it's it's you know it's a resource that you can only get in an open source project. You're not going to get that on a closed source project. Yeah. So, how about on the design side? If you want to, if yeah. designers want to get involved. Yeah. So on the design side, I mean, uh, just from a you know a purely tactical perspective, you go onto Bitcoin.design our website. You go to the contribute page and follow what it says there. You can join our Slack channel. You can add our, our calendar um, to like your Google or Apple calendar and all of that. Um, you know, but just to dig into that a little bit more, I mean. You know, we, we do calls, you know, talking about specific projects or issues, and it, it's all pretty open. So, I mean, I would really encourage you to just lurk. Um, you know, once you get on a call and you, you know, you can just hang out. You don't have to ask questions or be involved if you don't want to. And you can just kind of see how an open source community functions. 
um, and then jump in and contribute uh, when you feel comfortable. And I'll just say that like, I really encourage you to do it, especially like, especially if you're like starting out your career and you're thinking of doing an unpaid internship, I'd say don't do that. And I would say contribute to an open source project instead. Um, because, you know, like Steve said, you're gonna meet like people all around the world with different ideas. You're gonna, you're just, you know, kind of connected to this hive mind of ideas. Um, and, and also like the open source contributions you make, people are gonna see them. So it's not gonna be like some proprietary thing that's hidden um, and you have to kind of like hype yourself up. Like people can see when you're doing your work in the open um, exactly what you're contributing. And those open source contributions I think will follow you from one job to the next. Cool. And yeah, no, definitely. No, and, and to maybe to, to summarize a little bit, like, you know, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of focus in this space of like, oh, I want to contribute to Bitcoin Core. I want to contribute to like the lowest levels of the protocol, and and that's awesome. You know, those those spaces need as much contribute uh, contribution as they can get, as many eyes on it as they can get. Um, but they also have, over the last few years, started getting a lot of eyes on it, a lot of contributors, a lot of a lot of great people working on those projects. And further up the stack, you know, you see a lot of these you know, awesome wallets that people have started building and that people use every day and the, the real touch points for users on Bitcoin non-custodial have teams of two or three or four people, right? And, and these projects, you know, they, they often don't even have a UX or a designer or they, or they you know, have, have some contribution from the design community and, and work, work are, you know, turning to that increasingly um, and they, you know, they don't have the resources to, to build out a lot of really awesome UX that they might want to build because they're too focused on some of these lower level things. And so there's, there's a lot more room to contribute to some of these projects further up the stack um, and, and make a much bigger impact on how people actually use and experience Bitcoin um, because these are the real touch points, you know, people actually are using an app to, to receive their Bitcoin and they're not, they're not using Bitcoin Core on a regular basis. Um, and so I think there's a, there's a lot of room to, to contribute to these communities, certainly, especially the design community and going out and actually working with some of these wallets. Um, and then there's also just a lot of room to, to build great user experiences using Bitcoin. Um, you know, there's only probably a handful of wallets that, that people strongly recommend that have great UX. Um, and, you know, go build another one, you know, go, go build something that's, that's unique and, and has some other user experience that, that you think might win yet more people over to Bitcoin and give them really the, the experience that they want. Um, and there's, there's a lot of room in the space for that kind of contribution. Awesome. And then just a kind of final closing thoughts um, from, the, from the three of you. What are you kind of most excited to see in, in Bitcoin development this year? And um, then just tell people where they can like find your projects again, the projects that you're working on again. So maybe Steve, do you want to start? Sure. Well, I mean, as a, an on-chain library, I think Taproot's probably the most exciting thing right now, just from what you're going to be able to do with it and being able to support that in an open source, you know, easy to accept sort of way. Yeah. Um, if you want to go to bitcoindevkit.org, that's our website. You can get links there to the, the GitHub repository and also our Discord community. Um, if you have questions or have ideas for an app or you want to contribute to the project, you know, you can chat with us there. We're, we're, around, the, we're, we're around the globe, so there's always somebody around online there. Awesome. So. And Steven? Yeah, I'm a, you know, one kind of thing, I mean, obviously I'm excited about the unified QR code. Another thing I'm kind of excited is just like stabilized lightning ch channels. I mean, obviously Bitcoin's the best money and it's what you want your savings in, but one thing I've just kind of seen, you know, 
like with adoption in developing nations is that like, you know, there's obviously this need for like having a little bit that's stabilized, you know, for your weekly expenses. And I think the Overton window has kind of shifted around that conversation. And we've seen this like kind of explosion of ideas over the past like two months here of just different ways of accomplishing that. So I'm really curious to see how, you know, what, what the engineers decide is the right approach, but um, you know, after the the whole kind of rough consensus process. But I'm also curious to see what the design uh, around that, how how we solve those design problems. Um, but yeah, you can, uh, like I said, you can follow what we're working on in Bitcoin Design just by going to Bitcoin.Design on the web. Perfect. And Matt, to finish us off. Yeah. Um, oh man, there's so many things going on in Lightning. <laughs> um, uh, all of the things. Um, so yeah, on, on the LDK side, let's see. We're we're working on Bolt 12 integration. So so improving uh, the the way people pay in Lightning to add uh, to to address a number of shortcomings in the user experience and a number of different ways people expect to pay, especially things like static invoices. Um, so that's huge. Um, Shipping uh, zero-conf and other features that are kind of needed for first-class uh, good mobile user experience and what people uh, expect from existing Lightning wallets. Um, that's going to be huge. Um, and, and just helping people start building a, a lot more uh, Lightning wallets and a lot better UX and helping people not have to spend four developers, three developers full-time just to maintain stuff and actually enabling people to really start experimenting more with Lightning, start building more stuff, start... Uh, extending more stuff and, and you know getting stuff getting to the point where we can start you know having people build good uh, dollar denominated lightning channels um, on on a mobile app you know that's that's <laughs> gonna be awesome but man we've got a lot of work to do to get there um, and, and yeah so you can go to the lightningdevkit.org um, if you want to check it out and we have uh, a slack and a discord community because I don't know uh, we like <laughs> we like making sure we're available to anyone who has questions um, so you, you can you can join one of those there's always someone around to, to answer questions and and you know like like all these great folks we try to be pretty hands-on and pretty uh, available to, to answer any questions and to help you figure out what's going on and how best to, to build what you want to build hey you said it. we got a lot of work to do back to work yeah, yeah, back to work. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Really appreciate it. See you guys around. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, why is it so bright? <laughs> I feel kind of far away from you guys, but. Yeah, uh, yeah. we can all move in. It's, it's, you you, you want to go on the couch? It's, it's uh, okay. Sure, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's going to be a little awkward. Actually, but, it's better if yeah. we stay in order for yeah. them, I think. All right, all right. Yeah, so sure. we're all good. I, I hope we're, we don't yeah. mess up the camera. <laughs> People, sorry. I think they framed okay. the shot with that, that <laughs> last chair in mind. So, uh, welcome everybody. Um, my name is Ben. I'm host of the BTC sessions on YouTube. Uh, I guess I'll, I'll just let you guys introduce yourselves. We'll start with Paul. Sure. My name is Paul Stortz. Um, we're going to be talking about softworks today. So I have a softwork proposal, BIP 300. Um, I've also written a lot about softworks in the past. So I guess that's my intro. Awesome, Jimmy. I'm a Bitcoin expert, I guess, or educator or something. I, I, I do a lot of stuff in Bitcoin. I write lots of books. And yeah, I'm up here mostly to look pretty, I think. <laughs> uh, hey, I'm uh, Jeremy Rubin. I'm a Bitcoin Core Rabble Rouser. And uh, I also have a software proposal that I've been doing called BIP119. And happy to be here to talk about it with all. Awesome. Uh, welcome, guys. Let's give them a round of applause for being here. And. Uh, 
so I, I want to start this talk out um, by making it accessible to, to uh, you know, some people that may not be super familiar. So we'll just set a few baseline things, then we'll get into the weeds after that. So uh, I'll open this up to anybody here, but let's just break down really, really quickly, briefly, the difference between a hard and soft fork for whoever wants to take what I just teed up. I will do it because a fork is a very serious thing. It is really how the protocol changes from one protocol to a different protocol, which can cause people a little bit of consternation because they worry about, oh, am I going to lose the, old, the things I really like about the old protocol? And that is the difference between the hard and soft fork, which is that the hard fork is an absolute permanent split where the, you've formed two networks and it's, you, you break up and you are never getting back together. And then with the soft fork, there's this theoretical compatibility where all, all the, these, different, these different protocols uh, are nonetheless interoperable with each other. So you can stay this idea of it being compatible and opt-in, which is a nuanced point, but the idea of the, the old node, you can stay there, you can stay with the old protocol, and that is why, that's what makes it soft. And I could talk more about that if you want, but I'm sure you can. Um, I, I would say that it's, soft forks are backwards compatible, yeah. hard forks are not backwards compatible. And, you, uh, and uh, the idea of a fork is that you have two blockchains or two ledgers that have some difference. Uh, and that is terrible for any sort of consensus mechanism mm -hmm. because they're not in consensus. And that, that's what we want to avoid generally. And soft fork or hard fork, that's um, uh, unless you are permanently wanting to split like Bitcoin yeah. Cash did. Uh, uh, and, and what precedent does that set for uh, the, rather for the user, like in terms of a soft fork versus a hard fork? If you're a user, you're perhaps running a, a Bitcoin node, for instance. Um, what responsibilities do you or don't you have yeah. in a soft fork versus a hard fork? What do you have to do? So, so, so I'll jump in there and just kind of with a more contrarian take, <laughs> riding off of this to tell people what their responsibilities actually are. but. Uh, ultimately, like, they're not really so different. Like, both of them can result to a bad thing happening to your Bitcoin. And so from that perspective, they're the same. And I think ultimately what it comes down to is how do you participate? And the choice of the soft fork is really something that allows people who are just kind of disinterested in what's happening with development to, uh, and disinterested in upgrading or whatever, to just like continue to be a part of the network. Mm -hmm. um, the downside of that is, is that like, changes can happen to the Bitcoin network even if you're not participating. So in some senses, soft forks are maybe bad because how do you oppose something that can happen if you're just not even aware that it's happening? And then hard forks, on the other hand, it's like, well, if you don't want it to happen and the rest of the network does it, now you're off the network permanently, and that's like not really great. But on the other hand, for a hard fork, you'd have to have like much more overwhelming consensus to make it happen. So each of them have trade-offs, and ultimately, like the end negative outcome is the same, which is that like a bad thing could happen to you. But we get to choose the trade-offs. And right now, in the community, the dominant choice is that people prefer seemingly soft works, but that is a preference. It's not like a mathematical proof that one is superior to the other. Let's let's go a bit deeper into yes, that. Yes, a very so, important point. Yeah. It so is. what what precedent does it set, uh, given that that Bitcoin? leans heavily, the, the community has leaned heavily towards keeping things backwards compatible versus protocols that have gone off and basically have regular hard forks. What do we lose by normalizing regular hard forks versus what has been preserved with Bitcoin? Well, uh, the ma main problem with hard forks is that you're forcing essentially everybody to upgrade. And if, you, if they don't upgrade, then they're no longer part of the consensus. And that 
who's doing the forcing, right? If, if, if you're being forced by some central entity, then you're clearly centralized because whoever made that hard fork is demanding it of you. This is how Ethereum works. They demand you to upgrade. If, you're, if you don't upgrade, then you're no longer part of the consensus and your blockchain is essentially invalid. Whereas if you are part of the new you know, hard fork that they, the software that they tell you to run, at, uh, then, then you're part of that consensus, in which case it's not really consensus as much as it is somebody from authority telling you what you have to run in order to be compatible with the rest of the network. So hard forks for me are centralized, and, the, and it's, it's an indication of centralization, at least the way they've been used. So for, uh, for coins to go do that, it reveals their centralized single point of failure, whereas you know, with a soft work, what you, what you have is this ability to be backwards compatible. You're not forcing anybody, anything on anybody. Um, hard forks, like almost all rules are up for grabs, including, you know, the supply limit and stuff like that, mm -hmm. uh, which I find an anathema. Like part, part of what you have that's very valuable about Bitcoin is that you know certain things aren't going to change mm -hmm. because of the way, uh, because it's uh, backwards compatible and it enforces the rules that you all know, including 21 million, right? Like that's yeah. sacred. But of course he just said that, uh, but, but Jeremy just said that soft and hard forks really aren't that different. So I'd like to maybe, and you're saying they're very, very different, of mm -hmm. course. And uh, I agree with a lot of what you're saying, but we have to now un maybe unpack this for the audience because this is where the rubber meets the road, so to speak, because this, as I said, the fork is a very serious matter of changing the protocol. And it was thought that, first of all, the soft fork is clearly, it's not only backwards, but forwards compatible. All the nodes share the same network. Um, and it used to be thought that because they were all compatible, you can just stay where you were. And therefore, the opt-in property was, came from the, the compatibility property. But it was later, uh, the couple, there were a couple sort of chinks in the armor of that uh, argument where Peter Todd proposed the evil fork idea where you can change lots of things with the soft fork. And then uh, SegWit actually increased the block size uh, with a soft fork, which was sort of a very, it was something that everyone had to experience. There was the, there's another case actually that I think is a very good example, which is the S value signature mm. case where that is something that is very, very soft. And the, the very old definition of the soft fork was that if you got miners on your side, any time the two different blocks were mined following in, incompatible rules, since the miners already, always went with one, everyone would end up going along. That was the old, old definition of the soft fork. So this S value situation is where so an example of something where it was 100% soft, but it was 0% opt-in. You, uh, a normal layperson had no choice but to upgrade their software. They could not send money. Yeah, I so. think to like break that down, like yes. a similar thing to this would be like if we decided P2SH was bad, and then just said no more spending P2SH addresses. Like would that would be a fork. soft fork, um, yeah. possibly, uh, and that would be confiscatory, and that would steal people's money, and that would be bad. And I think overall, it's one of these things where for. Uh, hard forks, I think it's like there, there is a propensity to, to shove it down people's throat, but it's more of a cultural value for what type of activity we want to do, and soft forks generally align more with things we want to be more often, but you could do either on either. An example of this would be we could use all the same BIP9 version bits, we can talk about what those are, and uh, speedy trial, and 
you know, we could have a de delayed activation that would be like two years in the future for a hard fork. And that would probably be pretty good uh, in terms of not being something where we just like the devs decided there's a hard fork happening. And, but it still would be that old nodes at that two year mark would fall off. Um, there have been proposals previously, like somebody said, you know, Bitcoin Core should, I think Luke Jr. made this point, Bitcoin Core should just like have a fixed number of block headers it can consume by default. And so it shuts off in 10 years. So all nodes just have a shelf life. And now every hard fork is a soft fork based on if you're running Bitcoin Core, because we could deploy it and then the node automatically shuts off after some fixed deadline. It's like, well, I don't love that, but like, yeah, you can kind of map one on the other. Ultimately, I think the thing that, you know, to, to wrap it up into a coherent point is uh, hard or soft, like, you know, feature or whatever, what, what matters is that we do these things in a way that involves uh, mass participation and consent of the, uh, I don't want to say the word governed, but that's the phrase, you know, consent of the ungoverned. Oh, it's well, a good, well yeah, I, I would say that you can do evil things with a soft fork. I think that's mm -hmm. the point that you're making. Of course you can do that. You mm -hmm. can eliminate SegWit, you can eliminate all, uh, all kinds of things by saying these are no longer allowed on the network. I, I don't think we're denying that. The, the real question, I think, in, in your sort of equivalence of hard fork and soft fork is that, okay, is it possible to have sort of like a benevolent hard fork? I suppose in some metaphysical way it can be somewhat benevolent, but I, I think what we're saying is uh, with soft works, at least the ones that Bitcoin has done, it, it's generally benevolent soft works, not the evil soft works. I think that you're talking about like eliminating pay, pay to script hash or something like that. Uh, and those are the ones that uh, it, it's within the space of soft works that I think you know benevolent or good things for the network are because once you change sort of like permanent rules or anything like that, that, that opens up a whole like can of worms that I don't think we want to go down. So for, for me, like soft works are very important to like stay within that area of soft works and not, and you know, obviously avoid the evil soft works, but you know, go, go with this uh, sort of subset that's actually benevolent. Okay, let's, let's go back historically. Um in terms of, uh, Paul, when I was speaking to you uh, over email prior to this, you, you, you made reference to, it's a question of, of is it worth it in the instance of, of a hard fork? And, and in, we saw historically, like for 2017, when, when uh, there's this push to go from one megabyte to two megabytes, I mean, the, the resounding answer from a, a lot of individuals was, no, we don't, we don't want to set the precedent of changing for, for small incremental uh, increases in, in block size like that. Um, but we Bitcoin has hard forked before, so I'm wondering if somebody wants to maybe touch on it has. when it was. Um, I'm not sure that it ever intentionally has because the only two that I'm, it's kind of like one and a half. One was when Satoshi added the op-nops in 2010 or something, and he's the creator, so he sort of, you know, it's like creator's right or whatever. It like doesn't really make it's not really a very relevant consideration, right, since he created it in the first place. And then there was the other one was after the, uh, the summer 2015 database lock uh, situation. I'm not exactly sure what to call that, but there was a, something where a database configuration rule had uh, become a consensus rule without anyone knowing, and then it had been changed. And so it is possible to sync old nodes, but you have to do this extra step, and so that sort of makes it a hard fork. And I don't know, like, no one has ever, like, intentionally done a hard fork, like, through the whole peer review, slow, yeah. 
process, yeah. debate, depending on how you interpret it. Maybe the I just drank too much last night, but uh, I don't think either of those are yeah. hard forks. Uh, yeah, they're, they're, I actually can't think still, of any that, because a soft fork is like yeah. sort of, uh, uh, you know, increasing the rules and like making it stricter. Um, and I don't think either or of those. Soft fork is shrinking the rules. <laughs> Uh, yeah, soft fork is yeah. shrink. You know, well, it's it's increasing the number of rules, shrinking the th set of things that are valid. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, but I I actually can't think of it. Maybe you know, again, the drinking thing. Um, <laughs> no, the check, addition of the. But I can't think of any that were actually a hard fork. Even like remove because you're talking about removing like op cat and stuff like that. No, I'm talking those. He added the op nops zero through whatever gotcha. it was twenty. They maybe. didn't exist, and he added them for the specific purpose of later yeah. using them okay, as soft maybe forks. That, maybe that is. Yeah. So he added like so like what what later became op. Uh, check template verify or whatever, or not, excuse me, not, now you've got me all confused. I'm talking about um, uh, check, check lock time verify. Uh, that was added by Satoshi as a blank thing that was like a blank check. So when he added all the blank checks, it was hard. But then when we repurposed them individually, that was soft. But it doesn't make any difference because it was so long ago. Yeah, and I think also just in terms of like this, this notion of like time ago, I think there's something you know, to be said for like, if you were considering a change and we knew two ways of accomplishing the identical goal in terms of the effect on the system, except one had a lot more technical debt in how you might do it, one of the things that bothers me sometimes about a, a software process is if you go through too much extra work to do the thing, you're actually signing up the rest of the future of humanity to like maintain technical debt yes. forever. I'm like, but it I, actually might not yeah. be, the, like we might be able to swallow a small amount of governance now for saving like a bunch of complexity and potential risk in the future. Well, well let's go down that road. In in what instances would you see a hard fork as as not an absolute no? Like for each of you, what what? what well, I agree with Jimmy that the, hard, the you don't want to do. See the the way it kind of um, played out was for a while. I thought, or and I guess people agreed with me. Also thought that the soft fork sort of protects us from arbitrary tyranny by the development process or something else, because you can stay on your old node and then move to the new node if you want, or stay. But then, now these things have been, just these ways of discovered that equivocate the hard and soft work, these sort of modern uh, things that are, make it so that they're, they're very similar in terms of what you can do. And so the way I see it, we lose some of the protection. And then what I, my BIP, BIP 300, is really about ending all soft and hard forks and putting them into, to some extent, uh, so that the protocol can do an unlimited number of hard and soft forks without actually, without actually changing at all. So the protocol can have a fixed amount of code. You don't need to do any pull requests or write anything else. And I kind of feel that we should move towards the direction of not uh, changing layer one Bitcoin I'll, code I'll, at all. I'll give you a really concrete one where I think it's okay, which is if we did a soft fork that turned out to be constitutory for a user who can demonstrate that you know, that what they were doing, their funds got stuck, I would advocate for a hard fork to remove that rule and allow the user to get their funds out because it was the, the software community stole money from this person. Mm -hmm. Like, to me, that's a bad thing. And they probably should have been more vocal in that process. But if we have to patch in a hard fork to say, we will allow this transaction to proceed to restore this person's funds, I, I think that that would, at least from my perspective, like, I don't love the governance around it, but that would be in the shape of the right thing to do. Well, that, that would be interesting, because you're kind of assuming that an evil software could go through, and that you have to reverse Not, 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 not evil. So for example, if I wrote a smart contract that was like in early days of Bitcoin uh -huh. using opcat to uh -huh. do something, and then cat got soft worked out, mm -hmm. which it did, 
and then I demonstrated, hey, look, like imagine, like, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, Hal Finney comes back and he's like, hey, you know, by the way, like when, and he was still, you know, around at this point, but he's like, by the way, when you did this, I couldn't advocate for myself, but I got unfrozen and like, I now I can't get to my coins because you thought, you know, and, and we talk about doing these things all the time. Um, there's this thing called, and I don't want to pick on anyone in particular, but like the great consensus cleanup to clean up some of these really like edge condition things that we don't think anybody actually uses. But if somebody relied on that, I would want to honor the reliance interest. So, but to, to push back against that, isn't that setting the same kind of precedent that was set with the Dow? Yeah, I, I, I kind of agree with what you're saying here, because I, I, I don't think you want to hard fork for any of that stuff. If, if like, you should, the time to speak up is at the hard, uh, at, at the soft fork. Hey, you're going to confiscate some of my money. If, if you don't do that at that point, now it's like, oh, you know what? Uh, by the way, I have this thing. Ah, like, so I gotcha. Didn't we just say the whole point <laughs> of the soft fork was that if you don't want to be a part of whatever these people are doing, you can ignore what's going on? What yes, you but you were saying that before, but that's also the, the, yeah. the feature of it that's now like that, uh, sort of fading away and doesn't, it's not present. Well, no, like, I, I, I didn't, I didn't the point, say that. I said it's yeah. backwards compatible. Well, like if the, if, I think part of the point of the soft fork is that like mm -hmm. a user who, and these aren't things that are like necessarily like evil, it's just like things that we do that have an unanticipated consequence. But like if you are a, you know, relying on this thing and you're not paying attention to what's happening, like this is a big deal for us developers is that, we don't want to make it feel like the community has to pay attention to what we're doing. We actually would prefer, uh, not for like reasons of like hiding stuff, but we'd prefer if we operated in a way that most of Bitcoin doesn't have to care if we're doing something to tinker with it. But if that does happen, like I, I just don't, you know, like, like I, I would see if I were involved in such a thing, I feel a personal responsibility to work on restoring funds. And maybe if it's a small amount of money, you can just pay it out as like a, okay, sure, we'll make you whole. But I, I do think that it's that it's like sort of a, like, it, it ruins part of the promise of softworks if somebody can come forward later and be like, you did something that's incompatible with what I was doing, and now my funds are frozen. You know, I think I can reply to that by answering your question about what kind of hard fork actually would work in practice, maybe, um, because it doesn't make any difference what I think might, I might like or whatever, but um, I think you'd really have to get buy-in from the most important group in Bitcoin, which is the Bitcoin investor. And they are probably not technical, which is means that they, the status quo will have an enormous amount of leverage, for lack of a better word. And um, they, you also need to, to make it seem as though this is in their best interest, which probably would, it would be almost impossible if you were saying, like, well, some people lost their money somehow and we need to get it back. They, I would imagine it would make a lot of people nervous. And so I, I'm not, I, I share your suspicion that that would that type of a hard fork to reassign funds to people would be very, would be yeah. viewed with that. It, it would be very skeptical. And also like we're, we're, we're doing like a presumption on top of a presumption that there's a soft fork that somehow confiscates someone's funds because it was used in this very weird way. An example would be like before SegWit, somebody used the you know, particular mm -hmm. form and uh, it's, okay, now, now you can't redeem it because you know, SegWit rules make it so that you can't, you, you can't redeem that. Like, that's a very specific, like you, you almost have to be pathological to have done that. And, it, it's, it, and we try <laughs> to sort of like make sure that doesn't happen. And it's, it, it, it's like, such a corner case to me that I, I, I don't see this as like yeah. a, well, a thing that so, would so, realistically so there, happen. There, there is something uh, where like in Bitcoin, um, we have something called like the like sequence field. Mm -hmm. And usually, well, 
let me jump up for a second. Usually when we have one of these things like a SegWit version, we try to reserve it and make it so it's really hard to send to the network. So we're kind of communicating very clearly like, hey, you shouldn't rely on using this thing because it's for an upgrade. If you use it, like we can't guarantee what will happen. So it's kind of undefined behavior. And programmers, we all love undefined behavior, right? <laughs> so that, that's kind of OK. Use undefined behavior, get screwed. Like that, that's, that's a clear contract. But what happened is we had for n sequence, which is how you do uh, a relative time lock in Bitcoin, we had something that was intended for future upgrades, but we forgot to do this thing where we don't let you send it to the network. And so people actually started using it. And recently, I, I found this, and I was like, hey, we actually kind of screwed up on this. We don't prevent people from broadcasting this. Is anybody using this? Because you probably, like, undocumented, unspecified behavior. And then we were like, OK, no one's using it. Good. Maybe we can do a, just not even a software, just a policy change to make them unbroadcastable. And then people from the Lightning Network were like, no, actually, we decided to put some extra metadata in there because we needed a memo field. And we're like, why? And they're like, oh, well, it's the cheapest place to put it. And we're like, OK, so now we've, like, kind of, and this is kind of still being de debated and discussed, but like now we've maybe like permanently burned end sequence for future upgrades. And other people have been like, no, we haven't burned it. We just need to do this trick and that trick and this other trick. I'm like, I, I personally like, yes. I'm not sure. Is it, can, a, can like a behavioral norm or a tradition become a mandatory soft fork or something? Yeah, yeah. possible. And um, we, have a, we have four bytes, and every transaction has a version field that it's like, what if people started using that for yeah. something? Does that just? We kind of do, right? Uh, I've, I've checked. Yeah. Uh, but well, we use like three of the, of the four billion, we use like. Yeah, well, well yeah. I guess that, that, that's where I was just saying, you know, in this example, this is entirely something where I could imagine that if I had, like, and if I weren't, you know, in, not, maybe just like a very selfish developer, I could have been like, I noticed this thing, but I want to propose something for end sequence. And so I'm just not going to tell people about this issue. And we might have gotten pretty far down the software path before anybody actually noticed that, like, hey, actually, we have a hard dependency on, on using this. And that's an example where I just think that these things are at the limits of our capabilities as like a software community. Well, I, I mean, in a sense, like the, uh, you, you don't want to disenfranchise the people that are currently like kind of using it. And, and, you know, like there's no permission required. That's, that's kind of the whole point. So if some people are using it, then, you know, I mean, yeah, it, it sucks as a developer because you don't have as much freedom to use certain fields or whatever. But that's kind of the burden that you have as somebody that's trying to add features that you want to add. That, I think that's entirely fair. It's, it's, it's OK that you know, sequence field is used in a way that maybe you, you don't like, but you know, it is what it is. It's, you can't force anybody on the network. That's the So I wanna, we've, we've been discussing a lot about things that can go wrong with soft forks, implications mm -hmm. for people, uh, despite it being a backwards compatible mechanism. I'd like to talk a little bit about, um, right now we're talking about preventing bad things being put into the code. But I, on the other side of things, we also want to, uh, for the time that it's still malleable enough to introduce these types of things, things that can uh, give us huge improvements in Bitcoin, we still want to be able to do them. And I want to maybe dive down the road of, of activation methods and what we've gleaned from things like, like SegWit, uh, because Obviously, there was, we, we had some difficult time there. Uh, things that should not have been maybe as contentious uh, as they were uh, became contentious. So what do you guys feel that we learned about activation methods from SegWit to start with? Well, I, I, I don't know if like 
we can assign moral value, like saying we should ha it should have been easier or whatever. It was what it was, right? Yeah. And there, there's no sort of moral judgment that I, I think we can really cast on it. What, what I will say, though, is that what we showed was that the corporations are, were not in control. And that was a major, major event in Bitcoin history. And it's not a coincidence that Bitcoin went up in price afterwards. I, at least I don't think so, because we proved that the corporations don't control it. Uh, now, like, like what, what's, what's the right way? What, I mean, ultimately, I, I, I'm not sure that it's like a permanent thing, right? Like, oh, 90% is the right number, and that's going to be the case for the rest of time or whatever. I, I think each soft fork has its own sort of like sort of, uh, um, environment in which it has to activate, and it ha it, you, you have to get consensus whatever way you can for that particular software mm -hmm. with each one. Um, and that kind of sucks for people like, the <laughs> pe <laughs> like yes. that, that are on stage with me because yeah, we, we, they uh, want to get something on there. And it's like, yes, well, what's the process? Well, I, I hate to tell you, but there, there is no process. Uh, like you, yes, you just kind of have to go get consensus. And I don't know exactly what that looks like. Yeah. But it's a, it, the burden is on you to prove to the rest of the community that this is something that's desirable. Yeah, I can tell you, and certainly I think Jeremy will agree that it's very Kafka-esque. You're just sort of like, oh, get consensus, and it's yeah. like, oh, okay, thanks. Early, oh, earlier okay. I said it's like kind of Groundhog Day. You come out, you see if your status <laughs> there. Is, is there consensus today? But, oh. um, I think just kind of adding on to that, I think people really want to uh, learn from anecdotes, and I only care to learn from data uh, is sort of my perspective on this, and I don't think that there's any generalizable lesson out of what happened with SegWit, other than maybe oh, corporations like don't have this unilateral control. Like if they did, we would have seen something else in this anecdote. Um, but even that is not like the most useful thing, because maybe for like a less controversial, because SegWit had controversy around it. Maybe it itself wasn't as controversial, but hey, it kind of was a little bit contradictory to some miners who developed some IP around it, right? And that's like mm -hmm. maybe something that we are like we fucked up, like sorry for the live streamers or whatever, but you know we messed up and uh, you know we, we don't want to uh, uh, we we really strive not to break anyone's mining hardware, yeah. and that's something that like I think it's a big egg on the face of the you know development community that like okay like if if I wanted to learn something it'd be like we should probably have much better integration testing that we have some way of making sure uh, that you know every developer is like intimately familiar with how mining hardware works so that maybe we can you know, avoid things like this in the future. That said, from my perspective, we're probably not gonna have a lot of forks that are like SegWit, even soft forks. Most of them are much simpler, so that if you're trying to generalize a lesson from SegWit activation for check template verify, which is, you know, what I work on, it's like, I think most of the learnings there just don't really map. Um, you know, there's some stuff that maps, but like, it's a very different thing, it's a very different mining climate, um, and it's a change that is just like, it's not coming in to solve something that's controversial. It's something that every, it's in a problem space that I think most people are like, oh, we're gonna make the, uh, I, I say, the, make the hardest money ever even harder, yeah. right? And it's like, okay, if we can all agree on that, um, we can all agree on things like self-custody, like I think that those are things that just like the, the, the type of thing, the, the lessons of like, oh, these things have to be really hard and we've gotta really like be afraid of like pissing people off. It's like, yeah, I, I'm not sure that everything goes through that same sort of gauntlet. So, I mean, you know, SegWit was controversial. You're saying there's not a lot of those that are, are likely to. We did just have a, a large uh, upgrade soft fork that was not uh, especially controversial, Taproot. Um, and so I'm wondering if, if you guys 
just for people watching that are unfamiliar, maybe just touch on what that enabled for us and, uh, and, and where that can go and, and things that are still needed beyond that that could uh, be implemented later. But start with, what, what did Taproot do for us? Well, for me, I, I think it gave us a lot more privacy. Uh, so you, you have this mass syntax tree, and you have, you, you have the single key unlock. on. Uh, so you have the key spend and the, um, and the script spend. And you, you, uh, those were two different types of addresses all throughout Bitcoin's history up until Taproot. So you had the pated pubkey hash addresses, the addresses that start with the one, pated script hash addresses, which are the addresses that start with the three. Um, even within SegWit, there was the BEC32 addresses that were shorter and then the BEC32 addresses that were longer. One was pay-to-witness pubkey hash, the other one was pay-to-witness script hash. You've combined those, so essentially you can't tell which one is, and in fact, all taproot uh, spends can, can be uh, one or the other, and you have the option of both, and there's no real penalty that you're paying for that. Um, and that, that gives you additional privacy, but also you have this tap tree, so you, you, you can make some very, very complicated scripts or like have many, many different conditions under which you can unlock it, and many of them can be hidden behind, uh, you know, many, um, you know, very deep in the mass tree and so on. So, you know, depending on the probability of their execution. Um, and that, th this gives us a lot more flexibility in sort of how we spend, uh, you know, have backups to our funds and stuff, stuff like that, most of which hasn't really been you know, adopted by wallets and so on. So I, I look forward to sort of seeing a lot of that. Um, but I, I would say that the main benefit is that we, we've sort of upgraded the security for each user. So you, you have this ability to go and back up your wallet to you know, two of three of this and four or five of this and you know, even like um, have you know, uh, public companies or something that you know, publish their public key and ha have it possible for them to unlock it and they don't even know that they hold those keys, right? Like th those are some really cool things that we can have within Taproot. Um, you know, so I, I see it as like a beneficial software, but to go back a little bit to you know, uh, you know, what, what, uh, what Jeremy said, and I think he's absolutely right on this, you know, the, the process for SegWit and Taproot, I, I really don't think you can have generalized lessons. And I see that kind of as a feature, not a bug, right? Like, it is frustrating for these guys, obviously, <laughs> to, you know, have to go and try to find, okay, how do I get consensus? And, you know, Paul described it as Kafka-esque or whatever. It's like, how do, how do I convince? Well, you know, it, if we had, like, a strict process or something, that I, I think that would imply that we have a permanent governance model or something, right? Like, and that's exactly what we don't want. This is a decentralized network. Yeah. And in a decentralized network, what you need to do is convince the people that are part of that decentralized network. Mm -hmm. And there are more people coming in and out of this decentralized network all the time. So we should expect the sort of process by which we add softworks to be different each time because we have more constituents, we have more use cases, we have different features, different thing, uh, things that are happening, and in a sense, like, each, each soft work has to be different because you have different people using it, and that's a good thing. I, I don't see that as a bad thing. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I don't think that the controversy about SegWit, I think, was almost 0% about the actual SegWit part. Mm -hmm. I don't, I'm even skeptical that ASIC Boost had anything to do with it. Mm -hmm. um, 
So I totally agree with that. It's an extra layer of irony with BIP300 because what I'm sort of saying is that it should, I, I can make it not, if you just give me this one thing, it won't be Kafkaesque anymore because <laughs> it will be, uh, it, there won't be any more changes to layer one Bitcoin. And if you want to do any harder soft forks, the process is now sort of inside the BIP300 activation, which occurs without any, anyone changing any lines of So code. what's the pushback to that? Well, I think it's just a very abstract idea. I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, uh, like, I so should have directed this towards Yeah, you should have directed towards them. Um, I think part of it, though, is that BIP300 is about escaping uh, Bitcoin Core to go to a different piece of software. And I think that's inherently, that, I think that baffles people, actually. People are like, but don't we have everything perfect in Bitcoin Core? I, you know, I really don't like that. Like, Lightning requires external software, you know, yeah. for example. It's like, yeah, so I think that, um, so right, it doesn't really, it doesn't really apply, but I think that's part of what people sort of stumble over. It's also, there's other features of it that are very different or maybe, um, like it, it alters who is the most important person, I think, to some extent. So that, I think, may have something to do with it. But I think it's also the, the since it opens up this unlimited space of, of, of possibility, uh, people are, the very conservative Bitcoiner is sort of trying to wonder, um, well, will one of those infinite things be really, really bad? And the answer is no, because BIP300 is designed very cleverly so that your full node is totally ignoring everything that is happening on those other networks, which is unlike the hard fork and unlike even the, the what we thought the soft fork had that property, but it doesn't really have that property. So this is a, designed to be a big improvement on the process, but it must go, since it doesn't exist yet, it must go through the process. Maybe instead of like did, hard then fork, soft fork, it. you yeah. should rename drive chains to over easy forks. Yeah, over easy fork. <laughs> I think people are saying like, uh, people have tried to change the terminology. I wrote a whole article about this at one point about people's changing the terminology and how the existing terminology doesn't really work because, and then there's a very funny thread between, I mean, I don't know how far we should just throw this out into like other people, but there's a Reddit thread between Adam Back and Luke Dash Jr. where they're like, they're going back and forth about whether or not something is a hard fork and it's very funny. It's like, they really don't agree, but it's like, it's because the, the concepts have, um, they don't have the properties that people thought they had, I think, when it originally um, well, was defined. And that's, that's something that we, we really haven't defined in this talk, yeah. right, is, is the definition of a soft fork. And you know, like well, we, we we've thrown around terms like evil soft fork or whatever. Yeah. And there, uh, and th this is a little bit of a problem because you know, like for some uh, developers, like that's not a soft fork; that's actually a hard fork or something like that. And it's like yeah. th these are these are you know these things matter. Like they're they're technical minutiae that's not transparent to most users, but they they matter. Um, and you know th this is where you know. Consensus building is yeah. especially hard. Again, I feel for these yes. guys, right? Because <laughs> yeah. it's not easy. It's really not. Yeah. So we've got about four minutes left. Um, I think the last thing I'm going to lob at you guys is what do you see as what's next coming down the pipeline? And it also, at what point, yeah. if ever, does Bitcoin just ossify and these conversations are moot? I don't know. Uh, so I guess like in ossification, it's a popular topic. People probably don't necessarily know what that means. It means the, the thing turns to bone. It's like you can't change it anymore, and so don't stop trying. Yeah. Um, and it also is kind of a pun because it's like open source software. So mm -hmm. the thing is, if you look at like societies in general through history, they have some amount of like technologically complicated product that they can produce, and it's a curve. 
And then when that curve starts turning the other way, uh, so the societies usually like imminently collapse. It's just sort of a phenomenon of like, okay, there's some sort of you know the decline of the Roman Empire. It's like, okay, well, you look at the technologies they were producing, and I think that for this ossification, like maybe we can get Bitcoin to the point, but if we if we get to a point where we don't have the type of developers available who could produce the same type of artifact, I think we get ourselves into really hot water, um, just in terms of like Bitcoin as a society. Um, and, and that's something that really uh, concerns me. And, and I think one of the th ways that you defray that is by keeping talent fresh that can actually work on these complicated topics and understands how Bitcoin even works. And that's something that, that does concern me in terms of like, is this ossification of Bitcoin going to happen? It's like, I actually think it's sort of like the demise of Bitcoin if it does, even though I think the idea of we wouldn't have to change it is appealing. Yeah, I'm going to disagree with that because I, I really don't think of this as technology first. I think of it as money first. And money is better when it doesn't change. And at some point, yeah, I think it'll ossify. And I, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because you have rules that are permanently in place and you know how to plan for the future as a result of money being permanent. And, and that ability to plan for the future is critical to entrepreneurship, to civilization building and all that stuff. And, you know, yeah, there, there are sort of like technological curves. It's usually because of bad money that you get sort of like this uh, technological fall off or something like that because you allow in a lot more rent seekers and so on. So for me, I don't see Bitcoin that way that if we stop like soft working or something or adding features that it suddenly like means that we're on the decline or something like that. Money that stays, that, that's easy to predict is a very good feature of civilization. I see that as like a stable foundation uh, of uh, having a civilization built on the stable foundation of money as a very good thing and allowing, uh, which allows civilization to thrive. Uh, I, I would just say, yeah, and I know we're really on time, but like I find bugs like relatively often and like to fix them, like I have to have a lot of specialized knowledge. And if we don't know, have people who are understanding how these things work, adversaries will continue to find them and then they can take out the system over time. Yeah, that, that's what scares me about it. I'll, yeah. I'll see it at that. I'll yeah. leave it to Paul. You got one minute left. Okay, Final great. Words. I think it's a very nuanced point. Um, I think there's some things that have ossified, like you can argue different parts of like the network, the in, uh, infrastructure of the internet uh, have sort of, they're sort of here to stay forever, warts and all, right? Uh, I mean, again, obviously, I'm a proponent of this BIP 300 thing, which, and then ossifying. So I, I am concerned about the exactly what you're talking about, which is that we want something reliable for the long term that that is not is tamper resistant, basically. But I also agree with Jeremy because I do think that I don't, I, you know, I don't agree that money is actually very stable across time. I mean, after all, it moved from shells to gold, and then it became banknote money. You can say whether or not you, you hate that, but that, and then it's sort of becoming Bitcoin. But these are, those are all changes. And I'm not sure that in the modern world, people are very, you well, know, people well, are very... I think in a sense, like, what matters for Bitcoin is the UTXO set. Yeah. And that's, like, ultimately the thing that matters a lot. And we can have any, you know, system that we devise around that, but it's really the property rights system that we have to maintain over time. Awesome. I, I think we'll leave it there. Uh, gentlemen, thank you thank so you. much for being thank here. You. Let's give them a big round of applause. Hello. How's everybody doing? Ooh. Got that uh, nice belly full of food, hopefully, and ready to listen to a talk about discrete log contracts. And so let's just start off with a raise of hands. 
How many people have heard of DLCs before? Okay, quite a few people. How many people have tried DLCs before? <laughs> quite a few less people, so I, you know, I, I got to start off the talk with a little bit of shilling. We're doing some DLC demos right after this talk by the big moon in the expo hall in the esports gaming arena. If this stuff interests you that we're talking about today, um, come get some hands-on experience with it, bring some sats, bring an address that we can send the payout to for a DLC, and a fun bet idea. And uh, you know, what we're going to talk about here today on this panel is kind of you know, what DLCs are, what problems do they solve, and how they actually work. So um, kind of like kicking us off here, I, I want to start with uh, you know, introductions. Uh, Taj, do you want to start? Sure. Uh, so I, I'm Taj Dreija. I've been working on Bitcoin for a long time. Uh, I uh, invented the Lightning Network with Joseph Poon back in 2015, and similar, like, from that, uh, also wrote the paper Discrete Log Contracts uh, a couple years after that, and sort of introduced this way to do smart contracts on Bitcoin. Uh, and I'm actually mostly working on UTXO, a different new Bitcoin thing, um, but today we're talking about DLCs, and so I'm definitely really excited to see that like people are actually starting to use it and stuff, so it's great. Tony. Cool. Hey everyone, I'm Tony. Uh, I'm uh, one of the co-founders and CEO of uh, Atomic Finance. Uh, so we're a Toronto-based startup, uh, super early stage still, but uh, we're building a mobile app for folks to be able to um, put their Bitcoin to work and uh, earn a yield, uh, potentially, uh, on their Bitcoin using options-based strategies that are built on top of DLCs, which uh, we're going to talk more about later today. Um, I started in the space uh, 2017. I actually started on the Ethereum space and then decided to pivot and focus uh, on the Bitcoin side of things later on and you know, found out that, hey, there's actually all this sort of cool functionality that we can build natively, uh, cool products, cool uh, applications that we can build natively on Bitcoin, so why not just do it natively on Bitcoin and focus there and uh, build, build products for Bitcoiners. So yeah, that's a quick intro for me. Hell yeah. Um, I'm Ben. I worked with Chris at Shirtbits for about two years doing DLC stuff. And um, I do a lot now in my free time too, and uh, it helps like build the DLC wallet there, and like Crystal Bowl or Oracle software. Um, me and Justin Moon are working on like a SDK for mobile wallet DLC stuff, but um, all work in progress stuff there. Um, I'm, I'm going to steal a line from uh, Ben on the end here and uh, say, uh, uh, Taj is probably responsible for two inventions that employ a lot of people in this room, yeah. Lightning Network and uh, Discrete Log Contracts. Can I get a raise of hand yeah. if you have employment because of this man here? Yeah. I mean, I, the intent is not job creation. Ideally, Bitcoin <laughs> would be like job destruction. Everyone can just hang out and not have to work, but sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> Utrex, no, there's like four people. Uh, maybe in three or four years, I guess. Right? Yeah, it, it take, takes a little while for it to, yeah. to catch on. But, but yeah, there's more people working on that now too. So. Okay. Okay, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, back to like kind of d discrete log contracts. It's uh, you know why is this an important problem to be solving in the first place? You know we hear about like DeFi over in other blockchain ecosystems, and like Tony, I'm going to kick this over to you. Why this is you know a problem we should be solving in the Bitcoin world? Yeah, um, the way we look at it, um, you know, DLCs is a very interesting way to build some uh, really cool products and primitives, uh, decentralized finance, DeFi products for Bitcoin. Um, and the reason that uh, our team thinks about it and why we think it's necessary to kind of explore ways to build um, Bitcoin DeFi is, is twofold. Um, well, I'll break it down into like, obviously DeFi consists of decentralized and finance. So why, is, why are both of those parts necessary on Bitcoin? Um, the financial part, I think, is, is a bit more obvious. Um, you know, basically, 
kind of like when you look at some of the greatest assets or currencies around the world, um, you know, you notice that there's a very robust and uh, ecosystem of financial tools around them. And I think part of Bitcoin's maturation pro uh, process as a financial asset, as a currency, as a store of value, is that there's going to be more and more financial tools uh, that are built on top of Bitcoin. And I think that you know, financial tools um, you know, are just going to be a large part of that maturation process. In terms of decentralized part of things, um, I think that's where it starts to get a bit more interesting. Um, right now, uh, the way that we look at it, um, there's kind of a big gap or dichotomy between um, Bitcoin finance and uh, Bitcoin the asset today. Um, Bitcoin the asset, as we all know, you know, censorship resistant, verifiable, transparent, all that jazz. Um, but the issue is, you know, when we look at a lot of Bitcoin finance tools that are available today, um, you know, it's kind of the opposite, right? You kind of hand over your coins to them, then you don't know really what happens after the fact. Um, you know, it's, you can't really verify much. Uh, and it even kind of removes the provable scarcity aspect of Bitcoin to some degree because of potential, uh, you know, of rehypothecation and all that kind of stuff. And so that's why, like, we think that it's, it's very necessary to build kind of sound financial tools or decentralized financial tools um, that match, a bit, uh, that, you know, for the most part, match Bitcoin's uh, aspects in terms of, you know, provable scarcity, in terms of verifiability, transparency, all that kind of stuff. Um, and we think that that's, uh, you know, we don't want to replicate some of the same issues that we see in the fiat world, um, you know, uh, happen on Bitcoin. And so why not build sound financial tools from the ground up that also carry most of Bitcoin's best uh, um, traits? Um, that's kind of why we are really kind of strong believers in the need to build Bitcoin DeFi, the need to build sound financial tools for sound money um, natively here on Bitcoin. So um, I, I think that's like a good segue into um, why we haven't seen like as much development for these tools on Bitcoin. And like a, t a question I have for you, Taj, is like kind of like, you know, what's the, what, why, why is it so hard to build things on Bitcoin? Do you think it's a cultural issue that, you know, Bitcoiners don't want this? Or do you think it's a technical issue of they want it, but it's really freaking hard and, yeah. you know, it's not as easy as just deploying a smart contract. Somewhere. Right. So, yeah, the sort of interesting thing is, like, the thing that eventually became discrete log contracts was one, someone I knew, uh, Joey Zhu, back in San Francisco, was like, oh, I'm working on Ethereum. Like, what's that? Like, he explained the idea of Ethereum. You know, this is way before their whole crowd sale. And I was like, can't you do that on Bitcoin? <laughs> and it's like, no, you can't. I'm like, I wonder, there's probably a way. Um, and so, yes, it's, one of the aspects is it's it's easier, right? The e Ethereum ecosystem has all these like tools, and and you can just write whatever crazy thing you want and like lose six hundred million dollars of other people's money. And like, yeah, theoretically, uh, yeah. And and it is it is more difficult in Bitcoin, but I do think there are some technical things that like are fund quite different. Where if you actually look in Ethereum, what people are spending a lot of gas and, and using it for. Um, a lot of it's discovery. And so what we have with discrete law contracts and like, you know, people have worked on it a lot, it's, it's contract execution and you have all this security. It's like, okay, and we always talk about Alice and Bob. It's like, okay, Alice and Bob, you know, Alice is long Bitcoin, Bob is short Bitcoin. So Bob has sort of something like a stable coin and Alice has this like super volatile Bitcoin because she thinks it's going to go up. And that's like a good trade. Like they both want to do this and we have all these really secure ways to make that happen. But we start with Alice and Bob. Yeah. And really, we need to start with Alice doesn't know Bob. Like, yes. nobody knows anything. And, and it, 
you need an order book, you need a marketplace. And I think that is what you sort of see being one of the use cases. One of the things Ethereum does have that is, on the one hand, horrible, because it's enormous and enormously efficient for someone to say, hey, I'm interested in going long this asset. Anyone want, or like, I have an order. I want to buy something for this amount. Mm, I changed it. In my mind, I cancel, right? Because I know that in like Wall Street, it's something like 100 to 1, like total number of orders that go into a market versus order execution, right? Most people put in orders and then cancel them. And, and so you sort of see that uh, recorded for all time in Ethereum, where it's all these orders and cancellations, and it's very inefficient, but people can find each other. And that's one of the hard parts that is sort of still unsolved in Bitcoin land, where you're, you know, same with coin joins, same with a lot of these other protocols. It's like, well, yeah, if you can find your counterparty, we know how to do these things. But finding each other in this like decentralized, trustless way is still something of an open question. So I think that's one of the big hurdles left. And just to, I mean, I 100% agree with that and think that's kind of one of the big unknown problems that we need to solve in the Bitcoin ecosystem is to make that work with the UTXO model. And then, you know, what I call these things is censorship resistant financial markets uh, rather than just kind of censorship resistant money that we have at, at the moment. And that's something that I think other blockchain ecosystems are kicking our butt at just by the sheer fact that it's possible there and, yeah. and well, it's the, not even possible. The, you can see why Bitcoin people don't want it because it's like we don't want hundreds of gigabytes of Absolutely. people trying to find each other recorded for all time that you have to validate, right? It's like, no, don't. that should be offline. That doesn't need to be on the blockchain, but it doesn't need to be somewhere that's decentralized. And so you know, I, I sort of have, actually, this conference started saying, we need a layer two mempool. Yeah. Right, like so, I don't know if that's the cool catchphrase, but like, yeah, we have the mempool. Make it of, happen, Twitter. Yeah, <laughs> we have this mempool where things are sort of floating around, and miners grab stuff and make blocks and make the blockchain. And the mempool is a huge. I mean, people have been talking. You know, so other people today have been talking about you know the open source work on the mempool. It's super important and difficult. We don't really have a layer two mempool. We don't. You know, if you're trying to find counterparties on Lightning, if you're trying to do these things, it's there's all these sort of sporadic peer-to-peer uh, -peer interactions. It's work, but there isn't. What's nice is like there's the mempool and we can sort of all put stuff together. So we don't quite have that as like a layer two thing, but that's sort of still an open question. And there's lots of cool ideas about that. Do you have anything in the works to solve that? Just ask. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a question we keep talking about, but we don't we don't like oh Silverboro not yet yeah maybe. Um, I, I think that's a really uh, fair characterization. It's something I'd you know like to say to the audience. It's a problem we're solving, and you know where does liquidity aggregate and where can you go find, you know, uh, Allison, where can Alice and Bob go to match each other in a decentralized way so we don't have this like regulatory pressure of, uh, you know, depositing your coins on a centralized exchange and then, you know, they, they of course are um, you know, subject to the whims of whatever jurisdiction they're in. And um, I, I think, you know, I think Bitcoiners should take the problem more seriously. But uh, you know, in terms of like what we can do with DLCs, assuming that Alice and Bob have found each other already, can we just like enumerate some of the, the use cases of, uh, you know, what types of contracts we can do? Uh, ben, do you, do, you, do you maybe want to take that? I mean, like, it's cool. You can do almost anything. Like, they have the options contracts where you're betting on the price of Bitcoin. You know, I also build a game where you just bet on Super Smash Bros. games. Or you can bet, you know, you guys are doing the thing, how long is Justin Moon's mullet? Like, uh, <laughs> like you, can, you can do, like, anything. It's, it's super 230, cool. 2.30, be there. How long is Justin Moon's mullet? <laughs> so, like, because um, like, all you're doing is having Oracle sign a message of what something is. So it could be, you know, the Bitcoin price. It could be the length of a mullet. It could be a Smash Bros. game. It could be, like, what's the coordination of the stars or something. Like, it can be almost anything. So... 
it opens up like a million use cases, and you can like with that you can make lots of cool stuff. Where like you know, is it deciding what the Bitcoin price? So you could say like, what's the execution of this script, and then make a real like actual smart contract that way. Yeah, I mean, I think like one of the the most clever things about uh, DLCs is like the. The scripting is very minimal and intentionally a lot of information is left off chain. And uh, maybe Ben or Taj, you guys want to speak to kind of how that's advantageous from a privacy and scalability perspective? But Ben, do you want to? Yeah, I mean, it's huge. So, like, um, you know, today, like, if you're using Ethereum, you're saying, like, this is everything I'm doing. Here's the exact price I'm trying to buy at. And, like, they have a huge problem where the, there's, like, a minor extracted value where they just front run all the orders because they know what everyone's trying to do and just make free money. In Bitcoin, or at least in DLCs, you can't do that because all of my contract data is off-chain just between me and my counterparty, just like in a database that we own. And the, uh, and the actual contract is just like negotiating between us, and we, all results in is spending from a multi-sig and then spending out of it. That's all anyone can see. So they don't know like, what we're betting on, if we are even betting, and um, even your, like, your Oracle doesn't know. So they, they might, like, maybe they you know, see your IP address, ping the server, and it's like, oh, they got the Bitcoin price. But they don't know if you're short or long, what the, how big your bet was, anything like that. So it's extremely private that way. And then since all this is all off-chain and just like two transactions, it's a lot more scalable. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned, a, I guess, a, a word that we haven't actually defined yet on this talk, but uh, you know, what is an oracle? Does any, did anybody want to take that question? Tad? Sure, it's, you know, <laughs> some, you, you need a bridge from the real world. Why, why, why can't Bitcoin go and just know what the Bitcoin price is? Why yeah. can't Bitcoin know who won the Super Bowl? Like, why don't we just embed an HTTP client into Bitcoin and so, have it reach out and consensus you know, by, figure out how long Justin Moon's mullet is? Yeah, <laughs> no, none of these chains. Like, you know, everything needs an oracle because you can't you you can't assume consensus on this thing that fundamentally we don't have consensus on, right? Like, what's the temperature outside? Well, where outside? You know, and and so you need some kind of entity to just post and say, here, this is the score of the Super Bowl. Um, and, and you do have to trust that entity. And this is like a problem um, that, I don't know, there's like whole entire altcoins that are entirely devoted to oracles. I don't know what they're doing. But like, to me, <laughs> to me, it's always like, well, you want to minimize, like here's this trust needed. And so you want to minimize that, right? Like we, we can't really get around it, but we want to reduce the power of the, this oracle as much as possible. So the goal is sort of like, let's make the oracle as, oblivious as possible to what's going on. So they report this data, but they don't see what people are doing with it, or they don't see how many contracts are using this or anything like that. Um, so to try to, and also cryptographically, they can't equivocate. They can't um, say, oh, the Rams won the Super Bowl. No, the you know, Oilers won the Super Bowl. They can't, they can't do both at the same time without losing their private keys, uh, which is sort of a nice extra thing. But yeah, it's, it's you know some entity in the real world maybe known, maybe anonymous, that reports on real-world data. Um, and, th and that report doesn't have to go into the blockchain, and ideally won't, right? So that, that report influences the blockchain, but can be on a website or something. And so that's, that's sort of the, you know, my goal is like limit the oracles. Yeah. Um, and hopefully discrete law contracts can help do that. And I, I think that's such a valuable point about how the data is not going into the blockchain itself. And another, you know, property of this is that this, the way the DLC specification works is this same oracle can be used across different blockchain ecosystems. And you know we're at a Bitcoin conference today, but it's really nice not to have to uh, have the oracle have uh, you know a different reputation for you know the 
Litecoin blockchain versus the Zcash blockchain versus the Bitcoin blockchain. The same oracle can be used across the entire DLC ecosystem and uh, you kind of prevent this like fragmentation going on and also, uh, you know, an oracle can build a reputation that way. And we are like seeing that, like the Link guys announced they're trying to do DLC stuff. So like, mm -hmm. it's kind of cool that like the shit coins are coming and trying to like adopt our stuff, which rarely happens. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it is really cool. Do you have any uh, opinions on what oracles should report on versus not reporting on? Or, uh, you know, what, what yeah. is the limitations of an oracle? I, like, how I think about it is, you know, you should always make sure if you're going to be an oracle in the DLC ecosystem, the event has to be very cut and dry of what happened. And, like, Taj was kind of hinting at this earlier of, like, you know, if... What, what's the temperature outside? You need to define like what the thing that you're going to attest to is very um, airtight as possible, kind of almost like a legal agreement. Otherwise, you can have ambiguity, and uh, uh, your smart contract execution is only as good as the uh, Oracle's input into the, you know, the smart contract itself. Um, another thing that we've worked on in, in the DLC spec is uh, multi-oracle stuff. And I know, Ben, you, you, you've done a lot of work on that. Do you want to share? Yeah, it's like what Taj was saying was like, you know, you have to trust this one entity. But it's nice in DLCs, we can kind of actually just trust multiple entities and it's like, you know, have this like two of three like multi-sig of oracles where you could do something like, you know, maybe, uh, you know, I'm good friends with Chris, but maybe, you know, I don't totally trust him on reporting the weather. But I trust all three of these guys together. So I say if two of the three say it's 60 degrees, I get the money. And if one lies, then I'm okay. And uh, so it's a really nice uh, property, and it um, scales pretty well, where like, your contracts on-chain is the exact same still. You just need more data off-chain. But um, you're able to like, you know, abstract out all these things and kind of protect yourself there if you have multiple oracles. Yeah. Um, another uh, thing that comes up a lot is, like, should oracles be paid? Should they not be paid? Uh, did, does anyone have any thoughts on, on the panel about uh, you know, compensation for the services that oracles are providing? I think that like it depends. Um, basically, it's it's an interesting it's it's an interesting like question because like oh does an oracle being paid open up the door for potential collusion or whatever? Um, but like at the, it's it's also interesting because maybe oracle should be thought of as a public good or something like that. Um, and so yeah, it's it's an interesting kind of like discussion topic. I think that um, you know if if uh, you know if 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 say I'm, I'm building a product and I need you know, an oracle with uh, you know, a guaranteed amount of uptime or something like that or some, some sort of kind of like um, you know, minimum level of service, then you know, maybe then it makes sense for me to pay a little bit more to like kind of guarantee that kind of like uh, uptime and stuff like that. But uh, otherwise, like, um, I mean, it's, it's certainly an open question. So, uh, curious to hear what uh, Taj and Ben have to say. Yeah. I mean, I think like like the actually operational cost of running an Oracle is like basically zero. It's like you post 64 bytes, like you know when an event happens, that's about it. Right. So like you know all you're doing is you know making an HTTP request probably to like you know NFL.com to get the score and then posting it. So it, it they don't totally need to be paid. It is good like you know as an Oracle you want to be paid because who doesn't like getting paid? But um, it is like I don't think it's a huge problem of like incentives like. Most likely, like, you know, people will just set up oracles and be like, oh, it just runs on AWS now forever, and they'll sign every game. They don't need to worry about it anymore. And I think, like, doing things like open source oracles, where, like, you open source, like, my NFL oracle that signs every NFL game, then everyone can run this now, and we can all see, like, oh, this one's fucking up. He's signing the wrong thing. 
and then you know you just switch over to new oracles. Like you don't need to like have these all these like you know super like well you know defined things. Like just let's just have an NFL oracle and you know, everyone runs it. I think one of like yeah, I definitely agree. It's it's not that hard, right? You mm -hmm. just sign a message, so it's not like you know you're a minor or anything. Um, I think it's the the one use case I keep coming back to is like the price of Bitcoin, right? People want to bet on that. We see there's all these stable, co you know, Tether and USDC, and it's just like I'm always very curious at like why people use them because it seems like a horrible idea, and one day it's just going to get like seized by some government and everyone loses everything. But um, or, or not, but, but yeah, but it's like well, you can sort of get that action with DLCs where it's like okay, I, I want a constant dollar price contract, and so the Bitcoin price seems very important. And it does feel like oracles possibly in that case would be incentivized from non, without getting paid. So if you're an exchange, you're you know, Gemini, Kraken, you say, well, I want, if there are people making derivatives contracts based on the price of Bitcoin, I want their price to be our price. And most of the exchanges are very, you know, very close in price, but not always, you know, there, there can be a little bit of a divergence here and there. Um, and they can say, well, if you are doing these derivatives contracts, we want you to use you know, Kraken's price, and then that'll make more people want to trade on Kraken because you can sort of net it out. Um, and and you know, you're already trusting these exchanges to like, hold gazillions of Bitcoin, so trusting them to like, say what the last trade price is seems like a much lower ask than that. So that does seem like you know, it's not happening now, but it could in the future where, where exchanges want uh, to be oracles and want to get that. It does out. happen now. They like Coinbase. I think they do like a oracle for like Ethereum and stuff. So it's not right. far fetched for them to do yeah. it for Bitcoin. Yeah, and that would that would be a fun. You know, so you have the sort of Bitcoin fix where everyone's like, you know, trading on this like very important auction price of like, okay, mm -hmm. here's the price of Bitcoin for the day or something. That'd be cool. And we're we're starting to see that maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think another like interesting topic here is like um, whether. Going back to how do Alice and Bob find each other in a decentralized fashion is very, very hard in the, the UTXO world, and it can be done in other blockchains, although really inefficiently and with no privacy, basically. So um, another like idea that I guess I've been thinking about is, like, is it important that you retain custody of the Bitcoin uh, while the matching happens, if the matching happens fast? So like, imagine I deposit money into Kraken, they do what they're really good at, which is matching buyers and sellers, and they print a Bitcoin transaction that represents the DLC out back. Does anyone have uh, thoughts on that or why it's good, why it might be bad? Uh, any hot takes? And it doesn't bring you the censorship-resistant financial market still, which kind of is the goal here. But it is a, I mean, it is a like solution. Like, um, and honestly, it should be a spectrum. Like, you know, we can have the most decentralized version where it's like. I don't know, like some like actual peer-to-peer -peer network that we use to negotiate these offers, and you can have the like you know, the centralized ones where you you know deposit the crack and spit out a DLC, and you can have things in the middle. So um, they're they're all revival. We just kind of need to try them all out and see which one sticks. Yeah, I mean, I I I, I think my my um, thinking is like evolving on this about minimizing the amount of time that somebody else has custody of your Bitcoin, if that's. 30 seconds to match a trade. I think that's a pretty acceptable uh, amount of time. If you know the, the exchange in question uh, is doing funky business, people will stop depositing money into their exchange almost immediately. And uh, you just got to make sure you're not using that same exchange as the Oracle. And you do end up having some of the censorship resistance to 
uh, at least is how I've been thinking about it. Of course, that requires like a large amount of buy-in from the existing exchanges, which are pretty uh, vehemently against adopting any sort of Bitcoin tooling, it seems. But uh, maybe, maybe someday. Another model would be sort of a, a broker model where you know, there's one Bob and lots of Alice's. And so everyone's like, yeah, that's, that's Bob. Like everyone connects to this one broker and they're sort of a party to every trade. And, and Bob doesn't necessarily have to take a position. They could say, well, Alice over here wants to go short Bitcoin and Alice over here wants to go long Bitcoin. So I sort of net that out. Well, and I think yeah. that's very similar to the atomic fi finance yeah. model, if I'm not mistaken. Tony, do you want to speak to that uh, a little bit more? Yeah, so basically like, um uh, how, how for us, how it works is like basically we do our matching like through an IRC channel, kind of similar to um, Lightning Pool and stuff like that, or Joint Markets, right? Um, and uh, um, basically, like, kind of just like you know, users are coming on board on the app. You know, it's very seamless on, on the front end for them, just that tap button. But in the back end, what's happening is like you know, generating an offer message on the IRC channel, and then kind of like matching that up with a uh, market maker um, on the other side. So it's kind of like very simple, stuff like that. I think like um, remains to be seen kind of like what, uh, you know, longer term, what the matching stuff will, will look like and if we standardize on one thing and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, that's, uh, uh, I guess, an open question once again. Yeah. yeah. Um, another thing that I think is like really interesting about DLCs is like, uh, you know, we've already talked about contract privacy. So somebody that's a third party can't see what you're betting on. Um, without having Alice or Bob reveal that information to them. Uh, you know, another interesting component of DLCs I think that's kind of underrated is how uh, it's a dual-funded protocol. It requires Alice and Bob to uh, put in some of their own Bitcoin. And uh, Ben, do you want to speak to just kind of how that sometimes that can have a privacy impact at the transact or blockchain level? Yeah, so like um, today, like when chain analysis companies like try to figure out like what this transaction is, they generally give the assumption that all the inputs in the transaction belong to the same person. So, but with DLCs, it's, you're gonna have you and your counterparty's inputs in there. So you're gonna break that heuristic. And um, if they don't know this is DLC, then they might accidentally like, you know, link your two walls together. And now you guys um, you know, screwed a chain analysis, so good job. And um, it's really nice. And it's um, great too, because it just goes, in, like we're just sending Bitcoin to a multi-sig and then out. So it's the exact same on-chain footprint as like a dual-funded lighting channel. And um, so you get this really high, nice privacy where it doesn't even look like a DLC always. It could just be like, and then once we have Taproot as well, it just looks like a normal payment. So it has like really nice uh, benefits there. Yeah, I mean, and I, I think uh, any time you can obscure that transaction graph, it uh, again makes the analysis company's jobs harder. And that should be any sort of dual funded protocol has that property as far as I'm aware. Yeah. And so we, we should all be encouraging dual funded lightning channels, things like DLCs, especially if you're a privacy advocate and like really deeply care about that stuff. So you, uh, you know, make the heuristics that these companies use. Uh, a, a little bit harder to analyze where coins are going and why they're going there. Um, but Ben, uh, you also brought up uh, Taproot, you know, the new uh, uh, upgrade to the Bitcoin network that got shipped in November of uh, 2021 or something like that. Uh, could, could you uh, speak to how uh, DLCs might evolve or maybe Taj, you, you want to chime in there too, of how DLCs can evolve in a Taproot world? Maybe start with Taj. Sure, yeah, Taproot, I mean, I, I can say Taproot, but then there's also a bunch of other changes people have been talking about, especially in the last couple months on like mailing lists, where uh, Taproot can help a bit with privacy and also the fact that Taproot can sort of build these trees of uh, potential spending paths 
in a single output script will let you, you know, have some more uh, on-chain efficiency as well. But there's also other things that we've been looking at that aren't something that you know Bitcoin supports now. And it's like, hey, if you had something like SigHash uh, any prevout, which is something that people have been looking at for years, and like, hey, you could do different Lightning Network style stuff like L2 with this. You could also make uh, DLCs more transferable. So you could sort of pre-sign transfer. Uh, one of the issues with DLCs is once you're in a contract, if your counterparty's gone, you're stuck in that contract, right, until it expires. But if you had uh, some other different opcodes as well, you could have it so that you could transfer it to someone else without your counterparty being online, because basically your counterparty pre-signs off on any transfer. Uh, also with op uh, CTV, there's ways to increase the efficiency as well. And then there's also uh, Louis Fournier's post a few months ago about like changing the signature thing completely, and I was like, wow, that's really, really cool, because I don't really know what we do with it. it. It doesn't actually make it that much smaller, but it just seems like a very powerful you know, step towards something else. So there's definitely lots of tools that aren't out yet, but we're looking at and may someday in the future become, you know, come into Bitcoin that would allow uh, even more powerful discrete law contract kind of type of things. I mean, I think, yeah. I think one of the big things is uh, Schnorr signatures included in the, the Taproot upgrade too. And Ben, do you want to speak to how uh, you know, Schnorr changes uh, DLCs on-chain and maybe off-chain as well? Yeah, like um, the beauty of like Schnorr is it lets you do additive things. And um, so today when you're doing like a multi-sig on-chain, it's very obvious, you see, like two of two multi-sig, everyone can see it. With Tapper, you can completely hide that and you just do like your multi-sig off-chain with these signatures. So um, today, like when you do a DLC, you're funding this two of two multi-sig. So everyone sees that like, oh, this is, this is obviously the DLC output and these are the two change outputs. With Taproot, they'd all look like the exact same address. And um, so you couldn't tell what's going on. And when you close it as well, it's just gonna look like a normal spend not a multi-sig spend. So it gives you this really nice um, privacy of hiding exactly what's going on. Because now like your DLC is gonna look the exact same as just a normal like spend from your blue wallet or something. So uh, you can't really tell anymore what's going on. And it's gonna really hurt these like chain analysis companies that are trying to figure out like, they'll see like a two of two multi-sig, like okay, this is a special transaction, we can tag this. Like, you know, maybe this doesn't follow the common input here stick. But now, if they all look the same, they can't do that. They're like, oh, this is just a transaction, we gotta figure it out. Yeah, to, Taj point, uh, to Taj's point um, about CTV, I think super exciting stuff potentially for DLCs. <laughs> Just from a UI UX perspective, um, you know, right now maybe it takes, for a typical options contract in DLCs, it takes like, you have to sit around for about 60 seconds to generate all the signatures and all that kind of stuff. You know, we try to make it fun on the app that like, you know, it's, you know, who has time to wait 60 seconds, right? So like, you know, if, uh, if that comes into play, uh, if CTV comes on board, then you know we can shorten that time dramatically to say like a couple seconds or something like that, right? Which would be amazing from a UI UX perspective and just make things simpler um, moving forward. And that that's a really good point. And maybe Taz, do you, do you want to speak to like you know why yeah. why is there such a huge computational right. load that comes with DLC? Yeah. Like, so so the basic thing of you know the basic thing of how DLCs work, which is kind of dumb, is you pre-compute every single possible thing that can happen. So, so for if it's you know who wins the Super Bowl, well that's just you know one or the other. But if it's what are what's the score of the Super Bowl, well there could be you know thousands of different possible scores, and you know what's the price of Bitcoin, well how you know how much do you round it to? So there, there's potentially many thousands of possible outcomes, and instead of having the blockchain figure out what happens, the idea is we figure out every possible thing that can happen, store it between Ellis and Bob, and then only one thing goes on the blockchain. So there's this trade-off of 
how much the Alice and Bob are doing work, how much the sort of end users are, are storing and doing work versus how much the blockchain stores. And one of the things I sort of ask, and it's kind of philosophical, like if you can save one byte on the blockchain, how many bytes would you be willing to store on your local computer? <laughs> like a kilobyte, a megabyte, a gigabyte, right? Because it's, it's hard to, like, there's no right answer, right? But uh, you know, data on the blockchain is very, it, it, it's, it feels heavy. It's like, man, I'm putting something on the blockchain. This thing's gonna be around for maybe longer than I am and everyone's gonna have to validate it and download it and store it and like, I wanna really minimize that. And so the trade-off with DLC is, it's, I don't know, a thousand to one, whatever. You're, you're having a constant size on-chain transaction and potentially quite large amount of data between the two parties that, that never sees the chain. And so I, I generally think that's good, but, but there are trade-offs, right? Maybe it's too slow and like, hey, if we can just put another 20 or 30 bytes on-chain, we can take this 60 seconds down to like one second. That, that could be useful, you know? Um, and, you know, there's a market like fees, fees and stuff. So, so that's sort of a, one of the big trade-offs we're looking at, and that OpsyTV could give different knobs to change as well there. Yeah, I, I just realized you've made two protocols now that have like these uh, uh, infinite growing, well, no, 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 I guess DLCs, it's not infinite growing storage requirements, but Lightning, yeah. until you close your channel, I guess you, you, you gotta keep adding to the <laughs> database there. Right, but it doesn't, but only one thing goes, I mean, they're, they're very simple, you know, it, the DLC definitely came out of the, the research and the work on Lightning Network. Um, and, and they, you know, the scripts are the same or were, and, you know, so they're very similar in that you wanna put sh as much data as you can off chain. Uh, and, and sometimes that means you actually have scaling issues on your single computer. But to me, like a scaling issue on your computer is better than a scaling issue for the whole entire network. Yeah, and I think that that's such a, you know, maybe you're the originator of this like kind of philosophical design point that I also hold of like, just like keep as much off the blockchain as possible. It's better for scalability of the blockchain. It's better for privacy of the participants of the, you know, the, the contract in question on the blockchain. And, you know, consumer hardware does keep getting better and better, um, although, uh, you know, we keep doing more intricate and intricate things with that consumer hardware. Does, any, does anyone else have an opinion on, you know, on-chain stuff versus off-chain stuff? I mean, I think a funny thing to bring up is, like, when we were developing the DLC wallet at SharedBits, like, when we first started out, it was, like, highly unoptimized. And we, like, we tried to do, like, a three of five, like, Oracle vet on the Bitcoin price. It had, like, a million outcomes or something. And, like, our, me and Chris, like, we click, like, go, and both our computers crash, and we text <laughs> each other, like, did you die too? <laughs> like, yeah, so like, um, it is a hard problem to solve, and we, you know, we added a lot of optimizations and stuff. Now we're able to do it in like a couple seconds, but we have like high-end developer laptops. Like Atomic Finance is on your iPhone, so it's like it doesn't have this insane chip in memory that you can do it all, and it does blow up a lot of data. Like I know a couple of them we did um, where we didn't put in like rounding, and we'd have like eight, eight, 80 megabyte like databases for one contract that we're just like testing with, and it'd be. It wouldn't like the networking would like screw up sometimes and it's just a hard problem. So it is like a nice thing that like if we do get CTV is a huge thing because suddenly you negotiate all these transactions, all you do is just basically both produce the same address and if you both get the same result, you're like cool and you send to it and now your DLC set up. So it saves a lot of that uh, bandwidth is, which is really nice, especially for like places that like if you're doing like over Tor where it's um, very slow and stuff like that or if you're just you know somewhere in like, if you're in like Nigeria or something and don't have 5G internet, like, you know, it's a big benefit. Yeah, and just a, another a plug in there, it's like we ship our Shirtbits wallet on the Raspberry Pis on Umbrel, and that's like, again, where uh, there's a lot of sensitivity to 
performance because on low resource devices, which I think you know most Bitcoin applications strive to be deployed on, uh, this signature computation does become uh, sometimes prohibitive for certain types of contracts that people want to use. Um, my understanding of moving to Taproot and Schnorr is that computation does get quicker, which is another uh, benefit of moving to the uh, to Schnorr. But we're not quite there in the DLC specification. We're waiting on us getting Taproot rolled out and deployed in the ecosystem before we can take advantage of that. And the the like Fournier, you know, changing the signature, the Oracle signature to, I don't, we need a term for it, but a, not a signature at all, where it's basically I plus KX. That would probably be a thousand times faster for the end users, or some, you know, something on the order of a thousand, like point multiplication versus uh, addition, thousand-ish times faster. So that that would be a huge improvement, and it's. I'm still not 100% sure it's secure because it's just like a post on a mailing list and you're like, that works, I think, okay. So there's still, like, there's still enormous amounts of things to improve and research in this space, which is really exciting. Another, like, I guess, like going back to the Oracle questions, like some, something that we've been talking about a lot lately is like Oracle's attesting to something that's globally known, such as the Super Bowl or what the weather is outside or, uh, you know, what the price of Bitcoin is on an exchange, there is like, you know, globally knowable answers to that uh, versus like attesting to something that maybe isn't globally known but can be uh, used to give a better user experience, like maybe how much money specifically Alice and Bob receive in a very specific trade rather than, uh, you know, attesting to what the Bitcoin price is. Uh, does, any, does anybody have any thoughts there on, you know, if, if that like warps Oracle incentives at all or uh, any ideas on that? And it kind of talks like you're thinking of like uh, doing like escrow with DLCs and like I think that is like a, a nice use case where like instead of like having the escrow like be part of your transaction, a two or three multisig, they're not just an Oracle and they don't know your transaction so you get some privacy, it probably helps them with regulations and stuff. But um, it is kind of weird because like if they lie, you'd be like, look, they lied. It'd be like, you can't really totally prove it because it's not a public event of like, you know, did the package come to my house or not? So um, it, it kind of skews the incentives, but I still think it's a good use case. Like DLCs have real nice benefits over like bringing third parties into your transactions. So I think it's like a great way to do it still. And another um, a conversation I had in the last like month or two was with a, you know, a, a guy that runs a pretty uh, big Bitcoin uh, company and how uh, DLCs could be used for reoccurring subscriptions too, where you roll the subscription over every month and uh, the Oracle pulls the money almost like you're drawing down a Bitcoin address like a bank account and uh, you can cancel the subscription at any time by double spending the transaction. Um, the, feedback that I've got from that ID on the mailing list is use end lock time. And I, I think that's like a fair rebuttal. I still think there's some non-interactivity benefits maybe, but uh, is it, does anyone have any thoughts on just kind of out of the box uh, Oracle ideas that don't necessarily tie directly to betting applications necessarily? Or can, can, can we take this Oracle specification even further in the DLC ecosystem to enable more use cases on uh, Bitcoin and uh, have yeah. Bitcoin and oracles take over everything? It's a, it's a pretty general protocol, but it does seem like, yeah, you, ideally, if this is like a public thing and, and the oracles can't really lie that easily because that, you know, and they don't know who's using the data. Because if you're sort of saying, hey, this is between Alice and Bob, you need to check whether I got my groceries delivered, the oracle already knows who's gonna use this data. And so there, you've sort of lost a lot of that privacy. So you know, the, it, it doesn't help as much there, but it could be used in these things. And there is, there are companies like asking, but it's sort of like, 
Sometimes you lose a little bit of the, of the purpose of it, but, but a lot of times you, you still, you know, if the software is there, people will probably use it for that as well. Yeah. Um, I think we're pretty much out of time, guys. Thank you for coming out. Uh, if we're doing DLC demos again at 2.30 at the uh, Expo Hall, far left back corner by the big moon, we're giving away these shirts if you manage to get through a, a DLC setup. So if you want some uh, Shredbit swag with company on the front, the math on the back, uh, come check us out. And otherwise, thanks for being a great audience. What is up, guys? We are here to talk about Bitcoin nodes. We got some of the guys behind some of the best node projects in the space up here to discuss it with us. Um, by a show of hands, who uses their own Bitcoin node? Awesome, the whole room. Um, so I mean, <laughs> this is also getting recorded and broadcast out to lots and lots of people. Um, so I think a good, just, a good place to start is just to interact, with the, to interact with the Bitcoin network, you need to use a Bitcoin node. If you don't use your own node, you're using someone else's node. If you're using someone else's node, you're trusting them with your privacy and validation of the rules of the network. Commonly, when you're using someone else's node, it's like if you use Ledger Live, you're using Ledger's node. It's oftentimes a company. Or a mobile wallet. If you're using Blue Wallet, you're using Blue Wallet's node. Um, so with all that said, let's get into this discussion. We have uh, S2 here from uh, Ronin Dojo. We have Keegan here from Start9. We have Jonas here from Nix Bitcoin, and we have Rootsol here from Raspi Blitz. Uh, you might recognize Rootsol because he's been running the workshop table outside. Uh, before I forget, we will be auctioning off three Raspi Blitzes at the end of tomorrow at 3 p.m. with 50% of funds going to Raspi Blitz development and 50% going to greater open source development through OpenSats. So guys, um, where do we start? So, I, I guess I, let, let's start with Rootsol. Rootsol, when you're when you're thinking about the Raspberry Blitz project, um, you know what what are like the priorities that you're thinking about in terms of what what to deliver users and how to go about that. So, for for the Raspberry Blitz, I think the uh, the main focus is to be this more community driven kind of node, so because we see it on the GitHub, so we have a lot of forks, we have a lot of stars, people really participating. So, um, and this is, I think, something for Raspberry Blitz to be really this open platform. If people want to tinker, if people want to develop, that's, that's definitely something we want to be open for. Um, because this whole project started from the lightning hack days we did back uh, in the days uh, in Berlin, like the Raspberry Bolt, and then it, did, um, it developed out into the Raspberry Blitz. And so this, we want to keep this spirit going. That's kind of, I think, our main focus. Awesome. Um, so, I mean, Keegan, you guys have a very different approach there with Start9. How do you think about that? Um, yeah, the, the central thing that we're trying to accomplish is that we've kind of identified that Bitcoin as a project will not succeed and retain the properties that it was designed for, namely you know, censorship resistance, you know, seizure resistance, inflation resistance, if the number of properly used nodes is comparatively small to the number of people who use Bitcoin. So we are trying to expand the number of users of Bitcoin in the proper way, so to speak, uh, to the largest set that we can reasonably do. Um, and that means that we have to do a tremendous amount of work on the user experience side. 
So we do a little bit less catering towards the tinkerers. Not that those people, like those people are tremendously important to the community and you know, not one size of product fits all. But if everyone isn't really running their own node, but they're still using Bitcoin, Bitcoin is at risk of various forms of capture. And so it's very important that as many people are running it as possible. And so UX is kind of always at the top. Now that does mean removing certain decisions from the point of view of the user, but we try very, very hard to make a distinction between user, like choices users have to make because they have to just you know, use a computer versus choices they have to make that materially affect the way that they actually use Bitcoin. And so if, and we try to give as many of those decisions back to the user as possible, because after all, if we're making decisions for how people are using Bitcoin, in some sense, we might be capturing their ability. We don't want to do that either. So it's, it's this delicate trade-off between trying to make it as streamlined as possible, but still affording the user decisions uh, to be able to use uh, Bitcoin in a sovereign way. Makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think it's pretty cool that you know, we do have four of the major node projects up here. Um, and you guys have, like, you all take completely different trade-off balances, I feel like. Um, so, Jonas, when you're talking about Nick's Bitcoin, like, how do you relate to what, what these two guys just said? Yeah, I would, I would say we're yet on another end of the spectrum because yeah. uh, we mostly cater towards tinkering. Our main focus, emphasis, is security, privacy, and customizability. The trade-off for doing that is that um, Nix Bitcoin has kind of a steep learning curve and doesn't have a graphical user interface, for example, um, for most of the things that it does. But um, I call this, this is the most low time preference uh, node choice <laughs> because in the beginning you need to um, invest a lot of time. It depends on how you use it, but you need to invest some time to get up to speed with it, but then you will uh, reap the results, which I really think are a superior uh, privacy and security on the system. Yeah, I mean, there is a bit of a steep learning curve there, but uh, you guys are definitely a, a, a unique project in the space. It's definitely really appreciated how much focus there is on, on security and reproducibility. Um, so, I mean, S2, you're kind of... I feel like you're kind of in the middle. So, so Raspi Blitz, um, I guess actually Raspi Blitz is doing a similar thing. So Start9, the main, the main use, users of Start9 are actually buying devices directly from you, Keegan, right? Yeah, that's, that's correct. We sell like an integrated product. Again, it's about streamlining the entire process. And there are people who are going to have Raspberry Pis that they can repurpose and, and you know, install software too. And that's perfectly fine. But there's like an entire category of users that don't even want to do that. And in my mind, like if we have 100 million Bitcoin users today, like uh, not even all of those use their or like have their own keys, which is you know itself a problem, not one that we're directly setting out to solve at the moment. But then there's another category of users that may have their own keys but don't use their own nodes. And we're really just trying to say like, how can we make it such that we have as few people who are using Bitcoin at an arm's length distance as possible? Right. How can we close the gap between people who are using Bitcoin as a like unit of account, so to speak, uh, all the way to using Bitcoin in its intended design with the properties that make Bitcoin special? But would you say like nine, like ninety percent or something of of embassy users are using the pre-built or? 
Yeah, I'd say most of them. We, we don't really have a way to track those metrics right. because anybody who builds from, like we don't build any sort of analytics data for privacy and like, Yeah, uh, I'm just saying like gut, reason. right? Like the. Yeah, I mean like yeah. my gut instinct is yeah, like yeah. The, major, the vast majority of them are, right. are purchasing it. Because the, the reason I'm going into that is, so like with S2, with Ronin Dojo, Ronin Dojo was primarily a build your own project, open source project. Yeah. With no layer of monetization and recently you started selling Pre-builds. Right, right. We kind of saw both ends that people want to maybe customize and build their own node, or they want the convenience. Um, so we, we want to kind of offer all of it. But so. you want to talk a little bit about like, so like Ronin Dojo is a free open source project. Yep. Uh, but but you want to be sustainable. You don't want to be uh, dependent on donations. Yeah, right? yeah. So. I mean, how do you give software away for free and keep a roof over your head, right? Right. And so we build uh, products and services around it. You know, essentially we have a focus on transactional privacy, so the node comes standard with Whirlpool, uh, you know, so you can't be tracked as easily on chain. Uh, we really care about that. But we want people to be able to either buy a Raspberry Pi and build one, whether they want to use the command line interface, or if they want to buy a pre-built node and just have it be plug and play, uh, you know, we know that there's people who are hungry across this spectrum of nodes and node offerings. Yep. I think the support feature is pretty cool. You want to go into that a little bit? Or? Yeah, we have a premium support model, so we'll like walk people through. Uh, people need to know how to manage their UTXOs or use Bitcoin privately, and they don't want to be tracked or surveilled. Uh, we're happy to provide premium support, and that's just another service we can build around the product so that we can, you know, monetize and uh, continue right. to give the software away for free. Uh, Russell, how do you feel about monetization? I mean, because you guys sell pre-builds too. Does that go to directly fund development? Is that is that is it a similar strategy, or is it... Yeah, basically that's uh, that's the one way how we can refinance a little bit like the uh, the cost for development. And it, it's, and it's, an, it's also a nice way for people to support the, the project, like, okay, I buy a, a pre-built node at the shop. It's a good way to kind of support uh, the, the whole kind of development. Awesome. Um, so, I mean, I don't, this question is not necessarily directed at anyone uh, specifically. Um, I guess, I mean, since I have all four of you on stage, like, do any of you have any concerns about you know, maybe one node project becoming the predominant node project, and how do you how do you think about that? I mean, whoever wants to jump in here, I think I, the, I think the the more easy it is to migrate between them, the less important that it is that one that, that it's like that there isn't a dominant one at any given time, right? Like what you don't want is a situation where there's a dominant node product and they they lock you in super hard to their ecosystem, because that is a means of exerting control that very similar to the way that we see in like uh, Web2, so to speak, or like the, the big walled gardens of the giant internet companies. But in the absence of that heavy lock-in, which Bitcoin itself is pretty good at doing, the entire BIP and Lightning standards process makes it significantly easier to migrate between things. Which means that at any given time, if there is a dominant implementation, it's not like they have this sort of like stronghold that can't be breached. So they're kind of they're kept honest by the fact that users can migrate. I mean, there's, there's so yeah. many different uh, applications to you know what people want. There's you know there's a big spectrum of nodes. Some people might want certain services. Uh, it's hard to encompass everything in one project. There's always going to be people who are interested in like very hardcore security or they want you know, transactional privacy. 
or you know, it's there's a lot of you know, different applications you can host, and uh, it's hard to pack it all onto one device and to cover the entire spectrum. And then, but so so with on-chain Bitcoin, with the regular Bitcoin node that you're using with on-chain, um, it's pretty easy to move around and change which software you're running and which which nodes you want to run. Um, there is, but a lot of people now like one of the main reasons they use an who, who here runs a lightning node, uses a lightning node? Okay, so all of these people, there's a degree of lock-in with lightning channels, right? Like how, do, do you think, do you guys think there should be like some kind of standardization in terms of like porting those light, like that lightning database without like corrupting your state and, and getting the penalized transaction and losing funds? Is that, should that be a priority in this space, like for easy migration in that regard? Because I, I would say that's probably the number one lock-in, especially if we like enter um, like a sustained fee and high fee environment. And next thing you know, like fees are 120 sats per byte or something. It, it would be very expensive to close channels and then reopen somewhere else. So I feel like it, it makes it like kind of resistant. Jonas, do you have an opinion on this? I think this is a good point. Um, in the next Bitcoin case, it is definitely possible to do all this migration, but it's a very manual process that can also go wrong in horrible ways right. <laughs> uh, because it's lightning and lightning is very stateful. And yeah, you, you know the problems with, with this. So um, I think this is one of the, the things that um, are part of the migration, but they are of course also uh, other things I would think, like all the interfaces, how, how, have, you, how have you set up your nodes in, node in terms of options, right? Every node project has a different interface and all of this, I don't really think this is portable, really uh, like something you could easily do in five minutes because this would just, having a standard on this would just hold back uh, innovation in this so space because- I think it's a lost cause. It's there, like that I think this part seems to be a lost cause to me at least. I think there's there's two questions here that you're asking. Right. There's the your, there's the the migratability between the node projects, and then there's actually the migratability between different Lightning implementations. Yeah, that's even. If worse. you want to move from LND <laughs> on the embassy to LND on Ronin Dojo or on to LND on <clears throat> you know uh, Raspberry Blitz or Nix Bitcoin, the you're not really having to do any serious Lightning channel migrations because right. the data format is ultimately the same. It's really can we shuffle data from point A to point B? And like, you probably don't need a standards process for that. You just need to have relatively stable locations that these things need to be and in. And never turn on the old node again. Right, and, and so yeah, like Lightning itself has its own problems with respect to how stable it is in the presence of multiple nodes. But even like just cloning your hard drive and trying to set up a second one, it's gonna run you into that problem as well. And then this, there's the second question that you're asking, which is migrations between different Lightning implementations. So LND, Seek Lightning, Eclair, anything else that LDK, pops up. LDK, yeah. And that one, I'd like to see a lot more uh, standardization, but the various teams that are working on that may or may not have the incentive to do so. And similarly to the various node projects, it's not necessarily the case that any of us will have the direct incentive other than maybe you know, sort of any goodwill that we have towards uh, supporting the, the ethos of the, of the movement. Um, but it's also, can, it's very tricky with Lightning because so many things can go wrong, because of the very delicate game theory and punishment schemes that keep the Lightning uh, incentives honest. 
uh, and, and, and the, the sort of very few tools that we used to make that happen, which is why we have Lightning at all right now, uh, because of that delicacy, it is difficult to make it such that people can't screw it up. Right. And as a result, I think a lot of the, the node implementations, and when I say node, I mean like LNDC, Lightning, et cetera, haven't really given it a lot of uh, effort because you know there's a lot of ways to screw it up. People shouldn't be doing it anyway, so why commit effort to it? But I think the longer that we see it, like in 120 sats uh, per byte environment sustained for years, which we can expect, I think, if we're going to be trying to onboard millions of users over the next few years, uh, in that sort of a situation, we may not have another choice. And so whether that's people who step up from the community to figure out how to do this, whether it's you know, the implementations themselves that you know, put effort into it. Like, we have a, a certain amount of incentive to write migrations from others, from right. other node implementations to us. And so correspondingly, you know, other implementations might have an incentive to write migrations from our stuff to theirs. Right. And so like, I, think, I think we'll see it materialize on a need basis. But, you know, it's one of those things that necessity is the mother of invention here. Right. Rootsaw, I mean, I think you guys actually had, you, there was a migration tool or a migration setup with Umbral. Was that, yeah, we, am we I correct? Yeah, migration. So if you run an Umbral, a Citadel, or a MyNode, you can basically migrate to RespiBlitz. It will only take your kind of blockchain and the, uh, and the L&D funds and channels. Uh, if you use any other apps uh, on, 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 on those uh, node projects, this data will not get... And that's L&D to L&D, right? You're not, yeah, it's L&D to L&D. You're not crossing the good thing is core lightning. The, 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 the Raspi Blitz itself has also C-Lightning, so uh, you, you have both there. Um, so, the, uh, but, so the other kind of all have just L&D, so um, that's easy to kind of get over. Because and another thing on. is, uh, you know, just even migrating the main chain data not just having right. to do the IBD again and download 450 yeah. gigs of blockchain. Right. Uh, you know, it's great to be able to switch between nodes and just, you know, you already have your blockchain data. And yeah, I think it's, we all have an incentive to help the users switch between easily. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, out of, out of all four node projects here, Start9 is the only one that offers users the ability to run non-Bitcoin apps on the node. Um, and like jumping off of what Rootsall was mentioning about obviously not being able to migrate from apps that don't exist on Raspi Blitz, do you, how do you think about that in terms of both, um, you know, lock-in or like a soft lock-in where they, they already have their files set up, they already have, you know, maybe they're using your self-hosted photo sharing and then also having that as their main Bitcoin node. Like, is that, is that a concern? Or do, I guess they could just move to just a new Bitcoin node and keep the star nine for everything else. I'm just answering yeah, my own question. The, there is absolutely nothing uh, that stops people from using multiple versions of these sorts of things uh, to manage different parts of their right. digital lives. Um, we, our mission is a little bit more broad than Bitcoin in general. I think we see a lot of these uh, freedom infringements in other parts of our lives. The, I think the one that might resonate with a lot of the people in this room is like Twitter banning people who happen to be having the, the incorrect view of the day, which may shift by right. the day. Um, and so you might have like competing projects like Mastodon, which are uh, have been around for a while, but they just haven't experienced wide deployments because you know we have not put the effort into having a peer-to-peer -peer deployment uh, 
that, that is made easy for people. And so we, we want to be able to bring that to as many aspects of people's digital lives as possible, and Bitcoin is one section of it. Um, right. But you know, there's nothing, there's absolutely nothing that stops someone from like running, you know, two different node implementations, and you know, the Start Nine uh, Embassy one being for their non-Bitcoin stuff, and you know, their <clears throat> whatever other implementation that they're using for their Bitcoin stuff. Right. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily say that it's like soft lock-in on a like cross-app basis. Right. You might have some soft lock-in in the sense that if you know you are running an app that one of the other implementations doesn't have, then you know, that's, that is a lock-in of sorts, but we, we generally take the position that any application that is on our, uh, on our node has to be open source, right? right? It doesn't necessarily have to be FOSS, but it needs to have the source absolutely available, and that is what helps people be able to actually break those lock-ins, right? right? It's because they know the data formats. They can be like, okay, let me go scrape this out and move it over. Would you even would you even frame Start Nine as a Bitcoin node, or is it it's like a a self-hosting everything it, it with is, Bitcoin? It's a personal right? private server, and we named it the Embassy not on a whim. Uh, it, we kind of think about it as sovereign territory in foreign land, right? Where the internet is just kind of like Wild West, and this is kind of like your your you know castle, your your embassy, uh, your your location that you have sovereign control over, even though sort of outside of the walls, it may not be as safe. Right. So, I mean, part of, uh, part of the reason why this idea of lock-in with nodes, I think most of you would agree with me, is a concern that maybe one of the node projects becomes malicious or non-aligned with users or, you know, starts releasing, you know, like, like the fork wars we had, right, where they... Maybe, you know, we didn't have these node projects at the time. Most people were just running Bitcoin Core on their computer themselves. Um, if, one of, if one of the major node implementations was pro SegWit2x and they sent out an update to everybody um, and switched them towards that, uh, that could obviously become a major issue. Um, but at the same time, because of Lightning, so there was this ethos in Bitcoin that it was like, don't update right away. First of all, no auto-updates, period, because if you have auto-updates, someone can uh, issue you an auto-update, and that auto-update could be malicious. Yeah, like, I, to, to briefly add on to that, if you self-host your stuff, but the operating systems or the apps have the ability to force updates on you, you your self-hosting isn't doing a lot Right. Because self-hosting is supposed to afford you a sense of control, and forced updates undermine that. Right, it's, a, it's an attack vector. It's a centralized attack vector. So then, but at the, and, and there was this, it, the ethos went farther than that. It was like, and I, I still think it's that way today, at least on base chain, which is, you know, there's no rush to update. You can be a couple versions behind. In a lot of ways, that could be more prudent. Uh, while, while reviews happening on, on, on new nodes or new, you know, new node versions, uh, or at least, you know, maybe have some people that are still running older versions. You know, people run really old versions of Bitcoin and it's still backwards compatible. But then on the Lightning side, you know, there's situations where it's like, if you don't update right now, uh, there's major fund loss risk. Uh, like I remember I was here in Miami for the HRF event um, and I was on stage and I got off, the sta I got off stage and Stefan came up to me and he was like, 
I think it was two lightning implementations. I don't remember, I definitely LND was one of them because I was running LND and it was like update immediately, you know, attack in the wild, you can lose funds right now. Um, and I was on stage and my node wasn't accessible to me. And just for like a week, I just obviously didn't update because I couldn't. And then I got home and didn't lose any money, so it worked out. But is there an argument to be made that on the Lightning side, because it's so new, that there should be auto updates? Like, how do you guys think about it? Like, Jonas, what do you think about that? Nah, auto, auto nah. updates are, are, uh, are not a good thing. Of course, for um, beta software, perhaps like Lightning or experimental in some sense, um, you need to uh, use frequent updates. You need to take care of your funds, of course. Um, running a node isn't easy today. Um, it will take some time until it will be easy. And one of the parts that make it hard is that you need to keep uh, up to date with uh, updating your um, software as well. And, and back to the Bitcoin code, even in, in that case, I wouldn't be so sure whether it makes sense to run um, old Bitcoin versions because you never know if a new Bitcoin version has some kind of hidden bug fix. Um, so um, one of the things that uh, some people do, for example, is to have like two Bitcoin nodes that are connected to each other and uh, like uh, you have one, one of them facing the outer world that uh, is an updated node, updated to the most recent version, and then you have another node that is just connected to this gateway node and running an older version. And this is, for example, something uh, that you could do uh, with uh, Nix Bitcoin. Oh, that's interesting. So it's like built in that way. Intentionally, or is there? Is it just users can can do that? It's just built, customized enough so that you could uh, that you could build that. Got it. As long as the user has a choice, I think it's you know that's really important. And also, if you're in beta or you know lightning and doing experimental things, you should put proper warnings and let people know that you know don't don't put more on there than you're willing to lose. Uh, but isn't you, that kind of bullshit warning? It is. Uh, but if you're in beta, you just you need to do your users justice and let them know and properly educate them that they need to pay attention to every update and be aware. Um, Fair enough. And th this is, you know, anytime you're developing something like this, you go through long periods of, you know, the users need to be aware of all these changes that are being made. Rutzel, how do you feel about this? I think if you, the question is always the, 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 of centralization, right? Because this is one point the update is coming from. Um, so if, if you can put in another service provider that, uh, that build and makes a build for you, somebody, a group that you trust, something like this, this could, there could be something a little bit more easy for the user. Maybe pushing hard into, into your node is always critical. This is why Raspberry Blitz always has to make a new SD card and it goes through the update, basically. Um, but I think when you go into this convenient thing, because in the end, that's what a lot of users want, is the easy update. Um, then you at least have to think about making it possible to that you can choose your source of updating and you can choose your kind of trust group and you're not uh, not everything is targeted to this one company. Uh, but so you have like multiple update sources. It's like a toggle or something. Yeah, not exactly. We have to see what system. But basically, just you can choose like oh, I always get my build image from there or something. So yeah, so that you really can 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 have not this one company that can just do this. Yeah, I mean like in the newest copy of Embassy OS in the O3O, we actually did introduce preliminary support for alternate marketplaces for precisely this reason, which is that 
we are aware there's a certain amount of trade-offs that we have to make and like certain amount of like imperfection we have to accept in the short term, which is that you know we are providing most, if not every uh, update that people are going to be absorbing. But we're like intimately aware of the fact that like we could be co-opted either you know through just like leadership changes or you know you know various unfriendly organizations that can put us under duress. Like we're we're aware that that can put our users at risk. And so, like, I think having these this sort of multi-sourced package model, similar to the way that like app on Ubuntu works, or the way that like Linux package management works, but kind of like dressed up in a way that makes that can give better intuition to to users about like what it actually is, because like, you know, people have experiences of buying the same product from different stores, right? And so, to the degree that that can be conveyed, I think users can actually take responsibility for those sorts of things. Right. Um, I mean, I think it'd be kind of cool if you, just like thinking out loud, if there was like uh, a new, you know, new Bitcoin core version comes out, new Bitcoin D comes out, and you have like three different sources that you pulled from, and you can tell that that all the hashes are the same, like they're the same file for all three, mm -hmm. just at the bare minimum. Um, but like there is, a, there, I feel like there's a... Um, we want as many people to use their own node as possible, right? We want it to be as accessible as possible. But it kind of, it does go up against this idea that you have, personal responsibility will never be the easiest one. And like, even without, I'm, I know I'm sticking on this auto update thing, but even without auto updates, like, Umbral pops up like, update, and they just press the button, right? Like it's still a manual at least. That's mm -hmm. still a benefit, but is there a concern is there, is, do you guys have a concern? And I mean, I'll direct this to Jonas because I mean, I think your users are more experienced, but do you, do you have a concern with users of these more convenient node packages that they kind of just like blindly follow that they're not necessarily educated users in that regard? Is that a real concern? I think that's a concern, but that's very hard to prevent, I suppose, because right. you, not everyone can read the code and see what, what happens in between. You need some kind of oracles that will tell you whether this is uh, good code or not. In the end, you need to trust someone. No one right. of us reads all the code uh, that they're running. So this problem um, will never go away. You can, I think, reduce uh, some, of the, um, some of the attack vectors that are there if you, for example, um, have your releases signed by multiple people or even built by multiple people, uh, like Bitcoin Core does, um, right. for example. And this already reduces the attack surface quite a bit, but you will never get rid of this problem en entirely. Yeah, it, the, the price of freedom is personal responsibility. I think our job as the implementations is to provide users ever increasing leverage on the knowledge that they have. Right, so right. they still have to be the one in the driver's seat. They still have to be the one making decisions. But there are a lot of bullshit decisions when you're trying to set up nodes. Right, there's things that don't really matter to your ability to, to to work on it. And to the degree that we can eliminate those and make it such that the only decisions they have to make are the ones that materially affect their outcome and what they're what kind of software they're running, like that at least reduces the cognitive load enough that they can actually take an active role in that process. And like that's that is an ever improving thing. It's not like any of us has like the holy grail of that today, but I think that's the ultimate mission of like everybody sitting on this panel right now is like, right. can we provide 
higher leverage to users. I think that's really well put. Um, I mean, because everything will always have trade-offs. So you can't eliminate trade-offs. It's just different trade-off balances that you come to, come to terms with. And every once in a while, you can push the frontier further, right? right. It's like not every trade-off is like neutral with, with respect to value. Right. But like, you know, you want to give them the entire trade-off curve if you can. And then, you know, when you can get these sort of free wins and push that frontier forward, just you fucking do it. So, um, I mean, we still have a little bit of time left. I kind of, I'm curious, I mean, you guys are just heads, heads down, really focused on, on this. Um, I guess I'll start with Rootsall. Like, Rootsall, when you think about the evolving node space, because I feel like if, if, if you're a relatively new Bitcoin user, um, you might be under this impression that there's always been all of these independent node teams trying to take different trade-off balances and make using your own node more convenient. But it's a relatively recent phenomenon. It's like the last three years, it's really blossomed. And I, for this panel, I tried to get as many of the node teams as possible. Um, and when you start to think about it, it's like maybe there's like seven or eight like major ones. Um, but fortunately, we got these four these four legends over here. So, Ruto, when you think about like this evolving node space, what do you like? What's the what's your biggest concern? Like, what keeps you up at night? Yeah. Um, so you can see we have this one very dominant uh, node distribution out there, um, and that would not be the again that would not be the problem if, uh, if if it would be in free and open source because then it, if it comes to dominant and people don't like it, they can always fork off, and then you, we can you can have multiple competing projects, and you choose which one you, you go. Um, so a little bit, uh, this, this, this is a concern, um, but just a concern um, when it comes to, um, how to say, as long as migration is there, I'm, I can sleep good. So that, that, that's fine. It's good to, for onboarding, I think it's perfect thing to have the solutions out there. So, yeah. Jonas, what's your biggest concern? I don't think I have very big concerns in, in the node space right now. It's cool that people run nodes. It's cool that people run a lot of nodes. More people should run nodes, run their own nodes, run their own software, use more CoinJoin, use more Lightning, etc. And these uh, node projects um, help doing that, um, which is much better than not doing any of those things. So I think um, I'm rather happy and um, I'm looking forward to the future. Um, than the opposite. I love it. Jonas isn't concerned now. Now I feel better about it. Uh, Keegan, biggest concern? See, I am concerned, but it's my job to be concerned. Um, I, the thing that keeps me up is really whether or not we can make our product easy enough to use to onboard the next people. Because here's the thing, big, like, with a dollar collapse happening, whether it's in slow or fast motion, like, people are going to be looking for alternatives. And if people jump to Bitcoin and Bitcoin doesn't have a beefy enough infrastructure in terms of central, decentralization, then Bitcoin's own properties are kind of at risk. And so more people running nodes, is, and, and not just running nodes, but like running them in a like self-sovereign way where they're really exercising their own agency is like paramount to the survival of Bitcoin. And the, if, you don't, if we don't find a way to make it easy enough, or if we find, or in the effort to make it easy enough, we rob users of too many important choices, then like the whole 
it, this whole movement doesn't really work the way that it's supposed to. So like I am every day when I wake up, I'm like, okay, what is too hard, and how can we make it easier that doesn't like fundamentally remove the user from the driver's seat. That's too biggest concern. I mean, I would basically bounce off of that. Uh, you know, I'm just concerned that convenience. There's going to be too many sacrifices made. And you know, while we want it to be easy and abstract things away, we also want to make sure that users are properly educated and have you know know that the choices that they're making have certain consequences. And so I think you know education is very important. Um, there's not enough good node education out there. There needs to be you know a lot more videos, guides. Uh, it needs to be made easier, but people still need to understand the basics of how this stuff functions. So I think you know education definitely needs to increase, and we don't like he was saying uh, we got to be careful the sacrifices that we make in the name of convenience. So all of your projects, uh, essentially in practice, what you're looking at is you're looking at having a a little server, a little computer running at home or your office, um, and that you're oftentimes connecting back to. Like if you use it on a phone, you're connecting back to it. Um, a lot of projects are using Tor to do that. Um, but you have this central server, essentially, that you're running in, in a physical location that you control. Now, everyone has a phone in their pocket. Like the next thing that everyone always says is nodes running on the phone, nodes on the phone. Now, is that the future, or is that a pipe dream? Full nodes? Yeah. So You're using, using your own Bitcoin node on your phone, right? Just it's, it's just baked into the phone. Is that actually a thing that we could look forward to in you know, I, five I, to 10 years, or really is that a think, pipe dream? Yeah, I think I really like this idea, because as you can see, Raspberry Pis are very hard to get uh, and, and, and not very affordable for a lot of people. And if you look at countries that, that have this, operate on, on low uh, income, um, a used smartphone is very easy to get because everybody has it, and, and if, you can, if you can turn this one into, into a full node, um, I think this, this basic, and you have the automatic battery in there, so it's already a little bit more secure. So I think really, basically, it's, it's a good device. Um, I'm not exactly sure who's working on this, so there was a friend of mine at a hack day that was kind of looking into this, but decided at that point, nah, it doesn't make sense here. Um, but I think we may, might come more and more closer into the area where, where this gets feasible. I mean, with a big SD card, I don't know, still the, the, some years maybe, but I think it would be great to, to have this in the future. Jonas, you gave me the pipe dream look. Do you think it's a pipe dream? Um, no. No? You think that's, that's the future? I'm not sure if it's the future. So in Next Bitcoin, we're also thinking about a lot about uh, Bitcoin infrastructure, not just having single nodes, because a single node, if it goes down, if it explodes, um, you've lost your funds. And uh, in the Bitcoin on-chain case, you might have a backup, but in the Lightning case, you're SOL. So um, we're thinking about uh, deploying more things at once, a backup server and perhaps a gateway node that uh, has a VPN such that you can easily connect to your node at home, that has monitoring. So even if your node at home goes down, you will be able to notice, and um, which is also important in, in the Lightning case. Um, so I guess there are just so many ways for how to use nodes, but as for, for um, the, the, I, the, the phone future for uh, Bitcoin nodes, I think is still an interesting, interesting way to, to look at.
I think, I think phones for layer one type stuff is significantly more viable than it is for layer two. And the reason for that is that when you go offline for significant periods of time, uh, you can catch up with the rest of the network. But the way that pretty much every layer two protocol is designed requires a certain liveness to it. In fact, when we were originally trying to put the first version of the embassy together, we were trying to narrow down what the essential characteristics uh, were that were needed. And for, uh, for Lightning in particular, and a lot of the layer twos will behave this way um, just due to the nature of like computer science itself, is that the, these, these servers need to be addressable and they need to be alive generally uh, as much of the time as possible. And because if they're not, you are at risk of, at risk of losing funds if, uh, because your, your counterparties might try to cheat you and you have to be able to remain vigilant during those times. And phones just aren't necessarily designed with the use case in mind that they're gonna be on 24 seven. They're designed to be portable. That, and that's tremendously useful for everything that we use phones for. But servers are designed to be alive 100% of the time. They're designed to be addressable 100% of the time. And those are properties that you absolutely need for a lot of these layer twos. Layer ones, different story, but. Awesome. Yeah, for layer two, phones definitely a bit of a pipe dream. Uh, or at least there would need to be a lot of work done and it need to be a very special setup. Well, you could have like watchtowers or some. Yeah. It, it, like it would, plus uh, minimize third party service or running on a VPS or something like that. You could, yeah. Um, awesome. Well, we're out of time, guys. This has been great. I want to thank our, our fantastic panelists. I want to encourage all participants, uh, all, everyone in the audience here, everyone watching at home, uh, consider using your own node. Consider running your own node. I know it sounds overwhelming, but it's, it's really not that overwhelming. Get your feet wet. It's relatively cheap to do. At the end of the day, you're, you're essentially taking a computer and plugging in an Ethernet and a power cord. So thank you, guys. Thank you. And uh, take care. For the keynote. It makes it easier I, in a way. You can't see anyone. You don't know what they think. Oh, our mics are on. I guess we're going. What is up, freaks? <laughs> what is up, uh, Miami? Yeah. Uh, I want to start because I'm a proud co-host. Let's give it up for Matt O'Dell for organizing this room here. Uh, Thank you, brother. Truly special. Yeah, incredible job, dude. This is the largest in-person rabbit hole recap we've ever done. Yeah. Congrats, By you're far. all part of history. Somebody note the block, and uh, we'll write that down somewhere. Uh, we're joined by Ke Craig Raw and Wiz. Uh, Steve Barber's supposed to be up here, uh, but he's not here, so if he wanders in, send him to get a mic. But <laughs> this is our HR. We have 40 minutes. When we do these live shows, uh, we usually do a different format where we have a few topics that we want to talk about. Matt and I haven't even talked about topics, and then we'll open it up to Q&A. Wait, raise your hand if you have no idea what Rabbit Hole Recap is. Awesome. Oh. Welcome. Okay, so Rabbit Hole Recap is our weekly news show, weekly Bitcoin news show. We've been doing it for over three years now. Four years, September, I believe. Yeah. So if you like Bitcoin, you should check that out. If you like this, you know, go check it out, maybe consider it. But yeah, as Marty said, we're just kind of gonna, we're gonna shoot the shit and then we're gonna do a Q and A. Yeah. Uh, let's give another shout out to Wiz for doing a pirate live stream in this room today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks, uh, thanks to Jack for retweeting my uh, pirate live stream at the open source stage. I think it was an idea I had about 
two in the morning last night. I'm like, why is there no live stream? Let's just go to Target and Best Buy, buy a camera and plug it in and set it up. And so we did it. Yeah, you, <laughs> you can spin up your own ISP, I think, and figure out a live stream in 12 hours. It's very impressive. Where's those two ISPs now? Two. <laughs> well, technically, mempool.space is uh, its own ISP now, yeah. Okay. So we kind of spun that off into its own uh, sub ISP in a way. Why don't we talk about that? You, you recently added a mining page to mempool.space. Yeah, we went down to Nashville uh, last week with Matt and Rod. Um, organizing the Nashville meetup down there. And um, we had a really nice crowd, about, what, 100 people, maybe more? Yeah, there was a tornado warning. We didn't... So 100 was a good showing. I'm yeah, it was pouring outside. Yeah. And, um, but it was a great show. I mean, it was just me, Rod, Matt on stage, and we were just trolling each other. We actually forgot there was like an audience there, and we were having so much fun. <laughs> I don't know how many hours we were talking, but it was a great show. But yeah, he announced the, so Wiz is the lead maintainer, one, one of the co-founders of mempool.space, and one of the co-maintainers of the open source mempool project, um, where you can, and he has, <laughs> he rented a TV and put it up over there with a live look at um, his mempool. Yeah, we don't have a booth in the conference this year, so uh, we just rented a TV and stuck it in the corner over there. <laughs> and, and we have, uh, we have Craig Raw here, who is um, the lead maintainer and the, the man behind Sparrow Wallet, which is one of the best desktop wallets on the market, fully open source. This is his first public appearance ever in the Bitcoin scene. Thank you, sir. It is an absolute fucking honor that you are up here with us. Thank you. Well, thank you. Great and then Craig, Craig and I were talking backstage. You comfortable talking about what we were discussing? Sure, go ahead. So there's, what is it? path descriptors and wallets and simplifying that? Yeah, so, well, we were just having a quick chat. Um, currently, Bitcoin Core requires, if you want to input your output descriptor into a Bitcoin Core wallet, you got to get a received chain output descriptor and a changed chain output descriptor. They're different. Um, Andrew Charles actually put forward a multi-path uh, version of that, which allows you to have one descriptor. And that's useful because if you're going to stamp it into a steel plate, for example, you've got 99% of them, are the, uh, the actual data is the same for the receive and the change chain. So you might as well just have one descriptor which specifies both, both chains. Um, so that's a PR that's in Bitcoin Core right, right now. Sparrow implements it that way, and I'm kind of hoping that Sparrow leads the way on that um, to try and uh, maybe get things to move in that direction, but it is as yet an unmerged PR, so hopefully it goes that way. So what does that mean to the end user? It means easier backups, essentially? Yeah, so I mean, if you have a multi-state, you need to back up all right. of the public keys, right? You can't just right. have the seeds, and uh, output descriptor is really the most standard way to do that. So, you know, just having one which is easier to put into steel plate, for example, which is, I think, an important thing. Awesome. Yeah. yeah, that's true. If you even if you have all your seed plate backups, if you don't have those uh, public keys, I guess you couldn't recover the funds, right? Correct. So I mean, you know, people often think multi-sig. If I lose one of my seeds, right. I'm okay. But actually, you do need the other public, public key. keys. Yeah. You need to reconstruct that script. Um, so for that, you know, the output script is kind of our standard way to do it. Awesome. So we'll um, give this PR a thumbs up. I hope so. <laughs> Let's get some review too. Um, what do you want to talk about? Is there any, you want to talk about tokens on Lightning? 
Yeah, uh, yeah. Matt was making fun of me earlier, saying I'm a I'm a attention whore. No, I called you a cheerleader. <laughs> this is what I called you. Why am I a cheerleader? I don't know. You just you just made it seem extremely bullish, and I just don't. I think it's very bullish. I think it's cool. I think so that, what we're talking about is. There's Para. a lot of uh, layer two like ways to do tokens on top of Bitcoin, right? Like even back in the day, you had like uh, what's it called? Omni Protocol. Yeah, Omni Protocol. You had um, something party. Uh, counterparty. Counterparty. There's colored Bitcoin. Then there's like liquid. Now there's lightning. You can issue shit coins on top of Bitcoin in lots of different ways now, right? Yeah. I mean, you can also just issue shit coins on top of shit coins and let that be. Like, if people want to use Tether, why does it matter if they use Tron? Like, does anyone really care? Like at the end of the day, you're still trusting the Tether Corporation in the back end. It doesn't really matter what chain it's running on. So why do we care if it's just running on a centralized Personally, I think it'd be cool if it was on Bitcoin rather than a shitcoin. That's why I got excited about it. Like you can create these tokens within a taproot transaction and then push it up to the second layer and transact via Lightning. But you brought up something earlier when we were discussing this, when it became apparent that Matt was going to... Uh, shit on me on stage. Uh, <laughs> you said it, we should talk about it. Does it? I did. Does it? Uh, does it create this weird MEV-like incentive mechanism on the Lightning Network, where you, you have these different assets going through Lightning nodes, and does that mess with the incentives of the node topology? Yeah, I mean, I don't. I don't really. I mean, it's just recently launched. We had we had the fortune of having Lalu on stage here yesterday to present on it. Um, and what it hit the it hit the dev mailing list the day before that I believe, um, so it's really fresh. So I, I expect people will you know look into it. Uh, but you know as someone who does run a routing node, run a Lightning routing node, um, and I see that we have a lot of you know Lightning's great. I, Lightning's one of those things where I just go through like four month cycles where I'm bullish and bearish on Lightning. Um, but I've run a Lightning routing node the whole time and I continue to use Lightning. But there are things that need to be refined on Lightning. It's an unfinished spec, right? And I don't know if NFTs on Lightning are the thing well, that I get excited about. Like I think stable coins are interesting. I'm interested in hash rate derivatives. Could they be tokenized? That's my stable coin. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of um, assets issued on the Liquid network too, and there's this huge divide internally within the Liquid Federation. Should Liquid become this thing that like eats Ethereum and all these other uh, shitcoin blockchains, or should Liquid be a system for cheap and fast Bitcoin payments on a layer two blockchain, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and and it's it's uh, really interesting to see how these layer two networks and, and communities will evolve over time. I mean. The, I guess the con rough consensus is like, why not both? But it can be a distraction and you get lots of scams. It's, it's, it's really got its trade-offs, right? Yeah. So I mean, Marty had a specific, uh, when, he, when he was cheerleading Tarot, he had a specific uh, framing, which is that it obsolete shitcoins. It makes every shitcoin obsolete. Yeah. Does it? It could potentially. I don't know. It could potentially. Maybe I was. That wouldn't have made the tweet as fire, right? Maybe oh, it could potentially <laughs> make everything <laughs> Craig, do you have any thoughts on this, or is this like not? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I haven't really had a chance to look into it um, in any great detail, but obviously, the one of the bounding qualities of the Lightning Network is the amount of liquidity that's locked up into it. So, 
if this brings additional liquidity, that yeah. is a good thing. Um, you know, are there going to be other second-order effects? Hard to say at this point. You know, I think that it's, it's we're just starting as a community to kind of look at what's being 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 done. I think you know it's 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 interesting, but it's not. It's not super interesting in the long term. We obviously have a long-term vision of a Bitcoin-only future, um, but it may be sort of an interesting diversion on on that yeah. path. Um, I definitely it may think help us yeah. to get there. Who knows? It's a cool part of the of their vision. I will say that, as opposed to uh, like Synonym's proposal, where Synonym's proposal essentially has you have to have dedicated. Lightning channels for whatever shitcoin you're transferring. Mm -hmm. uh, so then, that's a completely separate liquidity. Like they, it's called the Lightning Network, but it's it's not really interoperable with the Greater Lightning Network. In this proposal, it is pretty cool that, you know, you could just be running a routing node that only sees Sats and doesn't even know um, that that any token is involved, and only the ed edges have to know. So essentially, like if Tether was successful on Lightning. Uh, it could create an incentive where there is way more liquidity on the Lightning Network because Tether is not on Tron or Solana or whatever bullshit. Um, and those routing nodes in between could end up making way more in fees as a result, right? Yeah. Um, so I, I definitely agree that that is, that is definitely a, a very cool aspect of yeah, it. It sounds like you're becoming bullish on Terra live on stage. Here. I mean, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to be fair. I'm just trying to be fair. Um, I don't think it's going to obsolete shitcoins, though. Yeah. We were also reminiscing earlier of Bitcoin 2019 when we did the first yep. live RHR. On a picnic uh, table. On a picnic table. Bitcoin. Matt had a fresh face. He looked about 15 years younger, wearing the same shoes. Uh, and it's just crazy to think of how it's big a different this, pair, but it's how, how, big this, uh, how big this conference has gotten over the last three years specifically. Obviously, due to the fact that Bitcoin's up. Uh, a very big theme in the world right now. Bitcoin 2019, we were on a picnic table. There was 2,500 people at the conference, maybe even less, like 2,300 people at the conference. The main stage for that event was probably around this size, maybe a little bit bigger. Definitely the actual stage was bigger, but seat-wise was probably maybe like 60% larger than this. Yeah, like this um, used to be the whole Bitcoin conference, just yeah. this room. <laughs> And then Bitcoin 2020 was canceled uh, because it was happening in California as COVID hit. And then Bitcoin 2021, we were outside in the scorching heat. Yeah, they put O'Leary inside. In of front of about 400 people with 13,000 people at the event. And now we're on this nice, beautiful open source stage and air conditioning with probably like 900 to 1,000 people in here. I'll take it. And we've got a, we've got a live Three performer years. after too. Yeah. We love you, freaks. We do love you, freaks. Um, yeah, it's crazy to think. I mean, you had Odell Beckham, Serena Williams, and Aaron Rodgers opening the day. Do you know, uh, did I tell you that uh, CNBC reached out to do an interview with me here? And they kept asking for my PR person. I was like, I'm just a humble Bitcoiner. Like, I don't have a PR person. <laughs> we, like, planned the whole thing out, and they thought they were booking Odell Beckham Jr. <laughs> <laughs> Secondary Odell in Bitcoin. It's amazing uh, how quick that happens. That's incredible. Uh. Number one in our hearts. <laughs> Let's fucking go. So with all this attention coming to Bitcoin, obviously this conference, 25,000 people here, I'd like to hear... Your thoughts, Wiz and Craig, like in term, at the protocol level and 
the, the network level in terms of decentralization, usability? How, what do you guys think the state of Bitcoin is as a network right now? State of Bitcoin? Big question. That's a good question, huh? Um, I don't know. I mean, the community is very strong. But there's also like this um, mix. It's, it's like a Venn diagram or something where you've got the Bitcoin, the hardcore Bitcoiners, which are probably in this room, and then you've got the crypto people, and then you've got just the total shitcoin scams, right? And it's, it, it's like obviously those circles are not the same size, right? As you just described by the size of the, comparing the different sides of the stages or whatever. And, and even around this uh, conference, there's like satellite conference, like shitcoin or something. I think Solana's doing something here. Yeah, it's, it's just, um, yeah, it's, the community is, is evolving, I guess. It's very mainstream. But the real Bitcoin community, the core, hardcore Bitcoin, they're all here, like in this room, I feel, right? I mean. Yeah, I have to agree with Wiz. Um, I wander around, uh, and I feel that the Bitcoin conference is here in this hall. Um, yeah. It's kind of not really happening out there. I mean, that's not maybe fair, because I haven't spent that much time, 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 time out there, and I'm sure they are interesting talks, um, but certainly what we've had here, thanks to Matt, has been some really great talks. Over the it was last definitely day. not just me. There was a massive team that helped me. Sure. Couldn't have done it without them. Um, I mean, I behoove all of you an hour after this, I think it's 4 p.m. to go to the main stage because Mahler's has got a fucking insane announcement, so. Um, <laughs> Matt hasn't even told me yet, so it must be pretty big. Uh, Lip sealed. Yeah. The... Um, yeah, I just came back, the, the, the mining stage, Steve Barber, uh, Wit from Compass, uh, Bob, uh, and a gentleman, Ryan, I believe, from Titan with AJ, had like a de further decentralizing mining talk. Yeah, the mining stage is awesome, right? I mean, I, I've been stuck here, and I love it. Uh, <laughs> but I, I mean, I, I've looked all over that agenda, the agenda for the mining stage for today and tomorrow. Um, I mean, like historically, like industry days always very suit heavy, mm -hmm. you know. And this year was the exception because we did highly technical open source conversations here, so that was the rarity in terms of how they set up this conference usually. But the GA days on the mining stage are pretty pretty awesome. What was your how many talks did you watch? What was your favorite? Uh, I must admit, this is my second talk, so the. The last one I saw was my favorite, but it, I think it's an important discussion, like decentralizing mining. Obviously, uh, in the mining industry, it's always top of mind. You're seeing this massive migration of hash rates to the U.S. and even more specifically to Texas, a lot of massive on-grid uh, operations that are just inherently centralized. You, you have people building 500 megawatt uh, facilities that, that are very out in the open. Uh, and I think what Steve is doing with Upstream and the black box to get more individuals mining and his framing with the black box is it may not be as profitable, but people really want it because they want privacy. There's this, there's this push for privacy downstream in the energy sector um, from, from individual Bitcoin miners. Upstream 100%. gets much more efficient, obviously, because they're closer to the lowest cost power. But downstream is being hardened because people want KYC-free Bitcoin. I think that's a really cool move. That's an interesting uh, comparison between like the mining stage and open source stage. It, open source can just be like a few shadowy super coders, you know, hacking away on GitHub. You don't, you have no idea what their real name is. But to do mining, especially these days, it's extremely capital intensive, and you know, 
you need to wear a suit to raise that kind of capital, right? I don't wear suits. Well, no, so we have, so I guess both me and Marty are gonna be on the mining stage tomorrow separately. Are you gonna wear a suit? Um, <laughs> and so Marty's, Marty's talk is titled, Is ESG an Attack on Bitcoin? Now, obviously, Marty doesn't think ESG is an attack on Bitcoin. <laughs> so it should be a very interesting conversation. Yeah, I won't, we'll talk about that tomorrow. And, and I'm doing a KYC-free home mining with Econo Alchemist and Diverter. Um, so there's a lot of good conversations this year uh, that I'm excited about. And I, I mean, I, look, at the end of the day, there's just so much, there's so much content that you, you have to watch them after the fact. Yeah. Um, so you like catch them all. Yeah, I did catch a clip of Dave Portnoy talking shit on me. Um, so that was funny. <laughs> but Portnoy, he was talking shit about you? Yeah. Funny, though. I actually texted him after, um, trying to convince him to get Barstool's podcast on Podcasting 2.0. I mean, that seems obvious. Yeah. I think that would be massive, not only for Podcasting 2.0, but like having somebody like Barstool. What did Portnoy say about you? He's, uh, was he on He stage? said I was shady when I worked at Barstool. While he was on <laughs> I was sneaking into the studios late at night. And well, I was on stage. Well, the first time I recorded with Marty was in Barstool's merch closet with uh, T-shirts all around us. Yeah, we literally. And a yeah. bottle of Macallan. The first, what was that? That was like episode 29 of the interview series. Yeah, Marty was like, oh, come over to the Barstool studio. Like, this is where I record. I was like, oh, it's going to be the most baller podcast studio ever. And I'm just like <laughs> sitting in a fucking glass box with fucking T-shirts all around me. Hey, humble beginnings, man. I had a lot of t-shirts. Yeah. Um, so we have, yeah, we'll keep 15 21 minutes. minutes. That's we'll a keep sign 15 there. minutes for Q&A. Um, what is... Uh, I got something. If you can't think of anything, you look like you're digging for something in there. Well, that's why I was looking at my phone earlier. Like, is there anything interesting? But if you have something... Well, uh, I wasn't able to dig too far into it, but Blockstream and Breeze announced... Oh, that's cool. The green light integration. Yeah. What uh, you seem to know more about it than I do. What's going on? Uh, so I was talking to Roy about it. Roy's here from Breeze. He's absolutely awesome. Um, so first of all, it's like a, it's just an announcement of their plans to do it. Hmm. Um, but right now with Breeze, you essentially are running a lightning node on your phone, directly on your phone. And if anyone's used Breeze for podcasting 2.0, like your phone gets really hot really because hot. it's like it's legitimately running a, a lightning node on your phone. Um, and it also means that all of their different apps within Breeze, uh, whether that's the actual wallet or whether that's podcasting or whether that's their point of sale and he wants to add video streaming and he wants to add all these different things, they all need to be in the same app because they need a lightning node. Now, Greenlight is cool because it's an on-demand cloud node that Blockstream, it's a, it's a service that Blockstream runs. And it's trust minimized because the actual keys are on your phone. Uh, they're not on the server. Now, there's obviously some trust still in Blockstream. Um, obviously, the main one is that they actually are up. But also, they provide a watchtower service for you because when your node's offline, someone can try and broadcast a bad state and steal your lightning funds, right? So there's a little bit of trust in Blockstream. But if they're not like your channel partner, they shouldn't be able to take your funds. And all these lightning wallets on your phone, they're, they're not trustless. There's always, first of all, it's very hard for anything to be trustless, but they're all like trust minimized, taking different trade-off balances. Like even with Breeze, with Breeze, your phone goes off, offline, you know, your main channel's open with Breeze, you know, they're the only liquidity provider, there's some trust there in Breeze. Now in this setup, it's, it's really interesting because, um, 
You, yeah, you have the keys on your phone. Greenlight is the node. And then he can have all these different Breeze apps that can all connect back to that node and separate them out. So you don't have one big bloated app um, that does all the things. That's modular. Yeah. And I guess like this is the first major partner with Greenlight that I know of. That's pretty cool. And it also means more C lightning usage, like core lightning usage. <laughs> Do you want to talk about that? Did we talk about that last week? We did week? talk we about did. it last we week. We thought it was an April Fool's joke. <laughs> yeah. Cool. I mean. We had Christian Decker up here, and he kept, he kept calling it C lightning by accident. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we talked about it last week. Yeah, we did. We already talked about it. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of people in the room here. <laughs> the lightning flame wars are interesting, the implementation wars. What are your, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, the, 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 the green light logo is yellow. What's up with that? That just, <laughs> that just uh, irks me so hard. That's confusing. Right? Yeah. Well, I guess everyone's scared of you know, making a green bee because of bee cash. There's what? one right behind your head over there. That's but. a square. That's a square. <laughs> so it's like a little bit different, yeah. 100%. Yeah, I think Bcash is. Who was here when Bcash happened? When the fork happened? It's good about Yeah, see, for a lot of people, Bcash just does not even exist. Good. There's yeah. no reason to. Uh... <laughs> so you think they should call it Yellow Light? <laughs> or should they change the color of the logo? I'm not Morning. the marketing person. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I was actually reminiscing with Harry Suddock about that too. Like when we first met in 2017, like all the topic was about the fork wars, and it's crazy again to think how far we've come from that. Um, it was an important part of Bitcoin history, though, right? Yeah. Kind of like uh, Mt. Gox going bankrupt, or or the block size wars, whatever you want to call it. It proved that Bitcoin is resilient, and it just got stronger afterwards. So, yeah, yeah and it sort of needed to happen at some point, right, to prove that Bitcoin could overcome that. That's true. Attack. Yeah, like even five, six years ago, it wasn't. Um, maybe this is something we take for granted now. Now we kind of accept that Bitcoin works extremely reliably, but back then it was much more uh, maybe experimental, or we didn't have as much confidence. Maybe it was it was more of a, something to play around with. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, you've got billionaires just going all in. Yeah, and then you have other billionaires who want to change the code. <laughs> Hashtag change the code. They're going to change the code. Anybody can change the code. Just getting people to run it, that's going to be hard. Uh, well, Greenpeace can go fuck themselves. <laughs> <laughs> they love it. Real Bitcoiners in here. <laughs> um... What else do you want to talk about? Uh, well, actually, Who else should I, go I, I, had, I, I lost a thought that just came back to me, piggybacking on this. Fork wars were over how to uh, scale Bitcoin, particularly at the block size level. Bcash wanted to arbitrarily just double the block size, and other people thought SegWit would be a more uh, advantageous way to, to increase the block weight and make it some more transactions. Oh, there he is. I was told to water up. Here. Okay. Do you have a handheld? Sorry, I'm dressed like Fiat today. So. Uh, Steve, <laughs> you have a handheld mic? Steve, go get a mic. Stick your head in there and ask them for a handheld. Tell them you're um, The Benz are here. And, yeah. We're not. <laughs> but the Benz are here. That's, uh, I got in a bit of a discussion this week. We're about, under attack. Is there um, Benz? <laughs> oh, Benz always, oh no. I can't see anything. They brought a gaggle. There's a gaggle of Benz. 
Get out of here. <laughs> Get out no. of here. Yes. There we go. Steve, don't bring that sign up here. No? My, my little boy is six months. His name is Ben. Oh, uh, okay. Oh, fair enough. I stand with Ben's baby. <laughs> Did you get uh, did you get mobbed after your mining panel? That's what I assumed. I did. Yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of noobs came up to me, so I'd explain Bitcoin from scratch. So, <laughs> what uh, what are your thoughts of this event? How's it going for you? I think it's been great. I uh, came in a bit late, but uh, a few NFT shills came up to me, but they're you know they're nice people. Um, <laughs> Marty loves NFTs though, and he just wants them on mining. I have no opinion on them. Like I'm not. I'm sort of like neutral, but. Uh, Mining is good. Like this year is, uh, it's nice to see like, like excitement around mining. So I think uh, the conference guys have done an amazing job with that. So I love them, love them what I'm seeing out there in the, in the booth section. Do you want to tell the freaks about our special offer? <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, I'm shilling our black boxes. Uh, if you guys haven't seen them, they're uh, mining out in the conference with a couple S9s. So yeah. Um, you want to tell I them always... what a black box is? Yeah, black box, uh, it converts your KYC Bitcoin to non-KYC Bitcoin uh, in the comfort of your home. It turns you into your own personal non-KYC exchange. Uh, it burns your fiat and makes beautiful Bitcoins. So every single one of you, every single one of you should get one. Um, although uh, I know it's expensive, so I put out the plan on how to build your own. So you can just take a single sheet of plywood, cut it in the sections that I drew up and build one and run an S9 off 120 volt in your garage or wherever, and you'll get the sound kill, you'll get all the, you, you, get, you get to be on the black market uh, like a true Bitcoiner, so go do that. That's why it's called the black box. Hell yeah. Um, Steve. Oh, and oh, sorry, and and, and uh, I, <laughs> there is a promo uh, if you go to our web store and type in "freaks" uh, as a coupon code, you get a further discount off bundles. So it's a little bit extra off. It's a promo on right now. So freaks. Uh, Steve was in Texas last week. Big recruiting trip. When are you moving? It was a bit of a exploratory trip. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of action in Texas. Uh, I'm stuck up in Canada. Uh, I don't know how I got here. I guess it's a different story, but uh, Canada is uh, not great for business right now. So we were checking out Texas for the oil and gas, Bitcoin mining stuff. What about Nashville? Uh, so uh, I want to go to Nashville. Um, I met Peter McCormack last night and he invited me there. So I might go in August. And actually I heard Nashville is rocking. Uh, you guys do a good job at your meetups. Yeah, they're awesome. And Tom Asario, one of my favorite guys at Bitcoin. Yeah, Marty's Tom's good boy. Fucking awesome. He's from Ten he lives in Tennessee now, and from what I see, it's just a glorious place. Yeah, it is a glorious place. Yeah. Well, lots of people are moving there, right? I mean, you got already like the Bitcoin Magazine office is headquartered there, mm -hmm. and uh, not to dox anybody else who's living there, but a lot of cool Bitcoiners uh, apparently are moving there. Yeah, but all the cooler Bitcoiners are in Austin, so. Uh, I'm kidding. People think this conference is bad. Wait for your WEF conference that's coming to town. Uh, is that a WEF plus Coindesk consensus? Yeah, talk about being tone deaf. WEF and Coindesk? Yeah, World, e World Economic Forum, have you heard of them? 
Who is Klaus? Nobody knows. <laughs> he's got. He's a, he's a shady character. Is he the emperor, or is he the is he the Sith, or the is he the? I think apprentice? he's a puppet. Like we don't somebody know. That's the, that's the only question. We don't have to get into that though. We've got ten minutes and thirty seconds left. We usually open it up to Q and A at the end here. There's a lot of people. If any of you guys have any questions, do we have any mics to hand out, or are we just standing up and screaming, Matt? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no wonder the Bens are here. We, that's a, I don't have them on. Why don't you just read the shout out you put in there? Yeah, Ben. Did. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, yeah, I had to reach out to two freaks and tell they DM me after. We usually don't do the shout outs at the live show. It's just it's not a not enough time. Underestimated announcement this week. The mall. What is the most underestimated announcement? It hasn't been made yet. Um, <laughs> Are you announcing good. the announcement now? Uh, Matt just did. The, uh, what? What is the most underrated announcement? I don't know. Maulers. <laughs> Matt's hinting here. Uh, uh, did you guys talk about the Cash App? I thought that was pretty cool. A lot of easier onboarding, easier user experience. Seemed like some good stuff. And lightning deposits, right? Yeah, the dual, like make it easier to, to pay. I mean, we're, we've been talking about this a lot, but I actually had a conversation with Danny, who's working on the Cash App wallet, and it's, it's really cool just how much they've simplified the UX of pointing uh, your, your camera at a QR code, doesn't know if it's a fiat QR code, an on-chain, or a lightning code, and it just works. It picks up whatever it is and sends what it needs to. Um, let's give a shout-out to, to Cash App for really pushing the UX barriers around Bitcoin usage. Yeah, I mean, Miles was great up there. He fucking killed it. Yeah. With, with absolute legend. <laughs> Disclaimer, they used to be a sponsor. They're a sponsor yeah. of the stage. And the stage, <laughs> yeah. Um, underestimate, yeah. I mean, I was hope maybe... Aaron Rodgers said Stacks Ads. That's boss. How does that make you feel? It's two years since Stacks Ads first came out. Now it's just whatever. It's just everyone Stacks Ads. We're, we're going to move to bits, though, dude. We're moving, yeah, right. Yeah. Shitcoins are obsolete and we're moving to bits. I was expecting I was expecting another nation state to announce here. So maybe not an underestimate. Well Samson had like an overestimated announcement. <laughs> <laughs> what was it? I, I mean it was just uh, it's like an island, like a little island off of Honduras. Prospera. Right, Prospera. Yeah. But like everyone thought that was gonna be a whole country. I think we need more whole countries. I think El Salvador is out on a proverbial island. We're used to whole countries now, you know? Yeah. <laughs> starts with islands, man. It starts, it starts with, with islands. Grows from there. Fair enough, fair enough. I mean, I would love for like the US or Canada to just come out and be like, we're not going to do anything. Um, run free with Bitcoin. Use it as you please. Which is, who was I talking about this with? I was, Mark Moss. Yeah. I was talking about it with Mark Moss yesterday. Like, that's the way it should be. Like, we shouldn't have to wait for permission from the government to use Bitcoin the way we want to. Like, it's the way America, the ideals it was founded on, I think we should just be able to do it freely. It doesn't strike me as organic to expect countries to, like, states, like governments, to adopt it. It doesn't seem yeah, like the, the right Yeah, the incentives and game approach. theory is not exactly... Yeah, exactly. Uh, you don't, I, yeah, you don't want whole nation states adopting it. You just want their citizens to be, feel comfortable adopting it and use it as they, they want to. Especially if they have a money yeah. printing machine. I guess it was kind of a no-brainer for El Salvador, though, right? Because they were using the U.S. dollar. They didn't even have their own currency. Yeah, and, yeah. and the Federal Reserve is just 
printing out that trillions of dollars of money, and they're getting inflated and no benefits at all. So it's like a very easy decision for them, right? But most other countries that are printing their own currency, it's against their interest to it's adopt like the slaughtering their own golden goose in a way. Right. Yeah. So I guess for El Salvador, they already, that, that their golden goose already uh, got slaughtered internally before that. So it was a lot easier for them. Do you have any thoughts on this, Craig? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, I think they're certainly early for their time. I don't think we expect any other countries to announce, uh, certainly in the next few days. And there are a lot of downsides when a country does this, right? There's a lot of custodial wallets. There's a lot of, um, you know, kind of implementation issues of trying to build this in on a wider societal level. Um, so as you were saying, Marty, it's almost better in a way that we have this kind of organic growth where it takes time, yes, but by the time that a government eventually says, you know, we're gonna use this thing, well, a lot of people are already using it, but using it in the right way, or at least able to tell their friends and fam family, this is how you should do it. Don't just use the government's wallet, but, mm -hmm. you know, use your own, own, own wallet. And I think that that's, you know, so that's gonna happen anyway. So I'm, I'm, I'm not too fussed at the rate of country adoption because as you say, I think it's happening anyway. Yeah. Raise your hands if you've been to the Bitcoin Bazaar in, uh, in the conference. Okay, uh, raise your hand if you spent Bitcoin in the Miami area. That's pretty awesome. Like, I love that we have both the circular economy here. I love that we have every, every, everywhere around this conference you can pay with Lightning. And a bunch of different companies and groups of people have been onboarding businesses in the, in the surrounding area. I mean, we were at a bar last night that was onboarded that accepted Bitcoin. Dude, it was crazy. Uh, my flight from Austin yesterday, I came in, and there was a few of the Unchained guys on the flight as well, and Tyler, who created the intro to our podcast, was going to a hotel right down the street. So we hopped in an Uber, we shared an Uber, and then somebody uh, was Clockwork coming to the Breyer. conference, like, was yeah. like, are you guys going to South Beach? This is probably not what you should do if you're a Bitcoiner. He was like, can I hop in the Uber with you? We are like, yeah, hop in. And he like, and we like split the, uh, he was like, I'll pay you over strike. I was like, yeah, here's a lightning invoice, and like he paid me in the Uber. It's so, like, as soon as I landed, Ran into a Bitcoiner, was willing to like pay me in sats to split an Uber. It was pretty cool. I yeah, think I have, like, the, I have yeah. the opposite strategy. When the Uber driver asks me if I'm the Bitcoin, I'm like, "What's that? <laughs> <laughs> Bitcoin? That's a, you shill him a shitcoin just so he, for good offset purposes. I I don't own any Bitcoin. Tron is the future, and he just yeah. doesn't do anything to you. Yeah, it's it's really cool to see Prolific. Shout out to like Ibex and Oshi who've been going. Oshi's Michael from Oshi just fucking. Never stops. Yeah. He never stops. Ibex has onboarded 40 merchants. I mean, Ibex and Oshi also work together. Um, so it's very complimentary. I mean, the, I, one of the most bullish fundamentals of this year, period, is I really feel like there's starting to be real momentum on a proper Bitcoin circular economy. And I'm being cautious about it because there were false starts in the past. I mean, yeah, um, it was the big meme in like 2013, 2014. Hey, what about BitPay adding Lightning? Do we care? No, too late. Nicholas and the BTC Pay server team obsoleted them, so it's a funny. Do you have to do KYC before you send them Lightning do you, do, is it is it like a threshold? I've never spent to a BitPay merchant. Well, they don't even give you like a QR code, do they? They make you, I mean, they don't give you like a Bitcoin address to pay. Do they give you like a Lightning address? I don't know, I have no idea. Yeah. Who cares? Is anybody using BitPay? <laughs> I think a lot of people are, right? Use BTC Pay Service. Raise your hand if you use BitPay at your business. 
Zero. Zero heads. <laughs> somebody's pointing at somebody over there. It's like a pretty. It's a pretty. <laughs> Don't be scared. Shame. It's kind of a mean. It's kind of a mean question. Um, uh, raise yeah. your hand if you if you spent at a BitPay merchant in the last year. It's a few hands. Um, Did they just give you an invoice? Bib ninety. Yeah. It's got it. So he's saying it's it depends on the merchant. Some just give you a Bitcoin address. Yeah. Oh. Still, ca still catching up. But there's other way. merchants that just use a BTC Pay server, like uh, you know, to book your your flights or hotel. There's so many places you can go now. Hundred percent. So guys, um, I mean, we have two minutes left. I think we should probably end it with final thoughts. But before we do, before you all like jump out of your seats and stuff. We have a ride or die freak here who's going to perform for us, Captain Youth, in two minutes after we do our final thoughts. So um, I'm very excited about that and uh, looking forward to that. So Craig, you want to start with final thoughts? Sure. So I mean, uh, great to be here. And um, you know, I, I just really am inspired by the number of people that I've met and um, feedback that I've got. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's great to see in person the kind of passion um, that people have. I'm living in you know, one corner of continents in the world where Bitcoin is not um, a general topic, let's say. Um, and coming out here, you can really experience the kind of passion and enthusiasm that people have, have in the space, and that gives me energy to do what I do. So yeah, um, it's been great to be here so far. Thanks, Craig. Wiz, final thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it's been, uh, Miami's been great so far. We started off with the beefsteak, and that was amazing. Uh, beefsteak's always special. Who, who went to the beefsteak? Yeah. yeah. Marty, why isn't your hand I, up? I, I, that's, that's the best. That's I the had best a very event. pregnant wife. No, no. <laughs> I've had, I tweeted, I have beefsteak FOMO. Uh, poor FOMO, yeah. Well, you were missed. Everyone that was asking me about you, I had to answer that question like 100 times. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for missing me, freaks. Yeah. Well, yeah, the beefsteak was awesome, and, um, you know, this open source stage was awesome. Like every talk is, these are, this is the signal, right? These are the people that I want to uh, listen to and hang out with. I don't know what's going on in the other rooms. Uh, yeah, I've sure. been paying attention, but. Yeah. Steve? Well, I'm happen happy to be up here. I, I listen to you guys. I do a lot of driving in Canada from Calgary to Lloyd to oil wells, whatnot. I listen to you guys all the time. So appreciate having me up here. Me and Marty were shooting guns on a Texas ranch the other day. Yeah, it was oh, epic. Thank you. Steve. Illegal guns that we wouldn't build. Not U.S. illegal, but Canadian illegal. So it was a special experience. Steve had a cathartic experience on the gun range on Sunday. I've got a picture of him. He's got the biggest shit-eating grin on his face. <laughs> FN scar, man. Oh, my God. Uh, there's a Guns and Bitcoin conference coming up. I don't know. Are you guys going to that? Guns and Bitcoin? Yeah, I yeah. want to. Yeah, I'm speaking at that um, in a few days. Oh, awesome. It's down here in Miami, right? I mean, they're great dudes over there. Yeah. Do you yeah, have well, any fun? Oh, yeah. That's it. Continue. That's it for me. Why don't you go first with final thought? And whatever. What are you holding? I wasn't going to do final thoughts, but we've been working with the Bitcoin company, um, and we've turned that honey badger, or they've turned that honey badger that we used to have on our T-shirts before Marty nuked the store because he was scared we were going to be ledger hacked. Um, and the proceeds are going to OpenSats, them and us. It's a, it's a three-way split. Yeah, shout out to my... Uh, so, it's pretty dope. This is the first time I've ever seen it in person. Shout out to my roommate, Braden, out of college, who made that design. And shout out to Max, who made this 3D print. It's, it came out great, dude. I know you just walked up on stage and I had a hot mic, but it came out fantastic. 
Final thoughts? We're gonna win. We're gonna win, let's fucking go. Thank you, freaks. Here comes Captain Youth. <laughs>